everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 405. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, uh, might sound a little funky this week. I got a little uh, sinus-ish, probably just a regular cold I've been dealing with the past couple of days. So, yeah, always fun to uh, to deal with that this time of year. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. It happens. So, it's all that matters. Yeah, luckily I'm not. I don't have the situation that well the problems that you have with your sinuses. You're in a totally different. I mean, area. I, it's not that bad. I haven't been getting the infections that much in recent years. Yeah, but you go. You're. you're I mean, you're always at the doctor and shit like that. I'm. Well, with the sinus stuff, not, I'm not. No, not really lately, huh? I mean, I've been able to deal with it pretty well, but it requires. Yeah. Man, they were. I mean, man, man, what happened with me was. Uh, the pollen made a quick comeback and and got me. So after yeah. I didn't really have any problems at all with it until the comeback. Well, I've been trying. Yeah, it's been a delicate balance in my new apartment because you know between being higher up and also it being a steam radiator. So you know when the heat's coming on, I can't control it and it gets very hot and dry quick. You know, I've been opening the. I had been opening the window a lot more than I had been used to lately, but then I could feel my allergies getting worse. So it was trying to figure out the right balance and putting the air conditioner in and all that with you know with that kind of thing. But overall I don't have too many complaints. Um who was it who was it in the Death Valley Driver circle that put together a compilation back in the day that was called Pollen Season? Was that Gankarski? I don't even remember that one. I think it I don't was. remember that one. Was it a lot of killer bees matches or something? No, it's just the, I mean, maybe it was just the time of the year. Whoever was put the compilation out, it was just one of those you know RSPW style compilations back in the day. I believe that was the first time I ever saw the clip from Mid Atlantic of Enforcer Luciano eating the light bulb. Oh yeah, yeah, he was he was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, one of the great um, bad wrestlers of all time, Enforcer Luciano. The thing was, he was a wrestler for many, many years before that. I know. We just we don't have video of that, thankfully. So there you go. Yes. All right. So uh, for those of you who uh, have not listened, we would uh, like for you to listen our little thing we did on uh, on Dean uh, Dean Rasmussen. I should have. I don't know why I forgot. That's how his last name is pronounced. But yes, it's Dean Rasmussen, not Rasmussen. And um, so my apologies on that. But we did a little thing, me and Bix did uh, on uh, this last Sunday that went up. So everybody go check that out. And uh, maybe by now, the podcast that I have uh, have done with the, the two Phils, Phil Rip and Phil Schneider, talking about Dean uh, will be up. So I hope everybody listens to that as well. Because, uh, I mean, these two guys, um, Phil Rip and you know, especially known Dean for decades. So definitely uh, definitely a show that had to be done to uh, honor our dear friend Dean. So uh, everybody go check that out if you haven't already. So there's yeah. that. And also, um, I mean, you'll hear it if you listen, but, you know, the details for the GoFundMe that his daughter set up are in the description of that show. If people want to send anything their way. So... Just yeah, to, exactly. You know, include that in there. People don't have the time to listen yet, but they want to at least you know check that out or whatever. The links in that description. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started with the show. As we uh, go into the week of May the 10th through the 16th of 1994, and we begin with the World Wrestling Federation. The four-show World Wrestling Federation Tour of Japan, which concluded on May 11th on the surface, has been widely called a major flop, as none of the four shows came close to even half-filling large arenas. But looking deeper, that may not paint a complete picture, which is why upon completion of the tour, the officials announced a return tour in the fall. Although the officials released crowd figures that were largely inflated, something hardly new in Japan, or by wrestling promoters anywhere, the tour opened on May 7th with about 4,500 fans in the 17,010-seat Yokohama Arena, followed by about 2,500 fans in the 13,000-seat Nagoya Rainbow Hall on May the 8th, 4,000 fans in the 15,000-seat Osaka Castle Hall on May 9th, and finished up drawing about 2,300 fans in the 10,000-seat Suki Sambo Green Dome and Sapporo. In all four cases, it was by a wide margin the smallest wrestling crowd ever in that specific arena. In addition, the shows themselves were major disappointment of those attending based on virtually every report. While the Japanese fans, particularly in Osaka, Nagoya, and Sapporo, are fans of hard athletic style wrestling, which partially explains the smaller crowds for the more entertainment oriented WF style, those who attended largely knew not to expect athletic wrestling. But they were still disappointed with the matches show quality. As mentioned last week, among the problems of the lack of cultural understanding of what the audience wanted. Those who attended realized the match quality wasn't going to be that of all Japan standards. First fifteen shows laden with special effects, such as laser light shows, pyrotechnics, videos, etc. Some of their pay-per-view shows that Japanese fans had seen be at the home video market. Instead, that didn't take place. In addition, the finishes left much to be desired and largely showed a surprising ignorance of the audience. Surprising as Japanese finishes are so simple to come up with, it's pathetic, and it probably takes a rocket science to figure out what won't work. And WF almost did its best to make sure what it did wouldn't work. <clears throat> WF Japanese rep Akio Sada was the booker and wrestler for years in all Japan, although that was in the pre-clean finish era. Apparently, either he has lost pace with the current treads in his native country or was overruled by someone without a clue. J.J. Dillon, who was in charge of the tour, certainly has had enough experience dealing with Japanese-style wrestling over the past five years to avoid the most obvious pitfalls, which they fell into. On every show, there were finishes which completely turned the fans off and resulted in strong negative reactions, including chance of refund by an audience that rarely reacts to such a matter, whether it be quick count of pitfalls or quick submissions, where the losing guy doesn't struggle before the bills call for, or what is that considered outright bullshit finishes, such as a four- minute count-out with Undertaker and Yokozuna, double count-out with Tenro and Yokozuna, and ending the tour on the perfectly stupid note to a chorus of boos as Yokozuna got disqualified from Mr. Fuji and Bret Hart with a flat ball in the title match at Sporo. So the tour was on a financial flop, although it must have come nowhere close to garnering the expected income, with high ticket prices, $200 ringside, and enough hardcore attention to buy the expensive tickets, the gates, even with the low crowds, were much larger each night than the control of the United States, or even in Europe nowadays. Even 2,300 tickets at the average price of 75 bucks is more than $170,000, and 4,000 tickets at that price is $300,000. Merchandise sales are excellent, but merchandise selling at every show. Japanese fans are in the rest of merchandise far more than their American counterparts. The tour chat to the hardcore audience, seeing this as a rare opportunity to purchase the merchandise. The officials tried to salvage publicity, tried to salvage publicly the small crowds by saying that they didn't sell any discounted tickets or pay for any of the houses. It's accepted practice in Japan for the promotion to sell tickets at 70% of face value. The companies who didn't distribute or sell at face value are less than face value with those tickets. 
similar to group sales for major sports franchises in the United States. Many spot shows are purchased from the major companies to support a set fee, and the local promoters distribute tickets as they see fit, oftentimes giving away meaning tickets to their friends to act as big shots. Still, when even the second and third level women's promotions and a tiny independent like Michinoku Pro can draw more fans to his major Tokyo shows in WWF can for heavily hyped Japan Mania card Yokohama Arena, it is a sign that the general wrestling fans simply are interested in what WWF has to offer. Okay. Well, yeah. At this time period, especially. Yes. So go ahead. But before we talk about this more, let's get the other side. Let's hear what J.J. Dillon had to say about this in his book. SWS held their final card on June 18th, 1992, after which time Tenru immediately formed War, which stands for e either Wrestling and Romance or Wrestling Association R, depending on who you ask. We continued to promote with War through September 15th, 1992, until Vince said, I want to go to Japan, but I want to do it on my own. I don't want a partner. Vince looked at me and said, you do it. You put the deal together. I want the first all WWF event in Japan. And remember, if you've heard, you know, the handful of, you know, mid-80s shows, you know, 84 shows, or the like shows we've done, and also the Patreon shows we did about the early expansion, Vince long wanted to do this. He had just put it on the back burner on and off. Yeah, so something he talked about doing the, in 84, absolutely. And I think a little bit in the late 80s, too, and then he didn't. But anyway, <clears throat> with Vince's blessing, I again called on Akio Sato for assistance. I trusted Sato and had confidence in him. If there was a prayer of successfully promoting wrestling in Japan as an outsider, I knew that I needed his help. He did the research and set up our contacts. At the time, Sato was working for the WWF, teaming with Pat Tanaka as the Orient Express. Well, not exactly, but I guess he was their Japan liaison at that point, right? Since the timeline is a little off here, but... yeah. That's yeah. what he would have actually been doing. He would have been some kind of Japanese agent for that. <clears throat> um, yes. The two of us went back to Japan, and Sato set up a meeting with his country's top concert promoter. After we struck a deal for a guaranteed minimum fee, plus a percentage of our gross revenue, the promoter— Oh, so wait, are they paying him the guarantee? If it's a percentage of our gross revenue, the way he's putting it? I guess so, right? <clears throat> Sounds that way. Yeah, it's not a sold show. But the promoter flew to the U.S. where he, Vince, Linda, and myself had dinner at the Helmsley Palace in New York City. While we ate, Vince and the promoter talked, and we solidified the deal. After the promoter checked on the availability of venues and we selected the sites, the promoter contracted for the building for the dates contract we had scheduled for May 1994. He means he contracted with the buildings. Uh... Once again, Sato's understanding of the buildings and their history was essential to our selection of the venues. Vince let me book the cards, and Sato offered his input. The Undertaker, Bret Hart, and Randy Savage all went over. Jack Lanz and Dave Hebner were the WWF agents for the tour, while Sato acted as a mediator with the Japanese media. I was quite pleased to have overcome the obstacles of setting up a business and running an event in Japan where the established promoters don't like outsiders. Our biggest obstacle was a means to distribute and sell the tickets for the events. In 1994, Japan did not have anything like Ticketmaster or Ticketron. Japan had small independent outlets spread all over the country. Each outlet had mm -hmm. their regular customers who would pick up tickets locally and pay on a cash basis. 
Many mm-hmm. of the those regulars were accustomed to getting a discount. Mm-hmm. Sensing the subtext here, Chris? Yeah. The problem with having so many outlets was that you had no accounting of how many tickets had been sold. Or what the gross not. revenue was, even on the day of the show. After the show was over, it took weeks to get a report and an accurate count. To make matters worse, they got quote-unquote first count which had its own set of problems. It was a nightmare. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm surprised he wasn't a little less tactful, but... What? I, I, you know, about the Yakuza side of this, but, you know, it reminds me, though, remember, you know, when UFC bought Pride, they wanted to go run Pride shows in Japan, and then they realized, oh, wait... The company is run by a casino owner, and he co-owns it with his brother, who's also a casino owner. We can't legally do business with organized crime in any way, anywhere, because of our gaming license, so we can't do this. And that's why whenever UFC's been to Japan since, they always find, like, some kind of above-board, you know, concert promoter to handle things. Um, a smart thing to do. Yeah, I'm sure it's easier to get the tickets distributed and stuff now, but this is the type of thing, you know, we're talking about here. That obviously, you know, you know, granted it's over a decade later, but like, if in 94 you had to, I mean, without saying it, he says it here, you had to work with Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Or if not work directly with Yakuza, you had to be dealing with businesses that were dealing with the Yakuza, and... We're reliant on Yakuza business. Anyway, Baba had a travel agent in Los Angeles who took care of securing work visas for the Americans who worked in Japan, as well as for the Japanese who came to the States. But Sato and I had to meet with the Japanese consulate staff in New York to get that done. Another difficult task was getting clearance to import WWF merchandise to Japan. We didn't run the Tokyo Dome, but we grossed more than $1.5 million for five shows. A lot of the WWF merchandise we shipped over was outdated domestically. So overall, after expenses and payoffs for the talent, we made a nice profit of about $150,000 on the tour. I was thrilled that we made any money at all because everybody had their own small piece of the pie. The promoters who also who ran the ads, the ticket outlets, the arena settlement, etc. I don't know how the landscape has changed since 1994, but Sato and I reinvented the wheel for a quote-unquote outside promoter in Japan. Hmm. So, with the merchandise all selling out, and knowing it's stuff that they weren't really moving anymore in the States, so just efficiency-wise, I'm sure that's helpful. And then also, they made $150,000 profit on the tour. Like, did they draw as well as they hoped? No. Was the tour a success? Yes. Yeah. They didn't lose money, that's for sure. So <clears throat> that's one way of looking at it. But I mean you know, Dave's talking about the you know, the finishes on the show. I mean Akio Sato, as they mentioned, is from that that all Jap- that previous all Japan background where that was the norm to do those types of finishes, you know, and big matches and shit. So, 
And he'd been in Japan since the times have changed. But still, I mean, it's just, it's just the, you know, the way it used to be. And the fans have now been educated differently. Where you weren't getting it, especially on all Japan shows, you weren't getting that stuff. New Japan, you would get some, but it was rare. But, I mean, yeah, it was just, it, it, Japan had become a different type of place. At that time, when it comes to screw finishes, so yeah, and they'd been working with SWS and War, so they should have known that. Actually, wasn't Sato kind of like yeah at the time? Yeah, at the time that this started in late '92, when they stopped working with War, he was basically their liaison with War, right? Yeah. So. I mean, he knew enough. I mean, both of them should have known enough about mo- modern Japanese wrestling to know that. Yeah. But I guess they thought they could get biases to WF. But no, that wasn't going to work. I guess. So. All right. Um, <clears throat> another thing, too, is, um, you know, you look at the, the talent. This is 94, spring 94 WF. Mm-hmm. So you look at their talent roster at the time, and it's nowhere near the strong, the strength it needed to be to do this type of thing as far as name value. And in fact, I'm, I'm plugging in the results right now, the Sapporo show. All right, so let's talk about it. Inky matches on the final night of the Japan Mini Tour on May 11th for Sapporo. Alondra Blaze kept her title pinning Kyoko Inouye. We're a German suplex, so they got Kyoko on the show. Uh, Headshrinkers got attacked on as being Owen Hart and Tatanka when the latter teeth split up. Undertaker pin Adam Bomb, Tenru pin Randy Savage, and Bret Hart beat Yokozuna by disqualification. All right, so let's go to the full results. Smoking guns over the tag team of the 1 2 3 Kid and Nobukazu Hurai. Then we had Jinsei Shinzaki over Doink the Clown. Bob Backlund over Rip Martel, subbing for Shawn Michaels. Bam Bam Bigelow over Masashi Oyagi. And then the uh, Alundra Blaze Kyoko Anyway, it only went 10 minutes, 10 and a half minutes in that match. Then you got Head Shrinkers retained over Tatanka and Owen. Undertaker over Adam Bomb. Tanyukuchiro over Randy Savage. And Brett retained the title over Yokozuna in less than 10 minutes by DQ. Longest match on the show was 1554, and that was a tag team match. Mm. The tag title match. So. <sighs> It's just it's just a different time in Japan, you know. Yeah. So. And just to get an idea of the you know some of the matches on the other shows that aren't in our week, um, as I scroll up here on the results page, you know they had, uh, you know they had Bull beating Medusa in a non-title match in Yokohama. Oh, and Hardo Ayagi. Undertaker and Tenru over Yoko and Bam Bam. Uh, Nagoya, they had Kid Shinzaki. Uh, Medusa and Saki Hasegawa. Aoyagi Backland, Undertaker Yoko. Tenru and Savage versus Martell and Bomb. And Brett Bigelow and Osaka had, uh, let's see, Kid Fatu. Bretton Savage over Owen and Adam Bomb. Wait, did I? Wait, 
did I even mention Brett Savage? Which show was that? That was Yokohama. Yeah. Um, and then where was I? Undertaker Shinzaki they had for the first time in Osaka. They had the Blaze, just, you know, Medusa, Bull, Nakano rematch. They had Tenryo Kazuna. Like, there's some interesting stuff on those shows. It's not like there's nothing. No, but again, it's just Japan. And you're competing against All Japan, New Japan, and you don't have Hulk Hogan anymore. You don't have Ultra Warrior anymore. Guys that have been in Japan before as to the top guys. I mean, you got Savage and Brett and Untaker. So you got, I mean, you got about I guess, as good as you can get, you know, at the time for their star power. But, and Yokozuna. And Yokozuna. But. It's just a different time in Japan in Japan in general. Yeah. So Yeah, just scrolling to see what else is going on real quick to our Japan section while I'm later. So all Japan's not on tour. Um New Japan's not on tour. It, yeah, they don't have competition heavy competition. Uh that even makes it even worse. Yeah, FMW's not on tour. So yeah. Not great. In terms of the attendance, like that does change my perception a little bit. Like, yeah, they made money, but being that the week they're there, there's nothing else going on. You would have expected them to draw somewhat better. Exactly. All right. So um, the night after that, they went to Guam, Mangialo, Guam, at the University of Guam Fieldhouse on May 12th. Saw a crowd. 5,000 fans. Um, no, that was in Honolulu. We'll forget uh, that in a second. Uh, oh, okay. I see. You're right. Yeah, the 5,000 Honolulu. We just don't know what the crowd was in Guam, even though it's sold out. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Adam Bomb be the 1 2 3 kid. Alonzo Blaze retained their title over Bull Nakano. Headshakers retained tag titles over the Spoken Guns. Doink over Bob Backlund. I don't think our goes in about his qualification. Bam, bam, big over Tatanka. Savage over Rip Martel. Sorry for Shawn Michaels. And Brett over Owen to retain the title. The Guam show <laughs> looks better than the show from Japan, mm, in a way. Kind of. I see what you're saying, yeah. As far as good match quality, you know what I'm saying? As for the pure WWF matches, yes. Honolulu drew 5,000. Uh, Bull Nakano, again, uh, with a lunch of blaze. Current plans for Bull to capture the title Survivor Series and holding it until WrestleMania 11. Hello, well, she, she won it. To, uh, at the Dome show instead that week. Yeah. Alright, Don Morocco's ringing an announcer for the show. It was the most memorable snafu called the Smoking Guns, the Shooting Guns. The Honolulu shows advertised as WrestleMania Revenge Tour of all special effects. There were no special effects. Alright, you got Anabama, one, two, three kid, one star, two stars, excuse me. Alonzo of Anakano, two and a half stars. Hedrickers over Smoking Guns, no rating listed. I don't think Yoko's in about his qualification. Dud. Doink over Bob Backlund. Negative five stars. Hell yeah. Randy Savage over Martell. Two stars. Bam Bam over to Taco. One star. And Brett retained over Owen. Two and a half stars. So whoever was at this show, not too thrilled with this show. Yeah. Um. Okay, here's something I'm curious about, too. When we're hearing the profit they made on the Japanese tour. Is that including Guam and Honolulu? Or not including know. Guam and Honolulu? I don't know. 
because I feel like you got to factor that in because obviously they're not running Guam and Honolulu if they're not going to Japan. I guess that's a question for J.J. Dillon. Yeah. I have no idea. And so, and the other thing too is here though, they're getting the regular TV. Yeah. At least in Hawaii they are. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that because these, I mean, Honolulu and Guam, it seems like overall, in terms of packing the buildings, were more successful than the Japanese show. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right, WF returned to continental United States this past weekend. WrestleMania Revenge tour matches in Anaheim and San Jose. Baltron will be tabbed as excellent crowds of 10,900 and 7,200 with higher than mm. usual ticket prices and 150,000, 112,000 like each, respectively. The latter being the largest wrestling game ever in the city. San Jose. And I'm showing head-to-head with CMLL's Los Angeles debut show at the Grand Olympic Auditorium. The shows feature hot crowds <clears throat> and better than average for WF work rate. Because of the necessity shows, WF is going to run major house shows with the names of tours that will change at, their, at their, every pay-per-view. For example, the WrestleMania Revenge Tour will continue until the King of the Ring, after which major city house shows will be built as the Summer Sizzler Tour shows through SummerSlam, etc. This may also continue to house show price structure at $25 tops, and the WrestleMania Revenge Tour shows have charged. But even with the big money being turned over, the moon in the dressing room said to be the bleakest ever. With everyone in fear over the future of the company because of all the legal problems. The WF also canceled all four B shows over the weekend. Dalton, Georgia, Mobile, Alabama, Biloxi, Mississippi, Pensacola, Florida because of lack of advanced ticket sales. Hmm. Canceled the whole B tour. Not, yeah, it's not good. So history in WWE says it was Dothan, Alabama, not Dalton, Georgia. Which makes sense. You know, because uh, Dalton stands out. Dalton's up in northwest Georgia. And all these are on the Gulf Coast. Yeah. I mean, they're running the historical wrestling buildings in those cities, too. But I guess those cities don't want WWF wrestling at this time. Certainly not the B-Show version. I'm curious to see, do we have a B-Show lineup to see what they were advertising? Um, They had canceled Springfield, Tennessee on the 8th, too. Okay, here's what a B-Show looks like at this time. Um, So they had run McMinnville, Tennessee on the 6th. Quang over Coco Beware. Earthquake over Barry Horowitz subbing for Crush. (laughs) Mabel over IRS. Diesel retains the IC title over Razor, Luger over Crush, sub for Mr. Perfect. With same basic lineup the next night in Owensboro. But it also had Sparky Plug versus Jeff Jarrett, at least advertised. Yeah. So, that's a B-show, in a way. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Alright, uh, Diesel is out of action with a shoulder injury, although it's not supposed to be a lengthy absence. Luna Bashan returns to the house show speaking over Melinda Blaze and managing Bam Bam Bigelow. Now at that May 14th show in Anaheim, Rhonda Shear was the host of the show from Up All Night and a member of the ancient band Yes sang the national anthem. Overall, the atmosphere was really hot. I wonder which member of Yes sang the national anthem. And Dave called him ancient in 1994. It's hilarious because like a version of Yes still tours today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ron Deshear. Hosting a house show. That's interesting. 
ball night. Hmm. All right, results of the show from the pond in Anaheim, home of the Mighty Ducks. Uh, Adam Baum over one, two, three, kid. Alundra Blaze over Leilani Kai, and this is from Torch. Yokozuna over Earthquake. What a late drop out there. Crush, distracted Earthquake. Jeff Jarrett over Doink when he's feeling the ropes. All comedy. The Head Shrinkers beat the Swim Guns on Samu Hip Bart with a splash. Brett over Owen with a small package. That'd be well below par. And they still grow a crush at the Crush Mr. Splash, and Luger run him up with a pen. So. That Bart Guns left ear. Yes. I was going to say, um, you know, something people forget about these days, I think, is. And I'm not saying it is a knock, because with those rings they're working in in the schedule, like, I don't blame them. The story you always heard back in this era was that Bret Hart on a house show was not Bret Hart that you saw from TV and pay-per-views. Colin Jumbo. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, Bart Gunn's left ear was severely cut during his match, and the blood eventually covered the whole right side of his body. His mother happened to be in the crowd as he received stitches after the match. Hmm. <clears throat> well, that's not the best time for your mother to be there in attendance. And speaking of those matches... The Head Shrinkers on almost all the cheers in their matches over the weekend. Because it was in the Bay Area. Well, Hanum's at Bay Area, but uh, in California. So they had their, uh, their uh, following there. Especially in San Jose. Because that's where the uh, Ralph and Seek uh, in the Bay Area got their start in the business. Well, also, wait. If, it's title, matches, the, if it's title matches, the Head Shrinkers have already turned anyway. Well, I mean, but it's still babyface matches against smoking guns, if it is, so still, you know. Right, right, right. But still, this is, to be clear, it is a babyface match. So, yeah. I have Raw, February, May 16th, was pretty much a throwaway show in terms of forwarding the King of the Rings storylines from Torch. Bam and Bigelow pinned Sparky Plot to advance to the tournament, but otherwise, the two major points in the show were establishing Nikolai Volkov and Teddy Bianchi's relationship. They're trying to get some ratings out of Yoko's universe earthquake. <clears throat> Yoko's universe earthquake and the sumo match was pushed throughout the program, effectively building anticipation for what turned out to be less than that, not much. The long introductions, long in-ring ceremony, and lots of commercials. The match began in 10 minutes of what in the fast forward mode looked like a really bad new dance craze. Yoko's in through earthquake into to the mat. Yoko's in roll to the floor to lose the match. The fans seemed pretty into the match live, but technically speaking, it was pretty dismal. Well, let's watch this, shall we? The ending part of this match. Yokozuna is what he says he is. He's a grand champion, but he's not going against any slouch. And since Dave, I don't think outright said it, it's just in the ring with the ropes taken down. So, blood sport style. It's Earthquake versus Yokozuna. What's going to happen? Quest Torch, Dave can review. Excuse me, wait. Nice reversal there. Who can finish him off this? Yokozuna just missed Yoko way up high. It's not obvious that Vince didn't overdub there at all. Well, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, this is a tape show. I know, but it's 
not always this obvious. Okay. I think Dave's being way too hard on that match, though. You mean the torch? uh, Wade, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, for what it is, it's fun. I mean, it's a match built around Yokozuna teasing falling down and falling out of the ring. How do you not enjoy that? Oh, stop. I mean, mean, that's where where you're at this time here, you know? I know. There's There's not the appreciation for this type of stuff. No, there's not. So... But as you know, Earthquake got the win in that since Yokozuna was still a heavily pushed commodity. And Earthquake just disappears from the promotion within weeks. Mm-hmm. And also, you get one of your staples of Raw in this era, which is Randy Savage randomly runs into the ring to celebrate with the baby face. Mm-hmm. Diesel and Owen Hart won squash matches. We have more Undertaker sightings. We're talked about by people in the street. Which... Before Wade law- does not uh-huh. know how to word spell the word sighting for some reason. Yeah. Uh, before Lawler interviewed DiBiase and Volkov, got a promo on Roddy Piper. Ted DiBiase came out humiliating Nikolai and told DiBiase he hated him, but he put up with him because he needs some money. Let's watch this, shall we? <sighs> Never blew this happen the other day. I'm out here pumping gas. As a well, to take our siding first and then going right into it goes King's into Court. It. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it goes right into it. I look down the street, see something coming, no big deal. I look up again, this big black hearse coming down the road. Get this. On top of the hearse, the undertaker was on top of the hearse. Now, he wasn't in the car. He was on top of the hearse. I got gas coming all over me because I can't believe it. He drives by me, and he vanishes. I don't know about some of these Undertaker sightings. It's almost like Ripley's, believe it or not. Well, I hope it's true. Speaking of Ripley's, believe it or not, is is this man, and let me make Jerry Lawler, really a king? Out of my eyes. Let's listen in. I think that you people... Where was this TV taped, Lowell? Uh, no. Uh, I want to say Vermont. Let me look and see. Uh, yeah, Burlington, Vermont. Okay, I don't remember that. 2,500 seats. I mean, but it is a New England building called the Memorial Auditorium, so. Yes, because they tape Albany for superstars, Albany, New York, Knickerbock Arena, and then the wrestling challenge at Springfield on the 28th. Okay. People are repulsive. You you know the meaning of the word repulsive? I'm not looking at them. I'm just looking at them right now. Get your dictionary out. As a matter of fact, you'll probably find your picture next to the word. And speaking of repulsive, I want to talk for a minute about Rowdy Roddy Piper, because you see... Yeah, Piper's going to oh, shut, shut that up. mouth once and for all, the king of the ring. He can do it. It is finally going to happen. I am going to get my hands on Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah, right. And it is going to be the greatest day of the king's life and the greatest day of the World Wrestling Federation, I promise you. It's going to be but his last research day. on Rowdy Roddy. You see, I wanted to find out exactly when and more importantly, why Rowdy... 
The hot rod returning to action. And I had to check way back. I had to go all the way back to when Rowdy Roddy Piper was 18 years old. And I found out he got drafted to be in the Army. So when it came time for him to go down and take his physical, he put on a dress and a pair of high heel shoes. The you Army didn't take him in, but the doctor took him out. <laughs> well, let me tell you something, Rowdy Roddy Piper. You're messing with a real man now. You're messing with... Wait, what's the joke supposed to be there? <laughs> it's a different time and place, Bix. No, I'm, what is the joke? What's the doctor took yeah. him out supposed to mean? Because he looked like a woman. Okay. He was wearing a dress and high heel shoes, Bix. No, but that doesn't even make any sense because he's supposed to be not allowed in the <laughs> army because he they know he's a man. I know, but that's the thing. No, but I'm saying the joke doesn't not make the sense. Doctor, as... The toddler took him out on the date instead, instead okay. of a, uh, instead of uh, you know accepting him into the army or clearing him to enter the army. So is the joke that the doctor's gay? Uh. Oh, the doctor thought he was a woman, Dix. But the doctor couldn't have thought he was a woman because the doctor thought he was a woman, then he would have let him in the military. You're reading way... (laughs) You're overanalyzing this really, really too much. But it doesn't make sense. He's either... They either think he's gay or they think he's a woman. Okay, fine. By the standards of, you know, 19... Oh, my God. sumo matchup like but the king dollars. is still in the ring but somebody get the hook tell He's us a, a little bit buster. about your late this is actually your latest purchase is that right that's right king you purchase. see Volkov is penniless he's flat busted he's broke therefore he works for the million dollar man you know what if ignorance is bliss this is mr happy and they say money can't buy happiness, but I guess it can. <laughs> uh, Volkov not happy at all of being so-called owned by See, Ted DiBiase. He's got a price for the million-dollar man. You got a price, don't you, King? You got the money. I'm yours. <laughs> exactly. A man of integrity. Oh, here has a price. I mean, he's working for me, and he doesn't even like me. You don't like me, do you, Volkov? I hate you. This a lot, of, no, lot of folks hate their bosses. No choice. You hate my guess, before. But you're broke and penniless. Therefore, Volkov. Uh-uh-uh. Like right now. Remember who's paying the bills now. Therefore, you'll do whatever I say. Because I hold all the cards and I hold all the money. That's, I love it. That's right. Well, what do you think of how he looks? Volkov well, has say, no choice, unfortunately. You look like a million dollars. He looks like 10 cents. Well, I have solved that problem. You see, Volkov, for you to associate with the likes of me, it's beneath my dignity to have you walking around looking like that. So if you're going to work for me, first of all, that disgusting hat. Well, go ahead, go ahead. Hit it. Disgusting hat. Feels it, I will. I've got a little heart, King. I went out and I Very purchased little. you. I had special made for you a new outfit. That's right. 
It's gonna come out of your pay, of course. <laughs> this is First of all, the Million Dollar Man is black and gold, so you gotta get uniform, Volkov. Put those on. Show those to everybody. What is this? Oh, that is great. Black and let gold her, let tight. See them. Those are beautiful. Property of the Million Dollar Look Man. At, can, can you read? Read this. Don't put it on. Put them on. Don't put them on, Nikolai. What did you Keep say? Keep your integrity. He needs money, Vince McMahon. Uh, who Not that pays badly. the bills? Volkov has to think about his family. He has to think about... He's hesitating. Oh, well, he's going to do it. Family first. Seen it before. That's right. Yes, but look at this. DiBiase is humiliating Volkov intentionally. A little clumsy, but he's getting there. Wait a minute. What's? Well, they look good. Now, now, now turn around. Let's 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 see it. Come on, turn around. Property of the million dollar man. Insult the injury. Property of the million dollar man. <laughs> A lot of people that's right. have no alternative in life but uh, that's right. that's next. to work for someone that they don't like. However, you got an American flag on one side and an out-of-date Russian flag on the other side. It's like you don't know which way to go. Take that disgusting jacket off. I hope now. the money he's getting paid is worth this. I hope Turn it's it a bundle. Hey, 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 hey. He better Walk think off. about that, uh, those little snot-nosed kids of his and that family at home, hasn't he? What about your Russian parents still over there you're trying to support? You better think about them. Little leverage, Vince. No question about that. Volkov torn between what he really wants to do. No, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Feed your family, Volkov, or not. Oh, what a what a crossroad. Look at this. I'm getting chills. DiBiase humiliating Volkov just because he has the money. That's right. Take it off. He takes that jacket off for every man. Money lies on her dies. Look at the chest on this man. Stay in him. <laughs> Forget Former Olympic that. lifter. Forget about that disgusting hat. That's history. You're working for me now. And when you work for me, you do everything I say. Now, wear a tuxedo. You got to dress up. I got a tuxedo for you, Volkov. It's a tuxedo shirt. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, these guys are having a, a lot of fun out here at the expense of Nikolai this week. Put it on. Nikolai Volkov representing the country of Russia. In months, Volkov. As an Olympic lifter. Shoes. Years ago at age 18, he military pressed 400 pounds. Put it on. Those weights were easier than what he's doing now. I'll tell you that right now. This is the Put hard part. No way out situation for Nikolai. Volkov, one-time proud Olympic like lifter, much like Mark Henry of the United States of America today. Price. He's working for me because he's got no oh. other choice. Oh, Turn my. around. Obviously. <laughs> Turn Look around. at the big oh. sit sign. Look at the sit sign. Oh, million dollar man. How's he look? The How's height he look? of humiliation. Well, I'll tell you what. He still doesn't look like a million dollars. Disgusting no, with capital. Look like a million dollars. But at least he looks like he's got a little sense now. <laughs> Jerry, the King Lawler, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, blatantly humiliating.
This once proud WWF superstar, a one-time tag team champion, as he holds the rope for DiBiase. I'm sure he would like. To- Brett Favre should have said that uh, that Ted DiBiase Jr. was emulating him like that, and that's why he had to be involved in that whole uh, Ponzi scheme. <clears throat> oh, oh, that this was uh, his welfare <laughs> contributions to Nikolai Volkov and his family. <clears throat> <laughs> this was um, him dispensing tanf funds. Yeah. Um, okay. Just so, just for Nic- the record, Nicola. Well, go ahead. Were we going same direction here? Because I was about to do an I, age comparison. Yes. So Nikolai Volkov, at this point, at the time, and I think with hindsight, feels like basically the oldest wrestler who has ever been on anyone's active roster. Right. Just the yeah. feel of it. Because how yes. out of step he is. He's 46. He's several months older than AJ Styles is now. And that's the same exact comparison I was going to use. Yeah. Um, He's, what, yeah. 17 years younger than Sting is now? Yes. Um, hold on, 13 years younger better. than Billy Gunn? Um, he, Christian now is three years older than Nikolai was here. Yeah. <laughs> and age I mean, is about the same age, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, here we go. Brock's turning forty-six in July too. So there's Brock. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, it's the it's the the hair, and it's just the way we looked at people back then. Well, yeah. That he had that, this ridiculously terrible toupee that Stan Lane would even think it was bad. But it's just the fact that way we looked at people. <sighs> In that era of the mid nineties, anything from the eighties is just like old. But he also he doesn't come off as mid forties though. He doesn't read as his actual age. He reads as older than no, I know but I'm saying though. Anything from the eighties is, is was old and dated by Generation X. Yeah. And then which is funny, because Generation X as they grow grew older became the the nostalgia generation you know yep <laughs> funny how that all worked out <clears throat> all right let's hear wade's analysis of raw even when a raw is as mediocre as this was relative to most raws and other wrestling programs the wf has a way of making the show different enough that it's not totally boring it goes in earthquake speed it's less charisma than lord alfred hayes but the sumo match gimmick at least was novel DiBiase Nikolai's skit was so overplayed, it was actually effective and memorable. And Randy Savage is at times really bad on color. So this is nineteen ninety four. We have the scores of well, yeah, the match to go away. I think within a few weeks, actually. So match quality he gives it a six out of twenty. Achieved purpose of thirteen out of twenty. Angles six out of ten. Interviews three out of ten. Announcing six out of ten. Production values eight out of ten. Pacing, 6 out of 10. Instead of tuning next week, 7 out of 10 for a 55 out of 100. So at least over 50%. But it's a failing grade. Failing grade, yeah. yeah. Raw did a 3.5 rating. While All American did a 1.7. And Mania did a 0.9. Okay, so that's interesting to see because it also shows you how much the ratings go down as the year goes on. And then they kind of rebuild in the earlier part of 95. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as bad as it looks now, it gets worse as 94 goes along. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. 
right. So we got the Piper Lawler feud going on here, Billy King in the ring. So let's go to Rowdy Roddy Piper and uh, one of his uh, home videos he sends in. And let's oh, see what he's got to say about the, Is this the Roddy Piper's bottom line on All-American? <laughs> kind of, sort of, yes. Or is this from Raw? Uh, it's from TV. Okay. Oh, he's on the set of his latest movie. Tough and Deadly. Yes. Okay. Howdy, my name's Roddy Piper. This is my last day on the set of Tough and Deadly. New motion picture for Universal, but just before I leave, I got a couple more bottom lines I want to tell you. We talked about this before when we've done this era. It is it is also pretty amazing how younger Piper looks at this point in time. You know? Piper's the anti Nikolai. Because Piper's a you know, a product of the eighties. But unlike Nikolai Hogan, Savage, those people, he actually looked younger here. Well, he's he also in he fantastic was, shape at the time. Yeah, but he's got he's got this beard working. He just looks younger. Well, so he just turned 40, which, boy, does that show you how much different people age, or at least are perceived yeah. more so in his case, because he's he doesn't look old or come no. off necessarily even as old, but he's 40 and he's, what, six, seven months away from getting a hip replacement? Mm-hmm. So. Which means he's 43 when they have age in the cage. With him and Hogan. He's 43. And Hogan was what? Uh, Ooh, let's see. 44? Hogan. No, Hogan had yeah, just Hogan was turned 44. No, he had just turned. Oh, wait, sorry. Age I was looking at the wrong date. 97. Wait, his date of yeah, birth age is. Age in the cage is 97. So when was Hogan? August 11. No, oh, 53. So yeah, Hogan's 44 in Age in the Cage. Yeah. And Savage and, and Piper is uh, forty-three. Yeah, Age in the Cage is what they called that match for those two guys. And Brian Danielson right now is forty-one. He's about to turn forty-two. All right, back to the clip. Say that I was an old relic, like Jurassic Park. I was a guy. Lawler's older. Yeah, Lawler's older than Piper. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, how old's Lawler here exactly? Uh, Lawler was, uh, 46? 45? Uh, no. Still just 44. Okay. He's still older, so. Dinosaur. Yeah. If I'm a dinosaur, Jerry Liar, then I'm a Tyrannosaurus Rex. How'd you like to get stepped on by a dinosaur? Hey, Lawler. King Toady. This is a warning. Stay off the family. Quit knocking the kids. It's a kilt. Not a kilt. Bottom line. Earlier today, our cameras caught the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, showing up with his latest property. So there you go. <clears throat> I, I dubbed the bottom line stuff a Piper because it was different. You know, it, it had him in his own environment. He wasn't 
you know, Roddy Piper in front of a crowd. I mean, it was it was interesting and just, just like I said, just different. And it's post for yeah. Well, and the format can just have him spout off one-liners, too. He doesn't have to cut a coherent promo, even, necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Although he's still he's still a few years away from being completely incoherent, Piper. So, oh, there's well, that. Yeah. But also, uh, I'm shocked that, of all people, Scott Levy, producing All-American, would try to find an excuse to have a weekly Roddy Piper segment. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was announced on television they would be holding the banquet on June 9th in Baltimore to induct Freddie Blassie, Gorilla Monsoon, Chiche Strombo, Bobo Brazil, Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, Arnold Scullin, and James Dudley into the WF Hall of Fame. Although we all know why this hasn't happened, the very idea of a WF Hall of Fame without Bruno San Martino is ludicrous. Although from the list, it's a joke anyway. Rogers will be represented by his son, David, and former manager, Bobby Davis. Scullin was mainly a prelim wrestler, but has worked in the front office forever. Strongbow was number two babyface in the promotion during the early 70s by Pedro Morales. has been a road agent forever. Monsoon was a headliner because his size was unique at the time, although a poor worker. Brazil was a main eventer everywhere he went, while Blasting Rodgers are unquestionable choices. The joke is Dudley, who's being called a former manager extraordinaire on television. Dave's not sure Dudley ever managed, but if he did, it would be been so briefly it almost doesn't count. Dudley was actually a best man senior's limo driver. Okay, so James Dudley, let's get it out of the way. It did turn out that the manager thing was real, correct? I guess. Um, But it wasn't anything of note. Really, the thing that they should have just said, which is what they ended up touting more in later years and is absolutely true, is that he was the first black man to manage a major wrestling arena. Because Vince put him in charge of Turner Arena. Yeah. But yes, he's going in because he's seniors limit driver <clears throat> who the family loves. He's going in because he was a faithful employee of the company. Yes. This is a company hall of fame. This wasn't a wrestling hall of fame. Yes. So Dave you know, need to take that in consideration. And it's not and it's not the Hall of Fame of Workers, which, you know, Dave's kinda of intimating about some of these people that are getting in there, like Strongbow in Brazil. But if you're gonna have a Wrestling Hall of Fame, no matter what. A lot of those guys are going to be in it, no matter yeah. what, because of how bigger stars they were in the business. Yeah. I mean, also, if they were doing this years later, they'd give them the Warrior Award or an equivalent instead of putting them in the Hall Yeah, of the at this point in time, they would. Yes, absolutely. Um, searching newspapers.com for James Dudley and Turner's Arena to see if there's anything. Uh... Okay, no, it's something about the Reverend James Dudley, who's definitely someone else. Um, yes. Okay, wait, there's something in the Black Dispatch. Oh, no, wait, that's Oklahoma City. That's not D.C. Um, but he did box, too, didn't he, Dudley? He did something. Uh, James Dudley is referred to as an article as the manager of the gym where one of the boxers trains in this article about Vince McMahon's boxing matches at Turner's Arena. I mean, he had a role beyond being Senior's limo driver, though, is the point. Yes. Is that why he's going in, though? Yes. It's because he's the driver and this beloved loyal employee. Mm Mm-hmm. And, I mean, as for the rest, I mean, Arnold Skolin, maybe in the WWF, he was mainly a prelim guy, but he was a bigger name 
elsewhere. You know, he was. But he's also going in for his loyal employee status as well. Yeah, I mean, would he go in a general pro wrestling all thing? No, but Dave is also drastically underselling how big of a star he was, or he doesn't know at the time that you know Arnold Scullin was a member of the Buddy Buddy Rogers clique. You know, when Buddy Rogers would get to go somewhere and be the top star in a territory and kind of also be the booker, he brought in, okay, who was it? Arnold Scullin, Billy Darnell, um, why well, I forget his name all of a sudden, the guy who moved to Hawaii that ended up having the original WWF belt, uh, why well, I'm forgetting his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, but he had this clique of like half a dozen guys and Scullin was part of it because they were the guys he knew he could trust and you know, to draw money with. Um, and then as far as the rest, I think it's pretty straightforward as far as he's mentioned here. Yeah. All right. Uh, Moe's injury, quote-unquote, at the hands of Owen Hart was a way to break up the team and let Mabel go single. Sort of. Yeah, they bring him back, though, which I just watched uh, episode USWA, which I put on YouTube, in March 1996 episode with Sid on commentary. And Mo cuts two really good promos on that show. He was a really good talker. And but they never utilized him in that role. They always had Oscar, you know, when they're baby faces, wrap him to the ring or whatever. I mean, and then we turn heel Mo. He did some of the talking in the heel run. Not much. But he was great in the Memphis stuff. The guy could talk. And both of them could actually talk pretty well. Well, they could, but yeah. All right, now we got a lot of torch stuff here. Well, not a lot, but four, four hits in a row. Where Shawn Michaels missing the last TV tapings in the Japan tour. It looks like he's once again out of the WF. Oh, no details were available at the press time. He's Shawn Michaels. He's doing Shawn Michaels things. So, uh, when Mr. Mr. Purvis won the mini wrestler, was said to be leery of being in the WF when the high-profile steroid trial begins in July. And I want to be soiled by what is likely to be a lot of unfavorable press coverage. Interesting. Because he's done WrestleMania, but then he goes away. Vince had already been indicted. I don't know. Well, and at the time of Mania, the trial, (coughs) excuse me, was thought to be sooner than it actually was because it got delayed for May. That's weird. I don't know if I buy that explanation entirely. Well, it's Wade. So it's Mr. Perfect. So he's got a Minnesota pipeline here, Big. Yeah, I guess so. Wrestlers used to jump for WCWF, even if it meant giving up guaranteed money simply for the prestige of being part of WF. Now, with decreased money and fear of being part of a scandal, that element of being WF has significantly decreased. Makes sense. And that makes sense as the year goes along with the roster, too. But also, like, you don't really... Unless you're in a top spot, you really don't have the promise of great money at all at this point. No. Jacques Rougeau's finished dates May 25th. Money and desire for time off are key reasons for his departure. So there's that. Mark, back to Dave. Bob Holly, Sparky Plug, is taking this gimmick seriously. He's been on the track four times this year at Mobile International Speedway when he's not wrestling. And has been black flagged, which means disqualification, four times. On May 14th, he was black flagged for jumping a starting gun, drove around the track and tried to climb the fence to attack the flag man. Ah. Well, it's not taking the gimmick seriously because A, he's a babyface, but B, like, the reason he got the gimmick is because he was already doing this in his spare time. Yeah, but you're right. He's a babyface, but he's trying to attack the flag, man. Well, come on, Bob. It's a word, brother. 
<laughs> Back to the tour. Still referring to add the May 15th New York Times business section advertising there. Looking for new producers, associate producers, and technical staff. Earn top pay and great benefits in a creative and team-oriented environment, said the ad. The ad is several columns wide and 10 inches high with a picture of Yokozuna standing on the television. Hmm. Top pay. Yeah. A cre- in a creative and team-oriented environment. Also, did they place this kind of ad in something like the New York Times business section before? Or are they already planting the seeds for kind of the rebuilding the Linda side of the company after the trial? That's kind of what I'm thinking this is. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like to me, too. So are, uh, is Lisa Wolf reading this ad? Ausperti Ars. Uh, <laughs> the Ars? If that is his real name. <laughs> Possibly. I'm trying to see if I can find the ad on ProQuest. That's one of the nice things about ProQuest is that it has, uh, you know, the full paper a lot of the time for the Times and Washington Post and stuff, although the ProQuest appears to be having some issues right now. Oh, there we go. Um, okay, I found the same ad, but in broadcasting cable. And okay. actually, now that I see it, I think my dad brought this home at the time because I remember seeing it. Yeah, it says, we're big on TV, and then has the picture of Yokozuna on top of TV Wanted top-notch professionals. We're growing, expanding, and looking for top-notch producers, associate producers, and technical staff for our global television production facility. Uh, earn top pay and great benefits in a creative and team-oriented environment. If you're the best at what you do, please forward resume to TVV Professionals, blah, 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 Stanford, Connecticut. Hmm. Well, there you go. They're trying to find some help. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah. No, that's all. Just... Okay. And to close out, Brian Lee was told not to go into the sun and not cut his hair. In addition to tattoos on his arm and a similar hairstyle, who's becoming in as something like an Undertaker evil twin. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. This reminds me of something, though, from earlier. Now I remember what I was going to bring up that I forgot about. Okay, to a point I get bringing Undertaker in for Japan, despite the storyline. Guam and Hawaii are watching the TV. Yeah. What are they supposed to think of The Undertaker being there? He just came to see them, I guess. Okay. As for Brian They're Lee... Special. I feel like there's a way you could have pulled this storyline off better. I'm just not sure what it was. There was no way. Of somebody else in the gimmick. Kane, if if Kane would have been there at the time, he would have yeah. been better off. Would he have been able to pull off you the need, look, though? Well, you needed somebody that was going to be Undertaker size, and Brian Lee was short an Undertaker. And you, well, also you probably needed someone a little more athletic to pull off the Undertaker spots too. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. So the tattoos, though, he got were fake, though, right? Uh, I don't think so. Did he have those on in Smokey and stuff when he was during that run? Um, he did when she got them, yeah. Hmm. I don't think he had them later, though, did he? Um, I think so. I'd have to check. Oh, that's commitment, I guess. Yeah. I wonder if he was told they were gonna. The, you know, the, I wonder if the if that's the case. I wonder if that's also where the whole story of oh, they're gonna be a tag team after the storyline's over comes from. 
Because would he really yeah. get the tattoos if he didn't think there was a long-term plan? Probably not. See, also, uh, hi, Chief Afi. Yep. From last week's show. Mm-hmm. But that's even more, you know, well, complex. Yes. Cause... <laughs> yeah, it's the high chief tattoos filling in the whole legs and stuff. Yeah. All right, let's go to the land of the rising sun now. Japan, all Japan Pro Wrestling, where the heavenly bodies are getting strong reviews so far, and they're unbeaten in many mid-card matches, including the match on May 15th, where they face the original Fantastics, Tommy and Bobby. Now, we have results here uh, from a couple of shows. May 13th was the opening day of the tour at Cork and Hall, French 2100 fans. We have Bobby Fulton over Masao Inoue, Yoshinara Gawa over Tommy Rogers, Johnny Ace over Shiyoshi Kikuchi, Mitchell Momoda, Rush Kimura, and Jaya Baba went to a 30-minute draw with Mighty Inoue, Ruka Agen, and Masafuchi. Takamura and Stan Hansen beat Kamala 2 and Abdul the Butcher. Toshikawa and Kiritawe beat Timon Honda and Kenta Kabashi. Dr. Jeff Steve Williams and the Heavenly Bodies beat Satoru Sako, Junakiyama, and Ms. Harmasawa in the main event. This was by his debut in All Japan, and they were brought in via Dorian Fulton Jr.'s recommendation, which he would have been around in the Smoky Mountain, so there's that. And we have one more card, uh, Hamamatsu for a 3100. We have Shiyoshi Kikuchi of Masao Inoue, Yoshinarigawa of Satoru Sako, Johnny Ace over Kamala 2. Baba, Rusher, Momoda over Egan Fuchi and Mani Inoue in 23 minutes. Abdul the Butcher over Timon Honda. Dr. Def and the Fantastics over Stan Hansen and the Heavenly Bodies. That is a match. And uh, Masawa, Kabashi, Nakayama over Kawada, Tawe, and Nomori in 25-49. So there you go. Interesting looking matches on the, this tour here. Yeah, Bodies not around for long, though, because they're about to go full-time to the WWF. <clears throat> yeah. And one thing I wonder about this, I'm sure the change in name and gimmick helped, but without Dory's recommendation, do the bodies get this spot with Del Rey having, having recently been in wing? Does he still have the indie stench on him that was an issue at the time, otherwise? I mean, it's possible. Had Dr. Tom been it's back to Japan since his New Japan tours? Uh, I don't think so. I think this is his first one. So Now, I'd love to know more about this if Dr. Tom's talked about it. I'm sure Bo would know once he hears this. But, like, if on the bodies, especially since it's 94, isn't All Japan is your man living and it keeping you fresh in Smoky Mountain between tours, isn't that the better choice in mid-94 than going to the WWF? Probably not, because they're at home all the time. Mm. And some people may want to be home all the time. You know? Well, no, of course. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if that's not an issue. If, if, if they're not people who would have an issue for being in Japan for weeks at a time. I don't yes, think thing. WWF's as good a cho- nearly as good a choice at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm sure that's probably what it is. And WF at this time is running shows, you know, the eastern side of the, the country way more than they had run in a long time, too. True. So you're not going a whole whole lot out west, you know, so. 
On the other hand, they're basically headlining B shows against the Smoking Guns. Or at least, I mean, maybe not even headlining in some cases. So, like, it's not like they're getting a ton of money, given what they're, especially given what they're drawing at the time. Yeah, I mean, but we'd have to ask Dr. Tom and see, you know, what he says. All right, Anaheim Maguchi retired from New Japan four years ago, which was his second retirement. At a press conference on May 13th, and announced he was returning to wrestling on May 22nd for war. And on June 1st, would headline a war show in Matsumoto team with Tenuganichiro and Koji Shinriki, and Super Strong Machine, Asurahara, and Arashi. Hamaguchi, who turns 47 this summer, was top star of the old IWE during the late 70s, and garnered his biggest national fame in the early 80s with Riki Choshu as his record tap partner in each band. He was pushed to mid-card level when he joined Choshu and Chumbo from All Japan in late 84. When Choshu jumped back in 87, Hamaguchi retired from wrestling and became a bodybuilder, winning the over 40 Mr. Tokyo and placing in the over 40 Miss Japan before returning to wrestling in New Japan and for a few years feeding with Choshu. Hamaguchi was a great underrated worker prior to his first retirement, but was obviously washed up in his comeback. However, war is now a haven for the past 40 guys who are fast at primes. For the past few years, Hamaguchi has worked as a bodybuilding trainer for several wrestlers from different organizations, including Takao Mori and Shitoshi Kojima. Michoshi Ohara, a wrestler protege, wrestles total Hamaguchi style, and Shinjiro Otani. Hamaguchi now sports a Road Warrior Hawk style haircut. And he wasn't just their bodybuilding trainer, he was their wrestling trainer. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. I mean, did all those guys start with him at his dojo, or... Because I thought Otani, at least, was a New Japan dojo guy first. He was. No, Matt, I mean, he... <clears throat> he started them off, and then they went to the, their respective dojos. So what was his setup like, though? It wasn't a commercial wrestling school. It was the... It was an independent wrestling school. But, I mean, was it a go-and-pay $3,500 wrestling school, or was it something else? Well, I mean, <laughs> he was, he's been doing it for, forever now, because he's also other notable guys that he's trained. Shingo Takagi, Tetsuya Naito, Bushi. Those are his latest protégés. Yeah. So. And there is... I don't even know what you'd call it. There is something, like, you can tell in the style. I don't know if it's a footwork or whatever with his guys that makes them kind of distinct from the others. I mean, look at the list of people he's trained. I mean, they're all a hell of a talents. I mean, who would you say would be the one that has the most animal Hamagachi... Hamagachi? Animal Hamaguchi uh, style? Oh, I feel like it's probably Shingo, right? Kojima. I can see both. I mean, it you know certainly explains one of the reasons they work so well together when they had that little singles program a couple of years ago. Yes, Kojima. Yeah, I'm pulling up his entourage page on Wrestling Data to see uh, who some of his later day proteges are. Seeing a lot of indie names. Oh, Evil is a Hamaguchi guy. Yeah, he's an uncle. Yoshihashi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kai. Is a Hamaguchi guy. Mm-hmm. Anyone else of note? Uh, Garuda, Yoshihita Sasaki. Milano Collection AT would have been post Dragon System, right? Uh, probably. Dio Qualt was a Hamaguchi guy? Hanma was a Hamaguchi yep. guy? 
Magnum Tokyo. A lot of them, man. Nani Takahashi. <laughs> well, he didn't just train men. Kudo Taka, uh, Kness, Kentaro Kanemura. Huh. A lot of these I wouldn't have guessed, but with also with a lot of me here, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Um, FMW. FMW's first show of its new tour on May 15th outdoors in Kofu was canceled due to a major rainstorm, so, which meant the tour debuted the next night in Ichinomiya Municipal Industrial Gym on May 16th for 1463, where we have uh, Koji Nakagawa and Tetsuya Kuroto being Masato Tanaka and Gosaku Goshikawara, Mayumi Shimizu over uh, Yukari Yoshikura, Gosaku Goshikawara over Mr. Chen, Choden Senshi Battle Ranger Z over Damian 666. Combat Toyota, Crushmeo Damari, Sharshashuya, and Sapori Mike over Megumi Kudo, Yuki Nabano, Bandish Takamura, and Keiko Iwami. Gladiator, Mike Awesome over Hideki Osaka. Big Titan, Rick Bogner, Judge Dredd, and Ricky Fuji over Tarzan Goto, Mr. Matsunaga, Mr. Danger, and Mr. Kanosuke, and Mr. Pogo, Hiskatsuoya, and Gross Rumi over Asushunita, Sambo Saku, and Kastoshi Niyama. Oh, gee, I wonder who got Judge Dredd booked here. Well, Sabu's on the tour. He's not on the tour, but I'm sure he's who got him booked. <clears throat> well, yeah, but he's not here, though. He's in the U.S. We'll talk about him in a minute, but uh, in a little bit. But, uh, yeah, so Judge Dredd's there without Sabu. Well, maybe the Sheik got him booked, too. You got to mm-hmm. think about that. But no, well, RVD's in all Japan, I guess, <clears throat> and uh, I guess his Dango win retired at the time. RVD, I don't know if he's on trend yet. When does he start there? I mean, is there 95? Well, that's for sure. I'm trying to think, like, because he's not oh. really on the map that much in 94. Uh, I'm looking he's now. working Peach State Wrestling. I know. Uh, okay, he started in 93, actually, with All Japan. February tour. Do you have any Well, he was Robbie V then. Uh, no, he's yeah. Rob Van Dam. Well, maybe there. Yeah. But... Well, remember, yeah, he was Rob Van Dam everywhere else before he went to WCW. He's Robbie V because they didn't want to call him Van Dam. Um, yeah. And then he's gone for a year <clears throat> back in February 94. And then he's gone for a year again, and he becomes a regular in 95. That's what I'm saying. He's not regular. He's on random tours. Yeah. All right, let's go to IWA Japan now. IWA President Vince Quinones had a press conference on May the 12th announcing he has signed the talent training agreement and will promote shows with AAA in conjunction with his organization in Japan. AAA has gotten tremendous coverage in Japanese magazines since January pushed as the hottest new promotion. Quinones' group largely consists of wrestlers that formerly wrote for the now defunct wing and that's the Mysterioso will be the first AAA wrestler starting on May 21st at the IWA debut show in Yokosuka. Is staying until the five show tour ends on May 26. Complete lineup for the debut show is Nobutaka Arai against Crash the Terminator. He Morris. Shoji Nakamaki and Dick Murdoch against the Headhunters. Yuki Kanamura over the Winger. El Tejano and Mysterioso against Silver King and Masayoshi Motegi. Oriental against Miguel Perez Jr. And Hiroshi Ono against Johnny Gomez. Kenyon has announced his second tour from June 17th, 23rd, with Murdoch, Headhunters, Jason the Terrible, and Perez. And his group will run his first major show in November in Yokohama, bringing in 16 wrestlers. Triple A. <clears throat> so, really, Triple A hooks up with New Japan. Yes. 
and not able. So this doesn't really happen. Not really, no. I mean, IWA happens, of course, and you know it gets big, but mm. not with AAA's help, so to speak. No, I mean, does Mysterioso <laughs> at least show up? Or he probably did, but it's interesting to know that they want to do this big November thing with these guys, and then that's when they tour New Japan is in November. Yes. <laughs> Funny how that works out. Mm-hmm. All right, Michinoku Pro, they're on a show in Goshigawara, not Gosaku, on May 13th. Terry Boy, Shiru, and Takamichinoku over Masanya Kusuji, Nerushikawa, and Hanzo Nakajima. Kendo and Sato, all caps, over Super Delphin and Grand Naniwa. And then Grace Sasuke retained the FNW Independent World Junior title over Rams. That would be the guy in the LA Rams outfit. Yes, Rams. Was he Ram or Rams? Rams. Okay. One of the many, surprisingly, uh, football player gimmicks in Mexico mm-hmm. over time. Because there was, uh, I mean, Trans- Colorado. Yeah. Um, Hero. Quarterback. Quarterback, naturally. Oh, and uh, Rams was uh, Rook and Bole. Yeah. Now, they ran a show in Fukui-san on May 16th. Fukui-san, uh, we have... Well, it's Fukui, not Fukui-san. No, but anyway. No, but still, for your Iron Chef fans. Aneji Han over Kanzan in your opener. Hodi Min over Kezuko Masasaki. Ryo Miyaki over Han. Abal Shigawara over Mean. So Han and Mean doing double duty. Then we have Paul Shigawara over Yomiyaki. Then Kishu Kamabata and Kendo Nagasaki beat John Hawk and Dusty Wolves. Well, I see someone got a Vietnamese money mark. <laughs> and that's what it feels like, doesn't it? Yeah, with John Hawk, John Brashaw Layfield on the show as well. Yes, here in the Network of Wrestling. Because uh, Kendo Nagasaki, Kazuo Sakurada is the guy booking the foreign talent and... If he's not still living in Dallas, it's a, it's where he has the most connections. Yes. What a weird promotion. Yeah, because they started as like this <laughs> SWS splinter group that uh, Tanaka was still funding just because they were mad at Tenru or something. And that whole thing confuses me because I think then he was kind of funding it still later, but I'm never clear on if he was funding war at first. I don't know. Hard to say. Why is it that the one time a legitimate businessman uh, gets in wrestling in Japan as a backer, it's the hardest to figure out? I don't know. That's interesting. Because the illegitimate businessmen can do whatever they want. Yeah. Joshi time. It's got all Japan women. They show Minakamo on May 11th. We have Chikaku Shiratori over Kimi Kamekawa. Chaprito Sari over Yetamata. Mima Shimoda over Saki Hashikawa. Bull Nakano Kara Ito over Suzuka Manami and Yumiko Hota. Toshio Yamada over Etsuko Mita. And Manami Toyota and Takako Inoue over Kukuminto, Ashikong, and Tomoko Watanabe. Fun looking show. JWP ran Corken Hall on May 14th for 2010 fans. Kaban Bolshoi over Hiromi Yagi. Mayumi Ozaki over Hiromi Shugo. Kiri Suzuki over Fusai Onochi. Darabai Kesai. 
Joe Masami over Hikaru Fukuoka and Kenny Okutsu in the main event, which almost went 30 minutes. Another fun-looking show, especially the main event. And then LFPW, they're in Soko May 14th from 1745. Leo Kitamura over Michiko Omakai. Jinu Yukari over Mizuki Endo. Utaka Hozumi and Nori Tateno over Michiko Nakashima and Yashikura and I by disqualification. Igo Sawai over Karamadori. Miki Honda and Harley Saito over Shinobu Kandori and Rumi Kazama. And Shinobu Kandori and Rumi Kazama over Miki Honda and Harley Saito. <laughs> so there you go. So good then to do it twice, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway. I'm trying to adjust your headset, I take it. I had my ear was itching. Oh, okay. So I had, to, I had to move the headset so I scratched my ear. Well, you have to move the mic a little more now, because now your voice sounds a little weird. <laughs> well, we're about to go to halftime anyway. Well, now it sounds better. <clears throat> so, on that note, after some great 1993 commercials, we're about to pivot to halftime. So we'll uh, talk about uh, the Patreon there. We'll uh, hit the plugs. And then we'll come back where we have Triple Mania, one of the Mania shows in Mexico featuring a wild Jake the Snake Roberts story and uh, a lot more. So, um, yeah, all that more after the break. citizens. Aerosmith's world tour is rampaging back towards North America and its final destination, an island of sun-baked, cocoa-buttered, scantily-clad tropical mayhem. Enter MTV's Aerosmith on Monster Island Contest, and you can come too. You become one of a dozen lucky winners. You travel to Monster Island. You hang with Aerosmith at their private island party. You may never recover. To enter, watch MTV weekdays for five specially marked Aerosmith videos. Write their names on a postcard along with your name, address, age, and phone number, and send it to... MTV's Aerosmith on Monster Island Contest, P.O. Box 1211, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10101. Brought to you by Pepsi and Butterfinger. Open Sesame. <laughs> hey, Joe, we're down to the last Butterfinger. <laughs> the last Butterfinger! <laughs> Crispity, crunchity, peanut buttery burst in every bite of Butterfinger. Nobody better lay a finger on my Butterfinger. Before Nintendo came out with Super Metroid, we wanted to make sure it was the most intense Metroid battle ever. So we thought we'd see how Killer here would fare against it. Ready, boy? That's 24 megs worth of weapons, worlds, and weirdos old Killer's up against. Nintendo's biggest game ever. It is a big boy. He can handle it. Well, let's see how he did. Ship it! Super Metroid, only on the Super NES. Ladies and gentlemen, they're back. Hello. $20 million is lost in the desert. I want that soul! And now, so are they. Which way is north? 
up. Castle Rock Entertainment is proud to present Billy Crystal, Daniel Stern, John Lovitz, and Jack Powers. Ah, you thought I was dead, didn't you? City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold. Rated PG-13 at theaters June 10th. We playmates have the secret to happiness. Call this number right now, and the world's most beautiful women are yours in 12 great issues of Playboy. All mine? Order now, and we'll also send you our exciting Private Pleasures video absolutely free. Not available anywhere else. Collect this exclusive video of your favorite playmate. So call now for Playboy and your free video. And discover our secret, because we want to make you happy. <laughs> Okay, so I tend to put things off. For me, the time just has to be right. Like, I meet this amazing girl, and she's coming over tonight. <laughs> it, it's like with Rogaine. I've been meaning to check it out. This is important to me. I've thought about calling lots of times. You know when I called? Today. This was my time. It could be your time, too. To find out more about Rogaine with Minoxidil, call this 800 number now. You'll get a free information kit filled with facts to help answer your questions about Rogaine. And since you need a prescription to get Rogaine, you'll also get a list of local doctors experienced in this kind of treatment and a certificate worth $10 as an incentive to go. So call today. Hi. Hi. Nice place. Call now, 1-800-368-5599, for a free information kit. Hi, I'm Ed. I'm Chad Gracie. We are Half of Live, and you're watching 120 Minutes on MTV. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed those great 1994 commercials as we're here to the halftime set of the show. We'll begin to my Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. <clears throat> And we haven't started recording yet, but we will be recording very, very soon. Part one of our two-part series on Andrew McManus's WWA, where we'll start out with uh, I-Generation Wrestling, the, the precursor to WWA, the Australia Tours, and then uh, Andrew getting going with WWA, running the shows there in Australia, running the pay-per-view in America, and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, a lot going on. Especially the newsletters, as uh, some familiar newsletter favorites are involved. So, of course, they're going to be spilling the tea, and it's going to make up for a lot of show. So, uh, yeah, it should be very interesting. Uh, it should look back at a promotion that doesn't get talked about much these days. But a lot was going on there. A lot of big talent worth those shows. So, definitely want to be interested in listening to that. And you can for $5 a month. I thought I was going to get you access to all the new shows that we'll be doing, the old shows that we've done in our six-plus years at the Patreon. Almost seven. We're getting close. So there's a ton of audio content there for that $5 that uh, you put down. So well worth your money, which is just the normal package that people buy. It's the basic, basically, where you get your audio access. And if you want to go annual, at that that's $50.40, 50 $50.40. 16% off. And you can get that on all the tiers at each value. You get 16% off, but that's the $5 tier. Now, you can also get the dollar tier, which gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. $25 allows you to send for a segment of this show. Well, no, $25 allows you to pick a week for the show, excuse me. 
which we'll have one of those next week. So uh, put $25 down. You get the opportunity to pick a show. Now, probably best to have two shows on your mind, at least because um, the show that you may want to do may be something that we've already done, or it could be something that uh, somebody else has picked on the calendar. So if you have any questions, get with me or Bix, and uh, we'll try to uh, get your questions answered. That way we can get your show on the air. Now, we have a 30-day rule where you need to get that information in before 30 days if you can of uh, the show that you want us to do. So when we have it set up on the calendar and try to work it around the other shows that we may have in mind. So do that, and you'll be good to go. Then remember, 10-year rules in effect. Wednesday, Tuesday on the timeline. All that good stuff. Follow the protocol on the Patreon website, and uh, we'll be able to get your show on the air. $50, I just sit it for a segment of the show, if you choose, and 100 for the whole show, if you choose. That's at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, big. so let that this week is our new and or returning patrons. Just a couple. We've got Lee Malone. Thanks, Lee. And Steven Rudiger. Thanks, Steven. We had a lot last week, so makes sense. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. So we think all you new patrons, all you old patrons, patrons that have been there from the beginning, come along the way, left, came back, whatever. We thank everybody for uh, your support at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Biggs. Uh, Fight TV and IWTV, are, they're our streaming friends. So what's going on in their universe this week? All right, IWTV has got a few things coming up on the live streams. Let's see what we've got here. Um, Chicago Style Wrestling has a show on this coming Friday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Chicago Style Wrestling? That's the name of the promotion? Yes. Yes. I, yeah, I've already seen people make the jokes recently of, like, it's more like a casserole than regular style wrestling. Yeah, you go. there you go. <laughs> so, thank you for doing that where I wouldn't have joined in. Because <laughs> I was about to. But now I don't have to. I could tell that was the joke you were going to make, yes. I was going to go in that vein, but you've already uh, took care of that, so good. Thank you. I prefer my Sicilian wrestling to my Chicago-style wrestling. What about Detroit-style wrestling? I don't know if I've ever had Detroit-style. You never had Detroit deep dish pizza? What's it? Well, wait, did you, oh, Detroit is where it's basically like Sicilian, but it's a circle, right? No, um, the, like Detroit deep dish, um, it's like, you know, you can get, it's kind of more like square. So what's the difference between square Detroit form. and Sicilian? Uh, hold on, let me. Uh, I'll send you what a Detroit deep dish pe- looks like, and that way you can go from there. Okay. Well, anyway, that this show includes uh, Alexander Hammerstone versus Vic Capri, uh, Sierra defending their women's title against Shaza McKenzie, and more. At Chicago style wrestling. Oh, Steve Vaz in action because of course he is. Okay, so this is yeah, that's Sicilian. I don't understand what the difference is. Well, we always call it Detroit. Here. Well, actually, it looks less saucy than Sicilian. Yeah. Yeah, Sicilian. I'm looking at Sicilian. Yeah, I've had Sicilian before. It, it, uh, but I've had it in a different name, in a way. But yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of similar, in a way. But yeah. 
It seems like they're both the squarish deep dish, but Sicilian has more sauce and Detroit has less sauce. In Detroit, they put the cheese in the, uh, you know, that cheese that's in the pan that's that gets on there, too, on the crust. Really oh, good. Oh, okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. As I go back to the right tab here, uh, Limitless Wrestling has a show on Saturday at 7.30 Eastern that includes... Uh, so is his name just Beef or Big Beef now? Is he not Gnarls Garvin at all anymore? I think he's just Beef. Okay, he's defending the Limitless title against Timothy Thatcher. Uh, SCI uh, entrant Timothy Thatcher, we should say. And Beef, that's his history in the uh, SCI universe. Yes. Uh, Ava Everett's defending the WX. Oh, say that again? That's where he, that's where he made his name. Yeah. So I was all, there for that experience. Yes, uh, Ava Everett defends the WXW, yes, the German WXW women's title against Killer Kelly, which I believe is the first time that title's ever been defended in the States. Uh, MSP in action against Above the Rest. Uh, anyone else that people might recognize if they're not watching all these shows? You know, other New England favorites on the show, so people might want to check that out. Uh, H2O has a show. On Saturday as well at 8 Eastern, so lots of streams going on, including uh, Manders defending the H2O title against Sawyer Wreck in a cage match, uh, Brandon Kirk defending the Danny Havoc hardcore title against Bam Sullivan, uh, Matt Tremont in a Caribbean barbed wire match against Declan Grant. It does not say it's for the IWTV title, so I guess it's not. And more. And then... Northern Federation of Wrestling uh, has a show Sunday at 2 Eastern. I believe that's at the Mecca in Ridgefield Park. Yes, it is. The uh, beautiful Phil Sheridan building. Northern Wrestling Federation. No, it's the Northern Federation of Wrestling. Uh I get some Uh of these confused, but they've got uh, Akira defending their title in the main event against uh, Brett Ryan Goslin, which is a name I feel like I keep hearing a lot, but I've not seen wrestle yet. And then uh, our friends at Bloodstorm, excuse me, Bloodstorm Pro, have a show on Sunday at 4 Eastern, I presume from the H2O Wrestling Center, with a main event of The Carver versus Matt Tremont. Fans bring the weapons, among other... uh, Stuff mixed on the undercard with a mix of Northeast and Deathmatch and not Deathmatch talent. So those are your streams this week. Nothing like super big name, but some interesting looking stuff, particularly, I think, from Limitless. So if you're not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD at checkout at independentwrestling.tv when you sign up, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Now, meanwhile, over on Fight TV, uh, last week, between their schedule on the site being looking a little weird and also uh, just for trying to find something we could talk about, we talked about the AIW show that's going to be this Friday at 7.30 Eastern uh, already. So just everyone check that out. You know, we don't need to go into it again because we talked about that in some detail last week with their Cybernetico de Mayo show. Uh, what else do we have? House of Glory has a show 
main evented by Matt Cardona versus Jacob Fatu. That's a match. Yeah. That could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then GCW has two shows. They have first, they have, this is Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern. This is the show in Detroit. Uh, what's the name of this one? This is The Way I Am, which includes uh, Rini Yamashita defending the ultraviolet title against Jimmy Lloyd. Uh, three-way tag title match, East-West Can- excuse me, East-West Express of uh, Nick Wayne and Jordan Oliver defending the tag titles against the Motor Shooting Machine Guns and Los Macizos. Joey Janela versus Ninja Mac. Maki Ito versus Shaza McKenzie. Uh, Effie versus Blake Christian and more, including Mufisto in action. So that's in Detroit. And then Sunday at 5 Eastern, I Can't Save You from Columbus, Ohio, for a show that includes Matt Cardona versus Cole Radrick, Masha Slamovich defending the GCW title against Vance Warner, Blake Christian versus Trey Miguel, Alex Shelley versus Alec Price. That's a hell of a match on paper. I think I think they had a match, I forget which promotion it was, I think they had a match during the rest of old New Year's weekend in Worcester, and I remember that being really, really good. It was, I think it might have been for Blitzkrieg Pro, or it was them, or one of the other non-beyond, non-limitless New England indies, I think. Uh, So they got a match, Gringo Loco versus Ninja Mac, Makito versus Steph DeLander, East West Express versus Joe Janela, Sawyer Wreck, and more. So that's coming up on Fight Plus as well. And if you have not already subscribed to Fight Plus or you're going to be ordering any of their iPay-per-views, go to tinyurl.com slash btsfight. That's B-T-S-F-I-T-E. And that's our referral thing for them. So tinyurl.com slash btsfite for that. And I, I did go to the GCW show as we were recording this last night in Brooklyn and Really good show. Um, people who have not checked it out yet, I would say it's definitely well worth watching. Uh, well paced despite no inter- intermission, but uh, if you're looking for a few f- highlights to watch, I would say the main event of Zack Sabre Jr. and Tony Deppin for sure. Uh, Manders taking on Alice Coughlin and what's probably Manders' best GCW match to date. Uh, Masha Slamovich, Alec Price for the title. There's more. There was nothing really bad on the show, but uh, I would say those are probably the three standout matches. So if people check that out. Nice new venue, too, that they have not been at before. Was it air-conditioned for you, Vicks? Uh, not for me, but it was, yes, at the uh, Roulette okay. Intermediate. All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, they had all the uh, accoutrements for you to uh, attend that show and have a good time. <laughs> it was, I mean... At least in bigger markets, I mean, GCW tends not to run near, like, unair-conditioned indie venues. I stress in bigger markets, because I know that can or that can change some places. Uh, but it was nice. It was like a, I would say, like a cross between, like, an Elks Lodge-type venue, like the old Elks Lodge, and something, you know, like, you're kind of, like, newer, like, New York-y event spaces like Melrose Ballroom. So, it was nice. But anyway, that's it for the streaming friends. Well, sort of. Hypothetically, if there was something that one of our streaming friends only gave access to to people in certain countries, dot, 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 
Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data many times even selling it. The Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic to one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. With servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over that, shall we? We offer you three different packages. We have your regular monthly package at $11.95 a month. We have a yearly package of $3.33 a month for $39.95 a year. Or you get the best package, three years plus four free months, $1.98 a month, $79 over three years, 83% off. What a bargain. Why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. And if you get it right now, you can take advantage of Private Internet's 30-day risk-free challenge. Try it 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. How do you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we have a Patreon-requested show, and we're going back to the year 2000. Thanks to Michael Otts, who wants us to do that show. And uh, we're going to be talking about Judgment Day 2000, the Triple H Rock 60-Minute Iron Man match. We'll have that, plus all the other happenings in WF, Smat, Raw, SmackDown, all the other news and views. Then we got uh, we got a lot of ECW stuff. We got random stuff from the indie scene. Of course, we got International. And WCW, we got Ric Flair. Uh, Gene cleared the return to television after collapsing in a Thunder taping. And uh, we'll have Thunder and Raw and all that stuff. Uh, Pat, WCW, everybody's section, folks. So it should be a fun show next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Fix that, David Bix. And uh, Bix, what's going on in your world this week? Tony made me have to turn off, uh, excuse me, remove myself from a thread and mute it again. So thank you, Tony. Oh, you, he muted you? No, you didn't. No, I, I muted the thread and removed myself from apl- from being replied to in the thread. No, I missed all that. Oh, you didn't see all this? No. On Wednesday? I'm oh. glad I didn't. <laughs> so, I'm glad I didn't now. So after Tony's uh, announcement on Dynamite, where he, well, semi-announcement, where he teased the announcement of Collision for next week, um, he said something like, stay tuned next Wednesday on TNT. Which, in the context of how he said it, sounded like it was a live promo, and he said TNT instead of TPS. And then, of course, within like a minute, and I'm starting to think he has notifications on my tweets, which I'm not sure what to think of that, if that's the case, because it was very quick, especially since he's in the middle of running dynamite on the headsets. Uh, he replied, no, Bix, I, I meant to say TNT. So it looks like the announcement is coming uh, 
or at least whatever announcement is coming on TV after uh, Upfront is going to be on one of the NBA pregame shows or something. But yes, as usual, when Tony did, does that kind of thing, I had to just uh, do you mute this conversation and leave this conversation <laughs> on Twitter. Uh-huh. Okay. But, well. yeah. I mean, it looks like it's definitely happened that they're getting the other TV show and a lot of money for it, so... AEW's not going anywhere anytime soon. No, but... the I mean... There's been wild speculation on the type of money that was out there, but Brian Alvarez is basically saying now that what he's hearing is that uh, it's basically almost the same type of deal they got now, in a way. That it's the same you know, per viewer hour dollar, or however you call it. Yeah. Yeah. So, dollar, I mean, dollar you, per viewer they, hour. they didn't lose, yeah. and they're getting the show. So. Well, that's, it's basically the two. St- Conflicting stories going around are they're announcing a brand new deal that is the whole new deal, or they're just announcing collision and for now they're getting the same amount per hour for collision. Those are the two conflicting stories yeah. that have been reported. Um, but here's the thing though, like you fig you figure they're getting about fifty now. If you assume they're they just get just the same amount for adding collision, they'd be at a hundred million a year, a little more. So if you're assuming that they're going into a new deal and getting an increase, going to two hundred million a year is not that ridiculous at all. It's really not outlandish. Yeah. So I I think people are getting a little too spooked by hearing the billion dollar contract number, not <clears throat> realizing that a billion dollars over five years would not be outlandish at all. You yeah. know what I mean? So I mean, we've talked about it that enough in, before it was more confirmed, confirmed uh, in the last few weeks. But do I remember is there anything else going on has, that there's been this week that's worth talking about? Or well, we just finish this up and record talk about the Patreon show? Well, I well, one thing definitely yes. to talk about is um, the Dean podcast. Yeah, you know because I recorded that. <clears throat> As Dynamite was going on Wednesday night, so one reason why I never saw anything that you, you had going on. Yeah, I forgot but, um, when you were <laughs> But yeah, I did um, a special tribute to Dean Rasmussen podcast with the Phils, Phil Rippa and Phil Schneider. And uh, I thought it turned out really well. Got a lot of great uh, feedback from that. And um, definitely want everyone to listen to it if you haven't listened to it already. Need to listen to it uh, to get a glimpse at uh, how great Dean Rasmussen was as a man. Not to mention, you know, how great he was online and everything. And uh, yeah, it's not a long show, two hour show, a little less two hours, so easy listen. And we have uh, some great clips at the end. I definitely want to thank um, Hangman Tim Knoll for supplying that, that those clips for us to use of uh, Dean and his young son at the end. So, um, yeah, great stuff. And uh, definitely everybody check that out. And uh, send the show, archive.org, and search for com and read the, all the old reviews that's up there and read Dean's work. Although it might be coming to a book soon near you. But uh, everybody check that out. But, uh, yeah, our love letter to Dean, who we uh, miss dearly and we love. And, uh, yeah, everybody go check that out. But uh, other than that, 
I think we're through here, so let's get back to the rest of the show. Well, let's move on to Mexico now, and we start with Triple A. Dateline, Zapopan, Jalisco, Mexico. At 10.45 p.m. on May 15th, Jake Roberts is lying face first on the ground. He's only being choked out by a panic snake that was wrapped around his neck. Backstage, and attempt to revive him. Backstage hands pour a bottle of water all over him. It worked. The other wrestlers were waiting for water, of which there was none in the building to take showers. The showers never did work. They're about the only thing that night that didn't. About six hours and 15 minutes had passed as the show started, with a mariachi band playing, followed by a short concert featuring medium level female vocalists. By the end of the show, thousands of fans had been at the non air conditioned arena for nearly eight hours, some even longer. It's too bad that uh, the uh, Mexican version of Bix wasn't there to call the athletic commission about the non-air-conditioned building being there for eight hours, but that's another story. I didn't <laughs> Some even longer, understanding in long lines of 95-degree afternoon heat to buy tickets to the final pinfall in the main event. In the interim, they had seen not only a short concert, but also a beauty pageant. They had seen nearly four hours and 45 minutes of wrestling with no intermissions. They had seen four four-star matches, all completely different from one another. They had seen the best lighter weight wrestler in the world in the Zara getting outshined by a local copying its gimmick. They had seen one of the best heel personas ever being outshined by someone who's developed into the best all-around heel in the business. Ironically, the major performers in his native land wouldn't even consider him letting him out of the opening match. That is, if they would even consider offering him a job in the first place. They had seen a veteran second match wrestler in Japan become Ric Flair for one night. They had seen fireworks, smoke machine special effects. They see a classic wrestling match, a high spot spectacular, and a juice filled brawl. They see angles, turns, and challenges for future matches almost too numerous to remember. They have been a dead crowd from the start, dead tired from the heat. For more than six hours after the band had started to play, they were alive and on fire, almost giving credence to the idea that there's no such thing as a show that's too long. There's a show not good enough to last that long. Unlike Japan and the United States, in Mexico, there's little tradition or conception among fans to the idea of a major show. There's a little hype as well. On Triple local television shows, which aired late Saturday night on Sunday afternoon on two of the biggest stations in Guadalajara, there were no ads for the show and no lineups announced. <clears throat> the only mention that Triple was coming to their CD was during the body of the match commentary. There are a few posters around town. The fact is, they don't know how to hype a big show. They don't carefully plan out and build to a big show. But at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there are thousands of fans standing in line waiting for ticket office to open up. Why? Because they know how to create stars, and they do know how to put on a big show. AAA is larger than its best house show business in the world this year, but it has been able to duplicate its consistent sellouts when it comes to its Tripmania shows. On April 26th, the first of three event Tripmania 2 series failed to sell at Aguas Calientes, drawn and disappointing 9,500 fans in a 20,000 seat ballpark. Sunday, the second Tripmania failed to sell out the 14,500 seat Auditorio Benito Juarez in Zapopan, a suburb of Guadalajara, drawn about 11,200 fans. The failure to sell out was simple. Ticket prices. Work, Mexico's working class earns a tiny fraction of what the working class that supports the rest of the United States earns. Charging 30, 20, and 1350 U.S. equivalent for tickets makes a big difference when the head of the household may earn $80 a week if he's lucky. Well, the only empty seats were in the 1350 section. While well, the first Romanian show drew 50,000 fans in Mexico City, 
ringside that show was priced at the same as the cheapest seat in South Pond. Given the economic climate of the area, Johnny Gate that may have a first step under seventy five thousand is nothing to scoff at. <clears throat> the RO Triplemania in its second year is not to be as over in Mexico as his American counterparts. WrestleMania or a SummerSlam. There wasn't that excitement in the crowd that this show was going to be something special when the ring announcer opened the show. There wasn't a crowd explosion. But as an overall show, Tremania 2B was a better card than either WrestleMania or Spring Stampede. As compared with Aglas Calientes or WCW Chicago show, this show didn't have the overall balance because there were two matches that were nothing special. <clears throat> this didn't have the 11 ring introductions and the special effects of Aglas Calientes. In fact, maybe through the car, the like crowd heating two of the first three matches being lackluster made it seem this was going to be a long night, which it was, but in time only. Okay, so Dave is there and was also at Triple Mania 2A? Mm-hmm. I, I hate the way he writes in this era where, like, we're supposed to understand that he's there, but he never actually says it. Well, you know, he's there because look how, I mean, look how this is written. Right. Well, in the Dateline <clears throat> thing, and yeah, but it's just the way it's, it's the way it's written. Yeah, you know he's there. But um, yeah, I mean, the way they get, I mean, it's it's just the the, the way they promote shows. I mean, you look at uh, you know, I was told a story about the show I went to in uh, Atlanta. No uh, real newspaper advertisement. They basically advertise on the Mexican radio stations. And uh, drew, you know, pretty much uh, 7,000 fans to uh, the Gwinnett Arena. Was it that high? About 7,000, yeah. That was for the Santo Park show or the the previous show? That was the Santo Park show. Okay. Which they had the arena sectioned off so it was a full house sectioned off basically yeah i mean it just just yeah just very little advertisement injury that big of a house anyway so all right <clears throat> let's start with the show hero colorado and toreto the fantasma de la cooperada maripunta and ayido in 1323 when Hero and Colorado both pin Marabunta with Gibson leg locks on each leg. Hero and Colorado, who do a cock fighting gimmick, enter the ring holding two roosters. Aida dresses up as a gorilla. A lot of the brawling outside the ring for an opener. Hottest move was in Hero and Colorado, press slam their partner and flung him over the top rope where he hit Aida and Fantasma de la Cobrada with a plancha. Wrestling's better than average, but the crowd was dead, two and a quarter stars. So. And, There's your opener. I mean, some of these are, aside from our winter locals, right? Yes. I mean, not, re- not really locals, but... I mean, really, just undercar guys. Okay. You know? Latin lover on Azteca and Fantasma beat the natural disasters. No, not Earthquake Typhoon. Maremoto, Teremoto, and Hecatombe in 1013. When Azteca made Maremoto uh, submitted to the octopus... Yeah, I knew about the Quisan joke earlier. I don't want to say Morimoto here. Mm. He, which he knows how to do. He, he, he knows how to submit to an octopus as well. The women <laughs> screech for Latin lover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the women's screech for Latin Lover is being groomed to, to be the next megastar. Lover facially looks like Bret Hart, who a body like a younger Carrie Von Eric, <clears throat> but his stripper routine to turn off to the male fans. He's really improved in the ring from when he joined the group at first. At that point, he was terrible. Now he's quite decent. The match is very good throughout, climaxing with Azteca doing a tope on Maremoto. Lover doing a plancha on top of Makatambe and Fantasma coming out the apron backwards with a driving elbow on Terremoto. Three and a half stars. So, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, Latin Lover's still very young here, so he's uh, learning in the business. Yeah, I don't know if I'd say young and carrying his body. Well, oh, Brett. You don't like Brett. He looks more like Franz Schumann as fake hitman in Asia than he does uh, Brett. I guess it's the hair, maybe Dave see seen there, but it ain't the damn face. I mean, he's nowhere near as geared up as Carrie. No. I mean, he looks kind of like I can see maybe the comparison to like seventy nine, eighty Carrie, but even then, Carrie's still a good bit bigger. Yeah. All right, uh, Mascarita Sagrada, Jerita Estrada teamed up to be Micro Conan as Petrito was built as a Perejas Increíbles match at 10 11 when all three kept beating on Sagrada until the ref called for a DQ. Tarantitos, the mini ref dressed as Tarantes, did the rural ref gimmick. <laughs> Actually, this wasn't a Perejas Increíbles, which is Tenico Rudo versus Tenico Rudo because Micro Conan had turned Rudo and Sagrada a week earlier and worked as a full fledged Rudo. Because of that, the fans cheered Estrada's very face, and the crowd reacted as if it was a traditional style match. This was below par as a match with little heat except for a few big pops. Estrichito held Mascarito on the floor. Micro went up for a tope, but Mascarito moved in his partner. Micro and Jorito were both pinned and eliminated, leaving Mascarito with Estrichito. Mascarito did all of his high spots, but Micro kept interfering illegally to break up the pin. Jorito came back and tried to make the save. Mascarito actually tried to kick to me took a big bump outside the ring. At this point, Jarita came back in and turned on his partner and was joined by the other two until referee stopped carnage and raised Mascarita's hand for the DQ. After the match, Micro challenged Mascarita to a Mascara Contra Mascara match, and Jarita and Nesprito carried Micro out on their shoulders. <clears throat> Mascarita didn't recover and sprinted down the ramp and attacked Micro, but the other two attacked Mascarita again and left him laying. As Micro continued to goat, Mascarita came finally came back in and jumped on Micro on the ramp. And pounded him to the back. By this point, they had tons of heat. Star record. And the Micro Conan stuff doesn't really go anywhere, if I remember right. No. But that's, I mean, they got the minis and stuff, and that's a low-rated minis match there. Well, it's much more of a storytelling match. Well, I know, I know, I know. And also, Micro Conan is not the level of the worker of the other three. Yeah. All right, Mysterioso, Pazagarada, Humutugarada, beat Murray Mysterio, Ray Mysterio Jr., and Volador, 1723. Humutug did the gotch lift, one on power clean on Ray Jr. Rudos dominated early when Mysterioso threw power at Volador. Was opposed to Ray Sr., plus I didn't kick Ray Jr. low. Humutug then went after Ray Jr.'s mask. Ray Sr. made a comeback and started ripping Fuzz's mask, but he was cut off with a low blow. Humutu did the razor's edge on Ray Jr., but missed the headbutt on top rope. Ray Jr. did a high spot ending with Hubie on the floor. He did a baseball slide, but instead of kicking Hubie, turned the slide into a Frankenstein on the floor. Volador did a flip splash off the apron on Fuerza. Ray Jr. batched off Hubie on top rope and crashed the Mysterious on the floor. 
Then Ray Jr. did an incredible move. He ran across the ring as he was going to do a tope, but instead jumped on the middle rope and springboarded the wood like a Frankenstein onto Ray Sr., who caught him in midair at the top and threw him over the top rope, with the effect being Ray Jr. did a midair moonsault over the top rope onto Humantuda Misterioso. Whereas it ended a on Ray Sr. from knocking him out of the ring. Finally, Fuerza made Volador submit to a camel clutch with Mysterioso helping out. After the match, Mysterioso challenged Volador to a Mascara Contra Mascara match. Then Ray Jr. and Fuerza. Fuerza got tile put over his face because of his identity. Ray Sr. and Jr. then spit on, spit on and stopped Fuerza's mask and dared him to come get it. Volador finally recovered and grabbed the tile from Fuerza so he's going to conceal his identity by holding his and his son hand over his face. These are the Technicos doing that, too. Racing Union took a small child out the front row and told the kid to kick and spin off where's his mask, which he did. <clears throat> After the match, Ramon Castillo, the announcer, went to ringside and voted on Mysterioso again, issued challenges back and forth as the Racing Union for us. Uh, four stars. I'm looking at Lucha TV. I'm curious to watch this one because that alley-oop moonsault spot sounds incredible, and I don't think I've ever seen this match. I mean, Ray, Ray did so much crazy, crazy shit in Mexico that, you know, sometimes you forget about it, you know, and uh, just an amazing performer. All these guys were great here. Mm-hmm. All right. In a promotional match, <clears throat> Los Payasos Tricolor defeated the UWA trio Shua Guerrero, Scorpio Jr. and Gran Hamada in 1507. Unlike at UWA shows for interpromotional matches, there was no heat at all in the UWA guys who came to the ring waving a UWA flag. The ring was filled with broken balloons and debris from the Payasos' ring entrance, which made the match hard to take seriously. <clears throat> Payasos also had a manager dressed up as a clown, which Dave figured would result in a surprise angle, but the manager actually had no involvement. In addition, there was no heat at the beginning. Probably a good hundred balloons fell from the ceiling during the ring intro, and they piled up on the floor. When one of the payasos took a bump over the top into the balloons, and several of them popped at once. Hamada, who's 46 years old, one of the most underrated performers in history, had his working shoes on big time and got people into the match and cheering for his team. Shu and Scorpio, a longtime team, but recently split up in UWA and were together for only for the honor of their promotion. Technically, this was damn good, but no heat early. Shu and Scorpio had a miscue and teased a breakup, but Hamada got them to calm down and they then teamed up. Hamada then got destroyed for several minutes, but when he made his comeback, he accidentally headbutted Scorpio, which caused Shu and Hamada to argue. At this point, Shu and Scorpio both attacked Hamada, while the Piazza stood around laughing. Shu clocked Hamada with a chair, and he juiced. With Hamada getting destroyed, the crowd tried to get the Piazza to save him, but they just laughed. Finally, they chased Shu and Scorpio out, but then attacked Hamada themselves and finally pinned him. Shu and Scorpio attacked Hamada after the match until Piazza's again. Chased him back to the dressing room. Payasos came back to the ring and started pounding on Hamada again. Scorpio came out and challenged Hamada to a mascara coach Gabriela match. <clears throat> Payasos came out again, but this time after going nose to nose with Shu and Scorpio, they all shook hands and went to the ring to the 5 on 1 Hamada and stomped him into an oblivion, pressed him overhead to the floor, threw him into the front row, three and a quarter stars. <clears throat> you know, a show like this, you're not gonna get you're not gonna get that UWA. You know, sentiment on this show. So I don't know what Dave was expecting. No. Um, you know, he's right about Hamada, and you got to remember, like, before Hamada goes to Mishinoku Pro, he's not really looked at as this, at least in Japan and in Western perception of Japan. 
he's not looked at as this all-time legend, you know, amazingly influential pioneering wrestler. Yeah. He's not. He's this guy who jumped from promotion to promotion and then found himself without a job as an active wrestler and was just training women for JWP. And mm-hmm. it's really at this point is kind of when he's starting to get more exposure again because of the AAA UWA crossover. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like the Mishinoku Pro run and the fact that, you know, he's in his mid to late 40s and performing at such a high level and keeping up with, you know, guys who are in their teens and like to mid 20s. That's where he really built the legacy that we know now. And then, you know, after that, people started to go back and watch his stuff <clears throat> in New Japan, in the UWF, UWA, Universal, etc. Oh, and here yeah. here is the uh, Ali Oop spot. It's not quite as insane as Dave made it sound, but it's still pretty cool. All right, let's see. Oh, wait, I just showed it. Is the screen share working? No. Okay, well, let me undo it and redo it then. <laughs> okay, hold on. Also, it's a black, black screen. Okay. Now is it working? <clears throat> no. Well, let's forget about that for now then. <laughs> All right then. It, that, it's rare that that happens, Chris. So how could I have expected that to happen? But anyway, uh, we should remind people, right. by the way, luchadb.com. If you want to be able to find like the right matches on YouTube without having to use the search and stuff, Cubs fan does an amazing job of adding multiple YouTube links for everything that's on there, if available. Yeah. Yeah, a fantastic resource. All right, Juice Thunder Liger, Altagon, Iodo Santo, and Tiger Mask. This is Kanamoto. Beat La Parca, Sicosis, Bupanta, Eddie Guerrero in 2322. Absolutely incredible. Liger was at his best. And even so, it was Sicosis who was the best worker in the group. Tiger Mask was good, but it was obvious he wasn't in the league with the rest of the guys. Panther came out with a live Panther. <laughs> it took the unknown Liger all about 90 seconds to be ever big at the working spots with Eddie. According to the storyline, Eddie's feeding with Parker and Sakosis, but they dropped that here to just have all eight guys do their thing. In the first fall, Altagon and Santo did simultaneous double tip phase on Eddie and Sakosis. Panther had a Tiger Mask on top for the super place, but Liger ran over and stuck his hand under Panther's legs, all of the real weird double impact. He carried him on his shoulders, while Tiger Mask dropped kicked him off the top rope and then gave him a moonsaw. Liger then gave Parker a belly belly superplex, while standing on the top rope and pinned him. During the second fall, the heels got heat on Tiger Mask. <clears throat> Santo tapped in, and Eddie got near falls on him with a splash off the top rope, and a blockbuster suplex called a yo-yo suplex in Mexico. Finally, Eddie made Liger cement in the second fall to the Gloria Special. Panting and Eddie locked Tiger Mask and Texas Clue, leave hole, and Parker pinned off the gun with the senton on top rope. Third fall, saw Liger and Sakosis finally square off, which had been teased the whole match, although nothing special happened that 30 seconds. Liger suplexed Eddie over the top rope to the floor and did a Liger dive on him. Tiger Mask did a plunge off the top rope to the floor on Parker. Sakosis gave Santo Novo a draw on top rope, but Santo kicked out. Fallen Santo made the combat pin Sakosis with a rolling reverse cradling bridge. The Tim Horner finisher. While Altagon gave Panther a Russian leg sweep made it submit. The signs continued going in after the match, with Santo asking for a muscular contra muscular match with Sakosis. 
And Octagon S for one with Blue Panther. Both challenges got huge pops. Four and a half stars. Okay, before we get into how great this match is. Does Dave not know what's called the O'Connor Roll in 1994? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. I guess because it doesn't have the... It has the bridge. No, it's the O'Connor Roll with the... I thought the O'Connor Roll is, is if it has the bridge. Um, it's just I think it's just a rolling reverse. I, I thought it's just a rolling reverse if there's no bridge. It, it can go either way. But the Pat O'Connor move is with the bridge. <clears throat> so that's the O'Connor roll. Anyway, um, it's been a long time since I've watched it, but if I really had to think about it, I think this is my favorite Atomicos match ever. Yeah, it's a pretty great match. You know, and... Yeah, Liger's first time in Mexico, as I mean, as Liger, and really as a wrestler, because he didn't have an excursion there. He just had his adventure where he tried to go train on his own, and uh, then realized he couldn't really speak Spanish, and was basically starving to death until word got back to New Japan, and they were like, okay, we'll take you in the dojo now. Um, Just a hell of a match, and everyone works great together, like to the point that it's it's a shame that, you know, we didn't get more, you know, of Liger in AAA. That we didn't get more of, you know, Sakosa's teaming with Eddie. Sakosa's working with Liger. You know? Just everyone is terrific. Well, I mean, Liger, Liger goes to CMLL, you know, a decent amount after this. Uh, when they had that deal set up. Yeah, but working with this <laughs> specific know? crop of guys. Yeah. But yeah, just a terrific match. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you all the talent involved here. You know, why wouldn't it be? So, yeah, everybody go check that out if you haven't seen that. All right, Mascara Sagrada beat Black Cat and Third Fall Cat on the match of the year caliber Mascara Contra Mascara match twenty nine oh four. This is one of those classic singles matches of the past few years. Dave rates it better than either Brett or Owen at WrestleMania. Or the Muscarita Scrout S of Match Los Angeles. But behind Flair's Steamboat eighty nine match is the Chicago New Orleans and National or last year's Dakabashi match. I think that's how he thought this match at the time. Uh Cat, who was a second match wrestler in New Japan, there's all the credit in the world, and then some putting in this together. Which is pretty much an all Japan style match from moves combined with Rick Flair psychology and almost no lucha style at all. The crowd ate up anyway because the psychology was perfect, combined with the tremendous work from both seconds and building up even more heat. Black Cat had Love Machine R. Bar as his second, while Sagrada, who came out wearing a neck brace, apparently as a result of an angle shot earlier in the week, which was announced to the crowd before the match, had Blue Panther in his corner. This made absolutely no sense. This Panther's a Ruda because incredible drama. This Panther Machine had one of the biggest feuds ever in Mexico. Yes, Dave, that's the point. <clears throat> Yes. The point is that Blue Panther, despite being a Rudo, is going to second a Technico because it's opposite Gringos Locos with Love Machine as the second. Yes. Tarantus, who may be in the midst of a Technico turn, was a referee. Match started on the mat with Black Cat working Sagrada's injured neck, <clears throat> using SDF, but Sagrada made the ropes and used a netbreaker. Sagrada appeared helpless, and Panther wanted to throw in the towel, but the fans screamed him not to. And he kept teasing that he would. Sagrada came back with a maneuver on Dave never seen before. Leaping up like he was going to do a, a Rana, but instead bots Cat's ears with his legs. Oh, so he did like the... Uh, the Meteora. No, he did... Um... Okay, did you ever watch WMAC Masters or were you just a little too old? 
I didn't watch that shit. Okay, there are going to be people who are listening who know what I'm trying to say here. Sounds like a meteora to me. No, 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 no. Well, okay, well, uh, just to get ahead of ourselves, which we'll talk about more when we're done reading, when you're done reading what Dave wrote, there is a full video of this match that exists somewhere. It is not resurfaced in a very long time. So we can't just pull it up and see what he's talking about. But I think he's saying Sagrada jumped up like he was doing a split and then in midair kind of pulled his feet towards each other and kind of scissored kicked him that way. Well, anyway, either or. Um, let's do this three times. Sagrada ripped with Cat over the guardrail, hit two brutal chair shots on him. Machine and Panther went at it, and Machine hit Panther back up against the post and threw a punch. Panther moved, and Machine punched the post. Inside the ring, Sagrada did a power slam and double arm suplex for the near falls, and he gave Cat a net breaker. Cat cut Sagrada off with a dry kick to the neck and a Rick Steiner style German suplex on the bad neck, which Sagrada sold like crazy. Panther again teased throwing in the towel. Cat tossed Sagrada's neck brace to do it into the stands. Cat used the back suplex for near fall, then switched the attack to the leg after a Masafuchi-style drop kick to the knee. Cat finally got the figure four on in the middle of the ring, but Sagrada reversed it, but Cat reversed the reversal, and Sagrada made the ropes. As they rolled on the floor, Cat dropped kicked Sagrada's knee and gave him a face-first suplex into the guardrail. Cat then hit Sagrada with two brutal chair shots and threw him back into the ring. As he went to put the figure four on him, Sagrada caught him with inside cradle and got the first fall. Sagrada spent the entire rest of his back dead. Cat immediately with the work in the second fall with a drunk kick to the neck and a brain buster, and again Panther teased throwing in the towel. Cat used a power bomb and Sagrada kicked out. As went for a second power bomb, Sagrada reversed it into a Rana, but Cat kicked out. The heat was incredible at this point. Sagrada took Cat down twice with Kratos, but Cat kicked up both times. Cat cut him off with another net breaker in DT, but Sagrada kicked out. Cat used DT off the middle rope, but Sagrada kicked out again. <coughs> As he tried for a third DT, Sagrada grabbed the ropes, <coughs> and Cat <coughs> went down alone. Cat took a bump out of the ring. Sagrada did a plancha dive. On the floor, they traded chair shots. Back in the ring, Sagrada did a lucha spot ending with a drop kicking Cat out of the ring and doing a tope. Sagrada went for an inside cradle, but Cat reversed cradle, and Sagrada kicked out. Cat got the scorpion death up, but Sagrada made the ropes. Cat hit a German suplex, but Sagrada kicked out. Cat then went for the Martignette. The Tombstone Pollen Driver, the most feared and major soul in Mexican wrestling, but Sagrada reversed it, hit a tombstone on Cat, which means it was a disqualification. Cat sort of blow like crazy, and the fat never moved again. Machine went nuts trying to revive him, pouring water on him, slapping his face, doing everything to revive him, but Cat sold like he was dead. Paramedics came out with a stretch, but Machine tried to keep him away to save the match. When the bell rang to start the third fall, Tarante started counting Black Cat out of the ring. Eddie Guerrero then ran out through the stretch Tarantes and break the count while Machine firmly tried to revive him. It was no avail. And finally, Tarantes and Norton Eddie's protest and counted Black Cat out of the ring. Cat never moved and they loaded him onto the stretcher. The paramedics wanted to take him to the hospital immediately. However, as ruled to me, must have masked before the stipulations. The paramedics would not allow them to move Cat's head to unlace the mask because neck injury was so severe. An argument ensued. Finally, they got scissors on the dressing room and cut Cat's mask off. He was carried out sans mask. Four and three-quarter stars. Okay. So back in the day, when the Revolution Pro Dojo is getting going, and Ron Rivera is also selling Lucha tapes from, you know, rudosvideos.com and also having 
Some of his students, like Taro, uh, do the order fulfillment and stuff. And this match is on YouTube. Mm, a edited, a heavily edited version is on YouTube. There's multiple versions of it. Yes, and the ones on the ones on Lucha TV are both like eleven, twelve minutes of highlights. Yes, but still, I mean, that's what I mean. That's there is the gist video. Of it. Yes, but I mean, it might be joint in progress though. I don't remember. I don't know if I've ever actually watched the cut version. But at the time, at that time, so this is like late nineties. There was like a series that was on the Rudo site called, I think, what was it? AAA Satellite TV or something like that. And it had a full version of this match. It exists. Rob Bahari had the tape, I think, but can't find it anymore. If I remember right. Um, but we know it exists. But, you know, Roy Lusher, Rob, everyone else has looked... And no one's been able to locate a copy, and they've been looking for a long time. Um, I think Roy also remembers seeing it air complete on the dish. So, it exists. Just we haven't seen it, it's just it's a shame because, you know, look, Black Cat, capable wrestler, but I don't think someone, anyone thought was capable of this. You know, and Sagrada was never like an outstanding worker and this sounds like it's one of those just amazing antonio pena peak triple a like booking masterpieces you know the same way that volador misterioso mass versus mask is the following year and i've always wanted to see it and i never have and i hope that changes eventually yeah um the, the only full, you know, match is the match before um, this took place. They had a singles match on May the eighth in Irapuato. That's a full match, but yeah, the, the, this one's not on YouTube in full. So maybe that can get rectified soon. But if if not, then you can go watch uh, what is on there and get the gist of it. Yeah, you know. But yeah, I mean, Dave's right. Black Cat was always, you know, second, third match guy in New Japan. Here he is just having the match of his life. I mean, he was never super pushed in Mexico either. Mm-hmm. Not really. Is, uh... Now, is this the first Kuraneko. time? In... Yeah, I was going to say, is this the first time in Mexico that he's been Black Cat as opposed to Kuraneko? Yes. This run here. Yeah, Because previously he was just Black Cat in New Japan, right? Mm-hmm. All right, now time for the main event. Conan El Barbaro, Paraguayo, and Sian Carras beat Jake the Snake Roberts, Miguel Perez Jr., and Love Machine in 1746. There wasn't much wrestling here, but it was a quadruple juice brawl with expected great heat. Machine got a far bigger root of reaction than Jake did. However, Jake, who looked to weigh 320 pounds, and a combination of weight and heat was really out of it. Managed by... Hit Conan, managed to hit Conan with an American flag, take the early advantage. Conan bled early. Machine to hit Co- Aguayo saw him in the face with a chair so hard that the chair had major indentation and Aguayo juiced heavily. Jay gave Conan a DDT, refused to pin him, and was choking him with the tape on his wrist. Aguayo was in the ring, and Machine and Perez, who looked 260, who had surprising agility, kept eyeing on him whilst the end just stood in the corner, which is his best move. It wouldn't help his partners. 
Well, calls this Conan Perros and Cardas. Machine splashed the guy off the top rope and Perros gave him a powerbomb. But the heels refused to go for the pin. Finally, the ref DQ'd the Rudos for assessing violence. Between falls, Jake got on his hands and knees and begs him to shake hands with CM Wooden. Jake kept pleading with him to shake hands, crossing his heart. And when CM wasn't looking, our bar love machine came off the top rope from behind with a clothesline on him. CM went wild, but was taken down three on one. And Jake came with his boot and CM juiced heavily. Miguelito Perez suppressed Conan coming outside the ring and hit him with a chair. Finally, Conan made a comeback. And then Perez with a chair, got in the ring, pressed machine over his head, threw him over the top rope. Machine was on the ramp, and Conan gave him a face buster on the ramp. Aguayo then clobbered Machine with a chair. Finally, Conan schoolboy Perez, and Aguayo suplexed Machine for the second fall pin. Jake bled at the end. Both teams were off for several minutes after the match, including Jake pulling out a gigantic snake and chasing everyone away. Rudo's technicals where everyone's still in fear of the snake. A gimme Ruben was photographer at ringside, picked up the snake and rolled it back in the ring when it appeared the snake was going off the apron. When the three technicals were leaving, Aguayo and Carter nearly came to blows and Conan had to separate them. <clears throat> Finally, Carter swapped out his partners. Roberts put the snake around his neck. And as he was going backstage, the snake suddenly started constricting around Jake's neck and nearly choked out and he collapsed backstage. And they had to pull the snake off him to try and revive him. Four stars. I mean, yeah, just total story match here. And uh, yeah, it's pretty wild to watch um, all this stuff going on here. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's what you'd expect. Jake. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm curious. But the fact you got Jake, Conan, you got Conan Pedro, you got Conan Pedro and Ciancaras all together as a team. You know, that's. Yes. That's years and years of heat there with those three guys. And here they are working together to face the foreign menace. Yes. Is the screen share working this time? Yeah, I see the screen. Okay. I have the sound off. Here's. Here's what I think that kick spot earlier, the boxing the ears. Oh, Jesus. <sighs> I mean, that the way you described okay. it, that's what it sounds like to me. You know what I mean? Uh, let me see this shit. Okay, well, here, here, here is the one of the guys doing it to a water balloon. <sighs> yeah. I don't, I don't know how you describe that beyond the way I described it earlier, though. What am I seeing? It's just, it's from WMAC Masters. But it's the only thing I could think of. Oh, it's not working? Extreme, extreme slow motion. Then the screen share is not, just not working well right now. Okay. Yeah, this is a total waste. You could have told me that. You didn't say that. You took like 30 seconds before you even said that. <laughs> because the thing was moving so fucking slow. It would just, the, the screen, the, the shot would stick and then it would move. Stick, but I move, don't stick, know move. that. <clears throat> that's I don't so know that. What am I looking at? What am I supposed to be looking for here? Okay. Screenshot right. were fine earlier when we did WS stuff. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, this this show at the time was considered like as far as just being a great like show full of all these great matches was like it was considered like a landmark show from like you know the English speaking fans who traveled to go to it oh yeah as you could tell absolutely you know so dave has some high ratings on this show so yeah isn't 2b also the best considered the best of the 95 shows too or i mean 3b so so triple mania b i should say 
Because I remember uh, John D. Williams saying something like that in the torch in like '96. I think so. <clears throat> yeah, I'm trying to see what the lineup for that one was. All right, so Tonya three B in Tonala at Rionilo Coliseum. Gemis Del Ring over Paro Silva, Carlo Flagarde Jr., Mr. Condor. Destructores, Mayflowers, and Pimpinella Escarlata over the Power Raiders in the elimination match. Torrerito, Super Muñequito, Octagoncito, and Mascarita Sagrado over Fuercita Guerrero, La Parquita, and both Espectritos. Juventud Guerrero over. Uh, Io del Paraguayo in the Olympic Rules match that serves as Perito's debut. Now I'm remembering which show this is, yes. Uh, Santo, Octagon, Ray, and La Parca over Pentagon, Blue Panther, Sucosis, and Fuerza. Uh, Cien Caras and Mascarano dos Mil over Paraguayo and Conan. And winners over Marbunta in a Mascara contra Mascara match. Hmm. Hell of a show on paper. Yeah. And I think right, I've seen the Olympic game. rules match, which is what, which is if you want, if you've never seen like Hoovy like at his absolute best, that match is the performance of a lifetime. The final trip mania show will take place May 27th, not May 29th, as originally planned in Tijuana. While Dave's not certain of the location, he believes it to be at the Caliente Racetrack, a 30,000 seat stadium. At press time, the car appeared to be several days away from being finalized, nor could even confirm the location of the Tijuana, a city across the board from San Diego. The entire Conan Kaneke goes falling apart. As the press time, Triple was hoping to put together Conan Jake, Caballero Coach Caballero, managed to handle one to two other strong stint matches underneath. Luckily, Rey Mysterio, the local Tijuana hero against Huicho in a Caballero Coach Caballero match, but Dave's skeptical of Conan and Jake taking place for the obvious reasons. In addition, Triple A announced the show booked on May 28th at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas. This will almost surely bomb because Galavision is even on cable in Las Vegas. Not to mention no lead time in promoting the show. So they wouldn't say edged in stone about this show. And this ends up being in the bull ring in Tijuana. Yeah. With the and yes, it's Conan Jake on top. Hair versus hair. <clears throat> also has his uh Armanos Dinamites Payasos in a cage match, among other things. Yeah. Don't expect Conan to work anymore in promotional matches on May 11th in Tlane Platla. Conan team with Mascaro Sagrado and Tenebles Jr. against Los Vianos. And Viano 4 and Conan get nearly got into a fight as Conan elbowed Viano 4 in the mouth. Vianos went so much during the match because they were doing the job at the end. Wonderful. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes. All right, Simolo. Hayabusa. Let's jump into this group for Triple and we'll start in June with a big push. Kinda. Yeah. Which? How do you even jump when you're on excursion? Because he was working on Triple and left and went to CMLL. Oh. Juan Herrera is back working in the front office. Herrera was a longtime booker who joined Triple late last year, but was gone within months. As you work in the EMLL front office or the CMLL front office? <laughs> Who knows? Most Friday Night Big Shows Arena Coliseo drawing 1,500 fans even with stipulation matches. 
on May 13th, May for the show, they drew about 700. Was a battle of Ruto teams as Mochokoto, Milatolis Jr., Bestia Savaje, Be Negro Casas, Black Magic, Norma Smiley, and Mano Negro. Well, that might be one. My full results of that show Damasito Aguerrero and Ocho Tempetita beat Mascarita Magica and Otomo Dragoncito. Sinta Moreno and Lady Apache over La Praticante and Reina Jabuki and Reina Hokuto. Chicago Express and Tercero. Filoso and Metallica over Cadaver de Chotumba. Especial Junior and Panico. Hakamate, Javier Cruz of Monaca and Quejos over Palo Dantes. Recomendos on Otomo Dragon. And Bestia Emilio and Mocho over Magic. Mono Negra and Negro Casas. It's a show. Yeah, it's where they are at that time. It's their roster. <clears throat> Wrestling Returns Remake come in July. I forget where all the Marine. Not there at the time. It's just there's a lot going on. You know, we've done a lot of shows in that in that era where there's just not a remake of for various reasons. Uh, Aldo Moreno, younger sister of Esther and Cynthia, who just recently turned pro, already suffered a major injury when she broke her ankle. So there's that. UWA. El Torreo, May 15th. Pedro Aguayan San Carlos teaming up against Connect and Viano Tercero, which drew 7,500 fans. <clears throat> With Connect not only doing the job for Pedro in the third fall, but also doing a stretcher job for him. The political struggles continue because Connect did a stretcher job to build up a match on May 22nd. However, Antonio Peña pulled Pedro from that show, the World Triple A show, the same night in Juarez. Oof. So you shoot that big angle, expecting to have a, a rematch next not next week, and then Pena pulls him from the show. Yeah, you know how to, how to piss Kanak off. Mm-hmm. Pedro and Sincaros on May 15th uh, were in the main event in Nakapan, Dendro to Mexico City Airport, which is a 40-minute drive. Flew to Guadalajara, which is one hour. Then drove to Zapapan for 30 minutes for Trivania. We're there in the main event, uh, which was the main reason the show lasted so long. Jesus. <clears throat> yeah. That's All right, the results of this show. Shows of the year. Like, what the? <laughs> yeah. All right, Espato Jr. Fishman and Rambo over Yoda Anibal, the King and the Patriot. Wow, your voice is really bothering you then if you didn't <laughs> want to go full on. The King. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm barely making it through. El Signo Negro Navarro and Rocky Santana over Yo de Lismar, Tinebus Jr. and Wieners. Dos Caras, Ocam Dorado Jr. and Tigre Cadenense, Matnazansky over Mascot Año 2000, Satanico and Universo 2000. And Kinec and Viano Tercero over Cien Caras Paraguay by his qualification. It really is something <laughs> how much they're benefiting from the Stolpe Power stuff. Now, let me ask you this, though, as we close out the section. Is it the interpromotional thing that's drawing? Or do you think the fans just look at these as AAA shows in Mexico City? It's AAA talent being mixed in. But do you I mean, think it's, it's what it is. that or do you think it's the interpromotional angle? I mean, that, that may help with some people, but it's the AAA talent being on these shows, basically. Well, I mean, how much would they have drawn or how much were they drawing at Amnacio um, Juan de la Barrera at the time? Um, but that's all AAA talent. It's not UWA talent. I know, but for a comp of AAA in the same market, so you, you can't you can't compare because it's two different types of two different shows. You don't have UWA talent there. You got AAA talent there. Well, yeah, I know. That's my point. <laughs> <clears throat> my point so, is, I'm curious to see what the, the difference is. 
You would have to look. I don't know. Okay. Find it out. But they use what was the max for that place? Like eight thousand? Oh no. Twelve or lower? About five. Okay. So okay, so even if they packed it, okay, so yeah, that's the thing. Like, there's theoretically because they had been selling it out a lot. There's theoretically demand for more people to go to a AAA show in, Mex- in the Mexico City area than can fill their Mexico City venue. But again, I mean, it's also with UWA Town as well. So you have right. I mean, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> you got both things going on here. All right, let's go to the U.S. indie scene now. We start with uh, a sad story. Mark Bodie, or Bidet, B-O-D-E-Y, independent wrestler promoter who had the American Commonwealth Wrestling Group out of Reading, Pennsylvania, passed away on May 13th at the age of 26. Bodie and his girlfriend were involved in an auto accident and knocked from their vehicle and, according to the coroner's report, died instantaneously. The driver of the other car was charged with two counts of vehicular manslaughter. Bodie had started promoting 18 months ago under the ACW banner, with his biggest success coming on November 6, 1993, when he promoted the first Terry Funk versus Sabu match ever in Steeltown, Pennsylvania. Bodie got the idea from the match for a letter in the Pro Wrestling Tours newsletter and booked the match, which a very short time later became the hottest match in the independent circuit after a spectacular rematch in Philadelphia. Bodie was coming from a high school gig doing a comedy hypnotist routine and also doubled as a magician when he was killed. Ed Zahn and Jeff Capo, who ran ACW with Bodie, are planning on continuing with the organization, which currently has several deaths. We should have more details in next week's issue. <clears throat> and if there was anything, I don't remember it being really anything major of note or anything, but... Uh, no, I don't think ACW continues. Yeah. And that is Ed Zahn, who we've talked about many times on the show before. Yes, who ends up being the... ECW Pennsylvania promoter after Todd Gordon bows out. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Capo for years uh, was around. Um, He would do like uh, these deals where he would uh, post stuff on uh, like websites like Pro Wrestling Between the Sheets and stuff like that. Uh, Different, you know, indie groups in the Northeast, like rundowns and stuff. So he he was around into the 2000s, but. yeah, sad story, you know, when people young, you know, young like them pass away in senseless car wrecks. You know, that's beyond their control. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, I mean, who would have thought that the first Terry Funk Sabu match was in an ECW? You know? Yeah, correct. <laughs> so that is interesting. You look back in hindsight. And I remember that match. I remember people talking about, you know, the, trying to you know get tape of the match and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's a sad story. All right, let's go to NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling. The May 14 Philadelphia show, When Worlds Collide, which drew the group's largest crowd to date, reported so 1,558 fans, although Dave's sure that figure will be disputed. Oh, I can't believe why. <laughs> 1,558 banks at the ECW Arena. <laughs> Hanging from the rafters? <clears throat> Hanging from every crevice of the building for 1,558. 
Are they counting the mummers for headline... floats? <laughs> Good God. Was headlined by Sabu and Bobby Eaton beating Terry Funk and Arn Anderson in the four-star match. After Funk took a bump onto a table, breaking it, he used a piece of the table and piled Joe Eaton on it. Finished off Funk, accidentally hit Arn with a chair. Arn got back up and hit Funk with a chair and walked out on him, leaving him against both, and Funk finally submitted to a half-crab by Sabu. What was scheduled as an eight-man elimination match with the Bruise Brothers, Road Warrior Hawk, and J.T. Smith. I guess Mr. Hughes, Public Enemy, Shane Douglas went up as a three-on-four since Hawk failed to appear, reportedly because he blew out his knee. They wound up with the Bruise Brothers, Douglas and Hughes all brawling over the building and getting counted out, leaving Smith against both members of Public Enemy, with Smith pinning each man. Bruise Brothers knocked into and knocked down several fans and they're brawling to the stands. Didn't we just have a story? Was it? Yeah, no, it was um, the show we did with Johnny P, where the Bruise Brothers got in trouble for assaulting fans hmm. <laughs> in that same building <laughs> jesus they must have been pissed that the only other as they would pronounce it white was uh was not on their team anymore and boy look how much times have changed jt smith pinned both members of public enemy by himself huh that's something yeah um yeah. the first of what will be surely many singapore caning matches so Peaches and Tommy Cairo beat Woman and the Sandman after Peaches pinned the Sandman, her husband, after Cairo had KO'd him. Peaches pulled down Sandman's trunks at him three times with the kendo stick. Woman then threw salt in Peaches' eyes, and Sandman gave Cairo a low blow as Sandman destroyed both Peaches and Cairo with kendo sticks. Okay. Uh, all right, our results of the show, real quick before we get into it. In front of a sellout crowd of fifteen fifty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> Tommy Dreamer over the Rock and Rebel in your opener. Oh, I'm sure he and uh, the Harrises just had a great time uh, <laughs> chewing the fat in the locker room. Star and a half. Mikey Whipwreck, spelled W-I-P-R-E-C-H-T. Well, you know why that is, right? Because Dennis Whipwreck, that's the spelling of Dennis Whipwreck's name. Yes, and that's who Mikey was named after. Yeah. He retained the ECW TV title being 911 by DQ and a dud. Jimmy Snook over Kevin Sullivan, two stars. First time, if I remember, I read that, that was the first time they ever wrestled each other mm. in their careers because they never really crossed paths. Uh, Peaches and Cairo over Woman and Sam in the game match, two and three quarter stars. Pitbull over Tasmaniac, two stars. I guess that's uh, Gary Wolf. Yes, uh, yes. Then we had the... Or uh, sometimes Pitbull Psycho Mike, as he's referred to at this time. Yeah, then the uh, the handicap match got three and a half stars, and then the main event with four stars. And also it's Pit Space Bowl versus Taz Dash Maniac. Yes. This, this is one of the early ECW shows that got a lot of online buzz because of that main event. Yes, when worlds collide. Yeah, that name wouldn't be a, a big deal in the next five months. Yeah, and then Richard Heyman wouldn't send any nasty letters about it. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that, like that personally. <laughs> oh, getting letters from Richard Heyman? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever get any letters from Eugene Bofa? <laughs> That's a, I've told that story before in the show. You know, I, I can, I'll rehash it again. It's been a minute. But um, I had me and my brother had a public access television show where we talked about wrestling in 97, 98. 
uh, Wrestlepalooza, which was just the 25th anniversary of that show recently. Oh, God. It might make you feel old. Uh, was coming up. So we were trying to, because uh, ECW is still in 98, especially, you know, down in this area, was something that really, you know, didn't have a lot of cachet because it hadn't been a local TV in a long time. So we were trying to uh, get folks, uh, you know, up to, I would say up to date, but give them a little hint of what ECW was. So we showed the uh, the first race psychosis match from the ECW arena on our show. Mm-hmm. And then a week later, we get a letter from uh, Richard Heyman, a cease and desist. The reason that he had any awareness of this was that Billy Black... Uh, That's my thoughts at the time, because Billy Black had a show... Oh, you never confirmed the day after that it was a bad boy Billy. Black. I don't know. That was, yeah, that was just my thought. Either he either did it or somebody. Well, who the hell else would? I mean, is the thing. Yeah, yeah. He that somebody he called Richard Heyman. Yeah, yeah. Again, they thought I guess I didn't get a booking. You know, out of the deal, it didn't happen. So, yeah. So yeah, that was kind of an interesting night. <laughs> but uh, it is what it is. So, uh, twenty-five years ago now, Jesus. But anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, this is one of those early shows that you know that starts getting ECW that you know name in the internet community, and uh, yeah, you can see that they're. I mean, they're on the rise. They're becoming the hot new indie promotion in the country mm-hmm. at this time. So. Uh, so yeah, now the night before they take TV, and uh, that's where they did the gimmick where Jobber Mikey Whitbread won the TV title from Pitbull due to interference from Tasmaniac. Whitbread never retained the title against top heels Kevin Sullivan, Mister Hughes, and Johnny Grunge, all on flute DQ finishes. Now in that Whitbread nine one one match, nine one one kept giving him his chokeslam finisher but refused to pin him. When the ref started yelling nine one one nine one one, gave both the referee and Mikey chokeslams at the same time. Which caused DQ ruling. So that was Mikey's gimmick. Yeah, he was he kept on retaining his title, but he never got pins or anything. Right. And the only reason he won the title originally was that um Pitbull slipped on the top rope and crotched himself and fell down. Yeah. Um okay, I pulled up the results of the T V taping, just a couple things worth mentioning, I guess. One of the job guys, uh Future Cyberspace Wrestling Federation promoter Billy Firehawk of about that? the Shirts Too Tight Billy fan. How about that? And is there anything else that's really worth noting on here? Yeah, he, he did two uh, squash jobs on here. One a tag and one to uh, Sal Balomo. The wild man. But yeah, at this point, they're doing... The weekend of the major show, they're also doing a TV taping night with the idea being yeah. that they won't show most of the major show on TV, but these shows never drew. I don't remember if they were charging for them, but they never drew regardless. And by the end of the year, they're done with them. Well, the thing is, though, is they'd already moved venues, though, and went to Allentown. So they're taping until a different city. Hamburg. Hamburg, excuse me. They're turning into a different city, which made it, you know, they they had better houses that way. I like those Hamburg shows a lot. And 
I've always wondered if maybe something happened at the first night of November to remember, because they did it as a two-night thing where the first night was Hamburg and the second night was Philly. That maybe made the footage unusable, because I always figured that the first night was supposed to be a TV taping. Because then they didn't use any of it. They showed basically all of the show on the arena show on TV, and then they never ran Hamburg again. Yeah. I don't know. It just it, it 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 made the arena shows, you know, I don't want to say more important, but seem more special. You had, you had to buy, yeah, yeah. You had to buy the tape basically to get the to get the show. And when you saw an arena match on TV, it yeah. came off more important than it did previously. Yes. Yeah. So, but anyway, Sabu working with one broken hand and a broken knuckle on the other hand. Beat Terry Funk in a three and a half star Texas Death match on May fifteenth in Lincoln Park, Michigan, which was a uh, MTW type show. Was it MTW so, or was it NWA Sabu? I think it was MTW actually. So, okay. <clears throat> because Al Snow wore Mickey Doyle in that show. All right, you didn't want to include results, I take it, or no? Yeah, I didn't feel it was necessary. All right, All-Star Wrestling Federation from Reading, Pennsylvania, May 15th. We have the Blackhearts, Apocalypse and Destruction, go to a double DQ with George Anthony and Max, M-A-double-X. Tiny beat James Kaiser. Purple Haze, who wasn't Martin Lewin, beat Barry Domino. Jeff Gripley beat Dirty D's Darren Wise. Larry Winters beat Don D. Lux, U-X, <laughs> deep period. Lord Zoltan over Frank Stiletto. The Bad Crew, Dog and Rose over Dennis Diamond and Norm Connors. <laughs> okay, I did not know about this. Norm wrestled? Yeah. Huh, I did not Salvatore Bologna over Stevie Richards. Well, wait, Fire no, he's, he's got to be Steve at this point, right? And it just says Steve. I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess, but you know how the results are. Firebreaker Chip over the Bodacious Pretty Boy. <laughs> Skull Von Cromer went to a WQ with T Ranchula, although it says T Ranchall. <laughs> uh, Flamingo Kid Pinky over Scott Baker. And in your main event, Hacksaw Jim Duggan over Papa Shango. Okay. Sure. Um, I'm wondering why the Blackhearts are here unless they're fake Blackhearts. Because there's no one else who's not a Northeast wrestler on this show. Um,. Uh, I guess on, on tour because we haven't come up on another show right here next. Mm, okay. From, from two days earlier. Yeah. So maybe we're working on loop. Yeah. Oh, and I checked. It was not a Midwest Territorial Wrestling or NWA set, but it was Midwest Championship Wrestling. Okay. Well, Midwest something. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> All right. NWA, CWA. They ran a show on May 13th in Monoy City, Pennsylvania at the high school in front of 800 fans. We have Randy Starr over Drifter Nomad. Ripper went to WQ Ace <laughs> Darling. Flex Wheeler, managed by Dirty D's Darren Wise, beat James the Postman Kaiser. Johnny Gunn, that jobber Tom Brandy, uh, over King Kalua by disqualification. Dwight and the Clown and Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Little Doomer beat the Black Hearts and Little Heart, managed by Tony Rumble and Destiny, when Doomer pinned Little Heart after which the Black Hearts had their partner. The Hollywood Kids beat the Drifter in a no-DQ match. And our main event, King Kong Bundy over Papa Shango. 
Mrs. Murdoch and Doink were advertised, which Doink, I guess, weren't. I guess that's Dick Murdoch. So, but Dick Murdoch's not here. Yeah. So. And <laughs> I presume NWACWA with Tony Rumble involved. This is Century Wrestling Alliance just running outside of New England. <clears throat> yeah. Which is interesting. Nice crowd. Yeah. Yeah, good, good crowd for that show. Yeah. Uh, you know what? So whoever, whoever promoted did a good job. That reminds me of something, though. Why do you feel like back in the day, whether it was snobbery over indies not being good or whatever the hell it was, why do you think generally it was treated like indie crowds under a thousand were not a success? Whereas now we feel like if a show draws like 350, especially 400 or more, if it's, you know, obviously if the budget scale to that, then it's a big success. I guess there's different standards. I mean, I, I guess because more indie shows did better in that era. Well, and there were also a lot more, like, high school shows and sold shows and things like that, too. Well, you had also the names. You know, you had more of the old WWF names that were bringing people to the houses for these shows. Yeah. You don't have you don't have that in the—you really don't have that as much in the indies anymore. Because mm-hmm. the indies are more about the younger talent, stuff like that. And they want to have more of the work rate shows. Where in these days, it wasn't about work rate. It was about drawing houses. Mm. So let's bring the old WF names in to draw the house. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's the difference in the promoters from then and now, too. Because most of your promoters now, I mean, yeah, they want to make money, but they want to have them. the best show. <laughs> well... But they want to have the best shows they can have. So, they, I mean, so they want to get, you know, the better talent. When, as discussed many times on this show, that doesn't necessarily mean dollars. So, it's just, it's the trade-off you make. Yeah. You know? Now, if we had to guess, how many matches do we think Tom Brandy has had with King Kalua in their lifetimes? Uh, it's got to be at maybe least a hundred dozens. Yeah, I mean, a hundred wouldn't surprise me. That's just what we. I mean, we we don't know. You don't know everything either. You know, there could have been shows, and it also doesn't take into effect the different gimmicks that Tom Brandy's working as well. So I mean, there's a lot goes into it. Yeah, so. I'm I'm curious what cage match has if you just put in. Uh, Kalua into the Tom Brandy results. So on cage match alone, would you like to take a guess? Guess, excuse me. I said around hundred. No, just well, I'm not, I. You were guessing based on their whole career. I'm saying based on cage match, knowing there's probably a lot of indie results they're missing. I don't know. Fifty spanning from 1987 to 2022. Okay, that's well, a lot. That's probably more than that. Oh, it's got to be at least a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, Cincinnati, there was an indie show. <laughs> where I like where it says here from the Observer, prelim results unimportant. <laughs> Why does that make me think Pillman sent it in? <laughs> Preston Steele over Tommy Wildfire Rich. Great Hammer Valentine over beautiful Bobby Harmon. And uh, the Battle of Strike Force. Rip Martell over Tito Santana. They were working a lot of indies against each other at this time. Well, it made sense. It made sense. Because you never, I mean, 
they they did a thing in WWF, but they never really had a feud feud against each other, you know? Yeah. It was like the uh, their version of Luger Wyndham. I was about to say that. Exactly. Imagine if they had an indie feud. Well, that means Lex Luger had to work the indies. <laughs> and now what happened? No, and that definitely was not one of his... Gallicades. Uh... Yes. All right, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Another large and eventful week. They were in Freedom Hall in Johnson City on May 14th for a 6.50. We have Scott and Steve Armstrong being well done by DQ to wait, the stars. Wait, wait, wait. Dave's saying a largely uneventful week on a week where they're running one of their two main towns. That's what he says. I mean, because there's no real news. Sure. It's just a show. Just a show. Uh, Tracy Smith beat Jim Cornette and Killer Kyle in a handicap match to enough stars. Dirty White Boy, or as it says here, Dirty White, beat Kendo the Samurai, star on the corner. Kendo the Samurai, of course, Tim Warner. Uh, two or three falls for Smoky Mountain Tag Titles. Brian Lee and Chris Candido beat the Rock and Roll Express, four stars. And White Boy won a pole battle royal, star on the corner. Now, Bruiser Bedlam missed all the house shows against Tracy Smothers due to transportation problems and was replaced by Killer Kyle. Based on what they've seen, Bedlam doesn't look to be the guy that can carry the push he's been given. They did a television bit where he went to the gym and pitch pressed 545 pounds, which was legit. He's done over 600 and drove nails in the boards. Dave got that right. He definitely was not the guy in this territory for that. No way. Everyone said he was so nice, though. <laughs> but the I- thing is, I mean, the thing, the thing is, though, is it's just the wrong territory to push him. Well, also, he was not living in the territory. He just drove down for the shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a long drive where you come from. Yep. Detroit, Windsor area. Yeah, to fucking Knoxville and Johnson City and shit like that. You know, that's a long fucking drive. Who do you think would have worked better in that spot? Anybody come to mind or anything? That's available? I guess. To do the specific dock worker gimmick or just to be a new Cornette No, to heavy? just be that to be the Cornette heavy. And are we looking specifically for people who have not really been pushed on TV anywhere or Well nobody in Smoky Mountain, somebody outside of Smoky Mountain. Okay. Hmm. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, can you? I know Dick Slater. Well, that's different from what we're what we're thinking, but okay. I, mean, I know, but, but it would still. work, yeah. And he had a history. Yeah, he comes in for nine of champions or nine of legends, excuse me. Yeah, and uh, but that's his only really match at Smoky Mountain. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Slater is is a guy who would have fit that role. But no, I can't really think of anyone like outside the box who would be a good replacement. Imagine Dream Machine. That would have worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, which we'll get to him in a minute. Him in Memphis, but yeah, that would have been something. I don't know. Bedlam, it's just when you watch Bruce of Bedlam and Smoky Mountain, that's when you know, okay, this territory is not what it was a year earlier now. I don't know. Because he had been a TV job guy in the <sighs> WWF for so long? No, because he just wasn't good. <laughs> It doesn't matter where he was. He just wasn't hmm. good. No. So in Smoky Mountain, the territory was... It just... It didn't... He didn't fit. That's what I'm trying to say. 
All right. Um, the Jake Snake Roberts started white boy title change there this past weekend. And the spin to the angle where Roberts go to white one to defend the title was very good. But the match itself was boring, had a little heat to the closing sequence. Well, let's watch both, shall we? So let's start off with the angle, and then we'll go to the uh, the finish of the match. Hopkins away. Uh, the white boy coming up that big win, of course. All right. Uh... All right, fan, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, no, right, right here with us. Wait a minute. We, we're going to talk. You don't Jake show up State. for no reason. Whoa. I want to know what you're doing out fans, here. We got the white boy. We got the commission. We got Jake. You got a lot of confusion. Let's see if we can straighten this out, and we're gonna, we'll come right back. Plain and simple. Can you answer me? What are you doing here? You know, you know Tony, that really hurts. I mean... It's great to be here in the Smoky Mountain because I can, I can see from right there in that ring. It's beautiful being here because they're giving people that are handicapped the opportunity to do something. Hey, I tell you what, you look you look fair out there, okay? On a scale of one to ten, eh, soft four, if you know what I mean. Real soft. But, oh no, come on. See, now he's wanting me to hit him, but he's gonna get a lawyer for slapping a blind man. Oh, my heavens. Yeah, Commissioner, Commissioner, what? Wait, wait, wait. You look good out there as a champ, Tony. You don't mind if I put my arm no, up there? No, that's fine. And it's okay if you don't, because I'm still going to do yeah, it. Yeah, I figured that, Jake. You can be champion this week. It's okay. You can be champion this week. You can be champion next week. You can be champion for three weeks if you want, because I would never reach out and hit somebody that's... Physically handicapped or mentally handicapped. And if you think you can beat me, you are definitely mentally handicapped, you geek. No problem. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If you're smart, you'll thank me for not doing it right now. But if you're as dumb as I think you are and as dumb as these people are, then you can be champion for another year because you'll just pat me on the back and say, Mr. Roberts, you're exactly right. I know you're a much better man than I am because I don't want to have to beat you up. I want you 100%, no excuses. And you know something? You'll never be 100%. You never have been 100%, and you never will be. If you want a match, you don't have to wait on this handicap. You say I'm one out it. All you got to do is slither your old roachy butt to the ring, and I'll give you a title shot today. No, I don't care. I feel really bad about that. I feel, I, I, I swear to all of you out there, I feel really bad about that, but not as bad as you'll feel. I'm sure you book it today, right here on TV, tough guy. I'll put this on the line against you. I don't care. Jump on this handicap. Sure, Tony. I'm positive, Bob. You just signed the match, all right? Can I do it? Can you do that? I can do it. All right, you, sure? you signed it. I want it here today. I ain't letting no loud mouth punk like that come in here. I've worked too long and hard for this title, and I'll be damned if I'm letting scum like that downgrade me and downgrade all these people. He's gonna have to. Oh God, you just can you do it? I can do it. Oh, okay. thank you very much, Commissioner. What about that? Let me just say this: He is the champion. He can do what he likes with the belt. We'll have the match here today for the belt. All right, fans, you heard that. The match this week right here during this hour, Jake the Snake Roberts, the Dirty White Boy, for the championship. Coming up during this hour. All right, fans, right now, let's... Jake was different 
as well, but he was the good kind of different. Yes. In Smoky Mountain. <laughs> I mean, he was he nobody had done a character like Jake in Smoky Mountain at this point in time. No. And yeah, just so good. So good in this spot in this stuff right here. Especially the problem was he couldn't back it up in the rain, but go ahead. No. Especially since if you're gonna have the heel con the top baby face like that, it's a very delicate line to not make the baby face look like a chump. Yep. But exactly. I think they succeeded it, here. Yes. All right, well, we had the match as in this show. So let's go to the clip and see how uh, how this all turned out for White Boy. Putting his all of his body weight on him, just leaning on him all that he can to make the White Boy use up as much energy as he possibly can. And as you see, Dirty White Boy, normally in a situation, if the eye weren't bad, he would be slugging away at Jake. But that eye has distracted Dirty White Boy from part of that mind has gone to, to that pain in the eye, and he can't concentrate totally on this match, Bob. And this is where Roberts has that advantage. All right, Roberts is standing there. He took another big hard right hand right to the midsection. He got a pretty tough midsection. You got to hand that yes, to Yes, he does. Jake's a tough man. Jake likes a little punch. To the eye. My heavens alive. Oh, White boy, get out of there. I'm afraid he's going to get that eye permanently injured. You know, in a in a case where a, an eye like that is already severely damaged, it wouldn't take a whole lot to really permanently injure that eye. Absolutely not, Bob. But Dirty White Boy is, is not a quitter. He's not going to give this thing up. And I'm like you. It could save him a lot of damage and permanent damage to that eye. He's pitched outside now. Roberts, look at him. Jake is just relaxed. Dirty white boy covering that eye, and again, that is his whole focus at this moment. Right into the lights, the television lights. Here's Roberts now rolling out of the ring. He's going to come around to the white boy as they both are outside the ring. He's got him He's got him draped across the, the fence, the metal iron fence here, which separates the ring area from the crowd. He's got him right into the lap of some of our women fans there. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing, too. Chonning right in front of you. Dirty white boy with the fans and vice versa. Jake is in his glory now. Jake is having a field day. I wasn't looking that closely. Was Bouncing Beulah there? That looked like her. Let me see. Uh... As they both are outside the ring, he's got him. He's got him. Okay, where here? Right. Yeah. Okay. And that looks to be an old lady. Yeah. Draped across the the fence, the metal iron fence here, which separates the ring area from the crowd. He's got him right into the lap of some of our women fans there. Yes, that's exactly what he's doing, too. Chonning Dirty White Boy with the fans and vice versa. Jake is in his glory now. Jake is having a field day. And here's a man who's not a dummy. He's a veteran. He's a real good pro. And he's not going to spend this kind of time out there if he thinks White Boy's got any chance of fighting back on him All at right, this boss. point. Let's yes. It's in Harriman, Tennessee. All right. Um, let's see. Harriman to Knoxville. It's 40 minutes. I had to be her. Okay. See where he's going with it from here. Look here, Robert's still like a walk in the park for yeah, you, Bob. Just walking back. Whoa! He's back. There. Well, and Jake, we should say, is playing to the specific old lady a lot. Oh well, yeah. We we need to get the camera shot. The camera went away. I don't know what he was doing over there. <laughs> but even once he was back in the ring, he was pointing towards her and stuff. Yeah, Jake doing the Chris Colt shtick. I like that. Well, how do you mean? Because Chris Colt had that woman in Portland. 
that he was, he always went to battle with, which is hilarious. Now, oh. yeah, and Jake, Jake's not in his, back- uh, you know, you know, out there like Chris Colt was and doing it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny watching that, yeah. Almost into the corner where the white boy is, and when he turned around, boy, I tell you, it doesn't pay to get too relaxed in a ring, and Roberts may be paying for it now. He played too long, Bob, and look at DWB go to work, arm whips him, cross He may ring. not be able to see him too well, but he can feel him. He knows exactly where he is. And believe me, Roberts is feeling him right now, too. Those right hands were doing the job. Good foot. I got that foot right up into the chest and into the chin. Dirty white boy may have a chance to put him away here. Bob, let's see if he can do it. Going for the elbow. And Roberts is in the worst position in this match he has been thus far. Well, there goes Roberts now through the ropes. He's down onto the apron. Such a dead crowd for a smoky TV taping. Uh, maybe it's because, I mean, even though Jake's awesome, it's not... He's not the type of guy that they're going to be going against. I don't know. Hmm. You no, know, I mean, I just I don't know. White boy now, right there on the apron. Yes. Uh, someone got a good shot of him right there. Yes, sir. In a position. Camera boys are doing yeah. some good uh, job. He's getting what? What? Hey, whoa. He went over and kicked the camera guy. What, what the he... world is Roberts doing? He's reached Come down. On. He... I don't know. He's going to try to destroy the film or he's what? Got, he's, got the cam- he's got the camera. He... Maybe. Oh. Right into the eye. The flesh right into the eye of the dirty white boy. Already with an eye as light sensitive as it was. And less. That, that is a tremendous powerful, powerful light. And it'll, it was, blind, it'll blind a person with good eyes and, and no damage at all when you look no right into a flesh. No more than two or three inches away he's just, very most. Oh, man, watch out. There it is, the DDT. Oh, no. Mama put the coffee pot on. We're coming home. Oh, I tell you. And he is really having a time. And it just puts a hand here. right over the chest. He knows that there's no way he's going to get up from the DDT. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner and new Smoky Mountain Wrestling Heavyweight Champion, Jake. The flash did the job. Roberts. Look here. Look at Robert. I tell you, it's got to be. That's a tremendous injustice that he's going to get the championship belt in a match like that. Not only with the dirty white boy with only one good eye, but also by using that flesh outside exactly, of the ring like he exactly. did. Exactly. And Roberts in his glory now. And, of course, this one comes back. A rubber match on Friday night in Knoxville. Well, I tell you, there he is, fans. The new Smoky Mountain heavyweight champion, Jake the Snake Roberts. And I cannot believe it, but he is. And we'll be back right after this. You know, for two guys that are such experienced wrestling announcers... Caudill and Uncle Les are way too relaxed and act and f- almost acting like they knew this would happen. Well, they like the crowd. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's a very weird call for them. It's very weird. I mean, the, it goes with the crowd, too. Yeah. It's like a weird deal altogether. The crowd didn't, you know, there wasn't no heat when Jake really won the, the title and then used that camera. You, you didn't hear. That's just a, a weird thing in general there. Now, are we playing the bullet promo that comes after or not? No. Okay. It's not really nothing there of note. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing all, all together in that way. But Jake's fun, though. Yeah. All right. Well, also on TV, we have a personality profile with Les Thatcher, obviously. His personality profile. 
featuring uh, Tammy uh, Fitch, Brian Lee, and Chris Candido, and uh, them uh, becoming tag champions. So let's uh, watch that, shall we? When we come back, right after this timeout. Thanks, Bob. On today's personality profile, we have the new Smoky Mountain Tag Team Champions, Brian Lee and Chris Candido, accompanied by this Tammy Fitch. And Chris, you finally got what you want. It's quite controversial. It was kind of like beating a man with one arm tied. In this case, one partner tied behind his back. No, Ricky Morton came out here. I heard him before complaining about the way they lost these titles. The fact was, Ricky Morton was too scared to even get in the ring. He ran out the back door. Robert Gibson tried to run out the back door, except he's so dumb, he ran out through the wrong curtain and he came into the ring and what happened? He met up with the suicide blonde and primetime Brian Lee and then Ricky Morton is out here talking about a pile driver about me almost breaking his neck. Ricky Morton, the only reason I pile drove you is out of self-defense. You were trying to headbutt me in the groin and I stopped it and I pile drove you and almost broke your neck. And everybody's talking about a thousand dollar fine. We don't care about a thousand dollar fine. All we care about are these Smoky Mountain Tag Team titles. And I'm sure you're happy. Let me tell you something. They find us thousand dollars but you know what i spend more than a thousand dollars in a day at the mall can't you tell by the way i'm dressed and now i have these beautiful gold belts to make me look even prettier and chris i haven't thanked you yet but i just want to say thank you for winning those belts for hey, me hey, hey what about me why are you thanking him i did all the damage oh brian, doing... brian will you shut up that's your job you're supposed to do that okay yeah shut up oh chris you shut up too because you should have needed his help and rock and roll express let me tell you something and you listen good we have the belts now and ricky morton you made the worst mistake of your life by kissing me because all it got you was you losing the belts and you almost got your neck broken so you would feel if you ever think of coming near me again or trying to win these belts you can just forget about it because they're ours they're here to whether you like it or not. That's it, world. And there you have it, the wisdom of Miss Tammy Fitch. That's been our personality profile for today. Bell accommodations for Smoky Mountain Wrestling were provided by the West Town Inn. Of West Town Inn. There you go. Yeah, Brian and Chris are doing that tag team dynamic where um, Chris is doing like Buddy Landell to Brian Lee's Butch Reed in a way. It's a weird dynamic and they you know they're the champions for a few months before uh they give them up but it's interesting watching all this happen while brian's being fake undertaker in wf too because yeah. he ha here he still has the blonde hair well then he, he has hasn't started hair. tv yet as fake undertaker so yeah. that's what i'm saying but yeah. but yeah but then he has to dye his hair so he's gonna smoke him out with the, with the black hair <laughs> yeah. as himself yes which is a dead giveaway to all the people watching that. That okay? Now we know who that is. Yeah. Now they do become more of a cohesive team as the summer goes on, though, right? Uh, sorta, yeah. Yeah, and of course, Chris Candido would never do the uh, partners who don't like each other gimmick again. <laughs> no. Huh. And it happened in a company he was helping book the next time. Interesting. Yeah. Funny how that works. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, your personality profile with less stature. Yeah, I mean, I like the southeastern version better, though, where it's the sit-down interview. And well, 
they don't have that in Smokey because they're not in the studio. They're in the high schools. Yeah. So that's a, the big difference. All right, let's begin the studios. Let's go to the USWA in Memphis as they had their 900th television show on May 14th. So let's go to the intro of that show and see how uh, Lance Russell, who wasn't there, opened the show up. So, well, 900 show on WMC, to be clear. WMC, correct, yes. Hello again, everybody. This is Lance Russell right along the ringside, remembering back that on March 1977, we did the very first show right here in the studio. I am delighted to be able to tell you that today we're going to be doing the 900th show from this studio. Enjoy. the old intro here. We don't have the USWA intro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they actually go right into Coliseum highlights to start. Yeah, because they're showing where Eddie Gilbert turned on Jerry Law at the Coliseum. Briefly. With the the Monday night before. Yeah, Eddie burned him up. And then we go to uh, <clears throat> Corey. Incredible situation right there. Eddie that Gilbert was throwing the fire at Jerry Lawler. Lawler coming over for the tag on his partner. And uh, you saw exactly what happened. We will have more to say about that as time goes on here today. We do have a big show for you. 900th show from the studio, as Lance told you. And some special matches to go along with it. Oh, indeed. Today, right here, Brian Christopher will be in the ring. We'll be seeing him in action. The USWA heavyweight champion and hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. We'll be uh, seeing him today in action as well. But that's not all, Ben. Doug Gilbert will be along. And a 10-man tag match right here today in the ring. It's been a long time since we had one of those. Anytime you have a tag match, you have a rough day for the referee, you put 10 of them in the ring, and look out, anything can happen. We're going to be back and uh, have all of that underway for you in just a couple of minutes. But first, some of the memories of 900 shows. You know, we did the Memphis Memories uh, uh, some time ago. Today we're going to show you some highlights. Take a look at this, (laughs) a classic. Uh, Andy Kaufman, the comedian, he and Jerry Lawler had run-ins from time to time, but there was also a classic confrontation between Kaufman and the mouth of the South, oh, Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart. Watch. Hear me, I gave him the benefit. So, there you go, 900 shows. All right, so to celebrate, they had a cake. What a shock, eh? Um, so when you got a cake involved, of course, the heels are going to come out there and uh, partake of the cake. And uh, Eddie Gilbert's one of those, so naturally. So let's uh, go to that, shall we, and see how uh, how the cake ended up uh, being done away with in pro wrestling fashion. So you want me to go straight to that then and not the first Eddie promo? Well, I mean, I'm going by what the notes say. So, I mean, again, this isn't on YouTube. You're having to get this from uh, Google Drive. Because the channel that had this on YouTube is gone. So, again, I'm just going, what, what what's in the notes? So, Okay, because the thing 
Yeah, first there's him eating cake with the group, and then a few segments later, we have... Yeah, if I had the video to look at myself, I would have picked and choose what I needed to, to put on here, but I, I don't have that. So he so. has a match with Colorado Kid, he wins, and then... All right. Yeah, but it, this is three against one. That's what it is. Oh, there's the finish. Yeah. yeah. Hot stuff comes off the middle rope like someone else we know. Gets the cover at three. And that'll do it. Now take the cake and get out of here. That is it. Take the cake. Get out of here. You've got the victory. An assist goes to the dream machine who interfered. Yeah. I don't care what he says. You can stand there holding the cake, looking innocent all you want to. We saw you trip him up. Eddie, the match is over. You've won the match. Okay, the three of you have teamed up to win. You know, sometimes I have a little respect and admiration for some... Hey, call out a kid. Come down here this second. Come on, Eddie. All right, remember what we've been... I don't know if you've seen a monitor. Trust me. Trust kid, my Rapata. Trust it. Watch yourself. You, this guy here has been lying to everybody the last couple of weeks, and I wouldn't trust him. You wouldn't eat it with us. Maybe we don't care. Well, stay band the weather clan. You know, kid, I got a little respect for you. It's not many times when I offer things to people because I'm kind of heartless, you know what I mean? But you being the type of person you are, I would like to offer you a piece of our royalty cake today. I want you to join in on the celebration. Okay, would you like a piece of our cake here? Eat some. You don't want any cake. Are you refusing me? You don't want no cake. You, you, you know what we do to people? Do them what we do to people. Come on. Uh, Gilbert nails him from behind here. Now it's three against one down here on the floor. It's not enough. They kinked up in the ring. They're shoving, taking them out of the floor. They had a piece of cake, not the whole cake. Well, I spoke too soon. You didn't want none of it. You didn't want no cake. Hi, Nina. Come on. Get back there. Lawler and Brian. Help arrives in the form of Jerry Lawler and Brian Christopher. After yet another... I'm not surprised. I'm not at all surprised this time. I, I, what, what more is this guy gonna do, Eddie Gilbert? Let's take a break. And they go to break showing Eddie, uh, well, Doug hitting uh, Lala with the car from '90. <clears throat> Is it me or did Eddie look different in that video? Uh, in what way? Facially. Oh no, he just didn't let Eddie Gilbert when he was talking to Rapata. I don't know. Just you're saying. Uh, I I don't really get what you're saying exactly here. And his his facials aren't the same as they usually are. I guess would be the way to put it. He's not using the same facial expressions necessarily. But yeah, how about he'll put in the cake in the face of the baby face? It's like right there. Look at him right there. You got him on pause, Bix. You see mm -hmm. it? He looks like, I mean, I don't know. He just looks different. Mm. 
You're right. I guess it's a, maybe it's just facial expressions. I think. I think so. You know, and, and <clears throat> let's say, um, this is his return from being gone for a while. He this is he was he he was in um, was he Puerto Rico at that point in time and came back. I think this is the first like. 90s Puerto Rico run for him. Yeah, it was- yeah. The Eddie timeline sometimes can be funky because he has you know Japan, Puerto Rico, blah 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 blah. blah. So, all right. Well, <clears throat> we get a, a taped interview with Jeff Jarrett and Eddie Marlin, where Marlin told Jarrett that he was on television every week and Jerry Lawler never said anything bad about him. And Dream Machine made it all up. And Eddie asked Jeff to team up with Lawler to call see him. So, um. I don't know if you want to play that or not. I, guess, I thought you, you did know. want to play it. Okay, well let's play it then. Let's let's see let's uh, let's now, hear this, shall we? As Lance oh, yeah. pointed out with a commentary. Yeah. Watch this. First, Jeff, I want to thank you for at least sitting here to talk about this thing after this whole night is is concluded. It was something else. I got to tell you the honest truth. I was I haven't had a chance to talk to you before. Uh, I was very surprised when I heard you listen to the garbage this dream machine has been putting out and what he says Lawler's been saying, and very disappointed in your attitude coming down here for this Well, match. Lance, you know, a lot of things have changed since the last time me and you talked. And quite frankly, ever since I've been to Memphis today, all I've heard is, Jeff, don't listen to the dream machine. Double J's, all the dream machine's talking about is lies. Amen. And, well, and then when I got to the building, Lance, that's all I heard. And then when I got to ringside, Lance, walking to the ring and I got up to the ring that's all I could hear is Double J don't listen to the thing yeah, Dream Machine's yeah, saying oh, let me finish Eddie oh, wait a minute wait a minute Jeff you know and Lance you know I come down to the TV every Saturday morning yes, sir. and I'm out here at the Coliseum every Monday night and honestly I've never heard Jerry Lawler say anything about you, bad about you even when you first started he said Eddie someday you'll be great and since you have become great and I'll say that he has told me that, said he's a great wrestler. Now, and I just come from his room, Jeff, and he's down in the dumps about what happened. And he said, I'd give anything in the world if Jeff could get another open date on a Monday night with the WWF so he could come down here. And he and I teamed together one more time and paid the dream machine and Eddie Gilbert well, what they did Let tonight. me just say, this isn't going to be the last time. I made the decision to come here tonight right. to be the dream machine's partner. And, you know, I'm letting the fans know that right now. I'm not going to cry over spilt milk and Dream Machine's going to bring me in here as my partner. I'm not going to put all the blame on him. I made the decision. Well, I'm making another decision. I don't know if I'm booked or not next Monday, but I'll make a point. I'll be here, and that's a promise to you and a promise to you, Lance. All right. And Eddie Gilbert, you Dream Machine especially. These two guys I've known since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. They've never lied to me, and I should have listened to them in the first place. So Dream Machine... You bring Eddie Gilbert down, and you, Eddie Gilbert, yeah, everybody wants to get to the top, and they'll do anything, and Double J will stand them toe-to-toe, face-to-face, right smack dead in the middle of the face and tell them, hey, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No, but you got to do some come low-down, dirty deed. Mm. <laughs> well, Monday night, next Monday night, the King and Double J, Dream Machine and Eddie Gilbert, you better get ready because you're looking at the two greatest wrestlers in the world today. That is going to be worth being there to see. Man, what a match that's going to be. Double J and the King teamed up again, and I expect a different set of circumstances after this week. That's, I mean, Jeff has only been gone now for, what, six, seven months. Yeah. 
So this is like the, 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 the really the first time he had been back as Double J. Mm-hmm. And he's fully ingrained in that Double J gimmick. So it's interesting seeing him in the Double J gimmick in Memphis at this time. Yes. You know, doing that. He's Double J, but he's also J. <clears throat> yeah, he's both. Yes. I Lawler did an interview, which is here, where he talked about Mother's Day and said his mother warned him never to trust Eddie Gilbert and said he should have listened to his mother. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, I feel like he did that interview enough over the years that we don't really need to play it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a line yeah. he used a few times. Yeah. Another angle came when Spike Hubert did an interview saying he's rededicating himself to wrestling and then Bull Payne came out and the two argued, which leads to a match at the Coliseum, which we'll get into in a second. All right, May 16th for the Missile Coliseum, headlined by Lawler and Jarrett versus Dream Machine. Andy Gilbert drew 1,450 fans and an $8,900 gate, which is well above average. That tells you something right there. Heels wound up losing by DQ and reverse decision. At the original referee, Scott Bowden ruled in the winner. Bowden looks to be headed towards a, a uh, it says towards a rule as a, a role, I guess. Yeah. Now, as I read it, a role as a heel manager. Indeed. Oh, yes. Yes, our dear friend, dear friend Scott, whose uh, birthday was last week. I'm just still sad that he's not here with us. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah, he's on his way to that. Absolutely. All right, rest of the card here. Nightmare Kim Wayne beat Colorado Kid in the opener. Spellbind over Reggie B. Fine. Spike Huber with Bull Payne. Debbie Cones retained the USWA women's title over Robbie Rage. The the other one, not high voltage. Well, she's not really the other one if she came first. Well, the uh, it doesn't matter who comes first. It's the other one, no matter what, uh, the mm-hmm. other ones. Um, Moondogs went to WQ with uh, Bad Breed, actually Ian Rotten. The Eliminator, Saturn and Coronas retained the USWA tag titles, beating the Spiders, the future headbangers. Singapore came match. Boy, that, that, uh, that thing's becoming a deal, isn't it? <laughs> you can tell what's in the news as uh, Brian Christopher continues to be a title beating Doug Gilbert and then Lawler and Jared over Eddie Gilbert and Dream Machine by disqualification. Well, is it a good time then to pull up the caning of Michael Fay Wikipedia page? <clears throat> I mean, that's that's where all that came from. But this is, I mean, this is the time where that was a you know a big story. Uh, the the caning itself for his vandalism charges, uh, was uh, May fifth. Yeah. So it's very fresh. Yeah. So yeah, but I mean that's a I mean that's an interesting looking roster at this time because you got your mixture of your southern guys, you got your mixture of um, young northeast talent and like the eliminators and the, the spiders and bad stuff. Breed. You got yeah. bad breeds here, you know. Interesting crew at this point in time in Memphis. Spike Huber. Is back. Spike Eber returning. Yeah. Yeah. So, interesting group. Global Wrestling Federation. May 13th for the Sport of Tour in front of 250 fans. We have John Hawk, Bradshaw Layfield over Bo Vegas. Scott Putsky over Dapper Dan Davis. No, that's just Dapper Dan, not Danny Davis. That's, we'll tell that to the Observer. I don't think that's Dapper Dan the, was billed as Dapper Dan Davis, was he? That's what the results say. <clears throat> um, John Hawk and Nick Golden over Bo Vegas and Jeff Michaels. I think that's Devin Michaels. But yeah. yeah. Mike Davis over Alice to Plug Porto. 
In the tornado match, Axon Jackson and Chris Adams beat Ice Man King Parsons and Rob Price by disqualification. Hmm. Global is uh, kind of circling the drain here. Yeah, they did reboot their TV, though, not long before this. Yeah, but still, you're getting ready for a croc in the come in with his uh, little group. Yeah. <clears throat> not too long after this. All right. CMLL, the oldest still running wrestling organization in the world, debuted in the mid 1930s, came across the border on May 14th for the reopening of the Olympic Auditorium, now called the Grand Olympic Auditorium, which in the 1960s and 70s was the home of pro wrestling in Los Angeles. Okay, so wait a second. It was never called the Grand Olympic Auditorium before 94? Mm mm. Just the Olympic. I don't think I knew that. Okay. Mm hmm. Yeah. And interesting that Dave's only saying the 60s and 70s, not, uh, you know, other decades, but oh well. The first show drew an estimated 3,800 fans, of which 3,300 were paid, in the 7450 seat building. Tickets were priced from 32 down to 12. However, most of the cheaper seats were filled while the expensive seats were largely empty. Virtually every report we received noted that the people felt $32 was far too much to charge for such a weak light up, and that the price garnered a lot of fan resentment. It is believed break even was about 4,000 paid, so the turnout was disappointing. Although the house probably exceeded $45,000, which is still considerably more than any U.S. promotion said WF and AAA have been able to draw for regular house shows in years. The show first under the banner of the MWF, the Mexican Wrestling Federation, that's, was headlined uh, by... That's the promotion that was running Compton in this era, right? That's correct. Was headlined by Vampiro Caradiense and Harry Lisco Jr. and teaming up with Blue Damon Jr., Beating Petoff, Black Magic Number Smiley, and Grand Marcus Jr. in the main event. Okay, here's the thing. This is a early to mid-90s observer. Why is Dave using Vampiro's correct name? <laughs> I don't Why know. is he Canadian Vampire Casanova? I guess that's who he got the results from. I don't know. Mm. Can't ever tell. Dave is Dave. Um... The spots for Vampiro and Black Magic work drew the most heat on the show because the two worked out great shoot spots. No surprise, the best work and the best match on the show were said to be Reina Jabuki, Akira Hokuto, and the women's match. Although Jabuki didn't do much for routine and La Diabolica was absolutely awful and nearly ruined the match. They also ran an angle of the show, introducing Salvador Chavito Guerrero III, the son of Chavo Guerrero who was the biggest drawing card in the building for much of the late 70s, with a legendary few, Roddy Piper, and grandson of Gordy Carrero. During a match where his father and uncle, Mondo, teamed with Jalisco, number one, against Tornado Negro 2, Principal Indu, and Thunder Machine. Tornado Negro was struck out of the ring, took a bump onto Chavito, which caused pushing and shoving back and forth. Chavito then ripped, uh, then tripped uh, Tornado Negro, causing him to get pinned by Chavo Sr. in the third fall, and will probably debut in shortly. So there you go, Chavo Jr. His first uh, big wrestling angle. This might even be his first, I think his first match is at the Olympic, isn't it? Or was it in Paris? <clears throat> I think it was in the Olympic. But the results of the show, uh, Piloto Suicida, Mercurio, and Cosmos beat Crazy Boy, Lover Boy, and Bobby Bradley Jr., three and a quarter stars. The Paro Negro, El Puma, and Pequeño Hacon over Superboy, Capitan Oro, and Makina Infernal by Countout. One star. Lady Apache and Cinthia Moreno over Reina Jabuki and La Diabolica, three and a quarter stars. Chavo, Mondon Guerrero, Nisco and one over Tornado Negro two. Prince Hindu and Thunder Machine. That's Augie Loya. That's Thunder Machine, one star. 
Pánico, Acajones de la Muerte, en El Fierro, over Arriga Mendoza, Águilas Alteria, en Máscara Mágica, Three Quarters of a Star, en El Fierro, Arroyo, en Damon, over Pedroff, Black Magic, and Grand Marcus Jr., Three Stars. Hmm. Wait, you could see when this lineup, why $32 would be seen as a little high. But they still drew. Yeah, but they didn't break even. No. <laughs> That's a problem. Um... I mean, I know you have the hookup with the SoCal guys at this time, but kind of interesting to see. I mean, I'm assuming it's not someone using the same name. So, like, because I don't remember ever seeing another one. So is Leopardo Negro here a SoCal guy, or is that Hanzo Nakajima? I would think it's a SoCal guy. You think maybe it's a SoCal guy who got the name from Mishinoku Pro, maybe? Yeah, probably. Okay. Like, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world if it was him, but I don't think he did, like, an excursion or anything, did he? No. Not that I know of. It's probably, again, probably some SoCal guy using using the name and or gear, gimmick. This is, what, May 14th? Let's see. Mention of GoPro, we just talked about them. Uh, yeah, he just worked, he's working uh, Mention of GoPro that day before. Not him. Okay. So just like I thought. Overall reports on the show were predominantly that was good, although others called it fair at best. And all said it was nothing compared with the AAA shows. Security, the biggest fear most people have about attending shows in Olympic, was excellent. Car was tape for airing on Channel 22 in Los Angeles with Miguel Alonso, the longtime time Spanish language announcer handling the play-by-play. Arroyo got the biggest pop upon introduction, but Vampiro was the most over by the end of the show. <clears throat> The MWF working with CMLF show scheduled for May 28th, June 11th, and June 25th at the Olympic. <clears throat> with virtually everyone believing that because of the prices and frequency of the shows, the group is doomed. They have a June 19th day book at Anaheim Convention Center, although such a change is always a major factor. And I don't think they <clears throat> really keep up, do they? No. But there's also a thing where... Maybe not in this era, but definitely in the early 2000s. Hmm. There were shows run that the only people that knew about it were the people like on the SoCal on social message board and shit. Yes. I, I, I was the only one that was really going there regularly and, tra- and getting these shows and reporting them to the masses. Especially because from, from uh, FMLL. FMLL, yeah. yeah, because their website was wonky and they re- they didn't update it much and everything. So, <clears throat> so yeah, there was all kind of shows that were going on. It just wasn't known secrets, so to speak. Yes, yes, and if the show aired on Channel Twenty Two, I've never seen it, and a lot of the Channel Twenty Two stuff is out there. Um, I know I, I just watched the other day the handheld from November okay. in the building where Eddie worked under WCB contract. You mean November 95? Yeah, November 95, yeah. That was an IWC show. That was Scholar involved in that one. Yeah, that was completely separate. Yeah. I know, but I'm saying, but it was at the Olympic, though. So no, they, that I mean, show, there were no, shows. That shows, that shows at the Forum. Sports Arena, Sports Arena, that's right. Sports no, 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 no right, it's at the Forum, right. that show. I thought it was at Sports Arena. Look, like Sports Arena to me. No, I'm pretty sure that's the show that's at the forum where Scholar said it didn't draw because the Lucha fans, the Mexicans, didn't want to go to the forum. <clears throat> it looked like the Sports Arena. 
I'm pretty sure the CMLL Los Angeles handheld from from that era with Eddie Guerrero is at the forum. You're right. You're right. Great Western Forum. Well, let's sure did damn well at the sports arena. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, I mean, there, there were shows in Los Angeles off and on throughout the 90s featuring, you know, name Mexican talent, other than the AAA shows, which everybody knows about. But it just wasn't really out there for the masses. Yeah. And as the year goes on, MWF uh, switches to booking mainly AAA talents when they book outside names. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I believe, like, most of the MWF Compton shows from this era are on YouTube now, courtesy of Roy Lusher, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Oregon, the Oregon Professional Wrestling Federation on May 14th in Portland. We have John Rambo over Ole Olson, Bruiser Bryan over the Bodyguard, Colonel DeBeers over Brian Brown, The Grappler over the Riot Maker, Buddy Rose and Buddy Wayne over Mike Miller and Bar Sawyer, and Moondog Moretti over Scott Norton. <clears throat> well, that's a car with names on it, isn't it? <laughs> it it makes me think, okay, so are any of these people not working for Sandy Bar? Because the Rambo thing hasn't come to a head yet, right? What's the OPWF? Um, Sandy Bar's Championship Wrestling USA, right? I think they changed the name by this point in time. But they're not the same thing, are they? I'm checking to make sure to see. Okay, they're not the same thing. Well, they're the same talent. <laughs> okay, so everyone's just working for both promotions. Okay. Yeah, basically. All right, let me see who's promoting OPWF. Well, it's Billy Jack Haynes with his friends at the World Wrestling Federation since it has wrestling. It's Billy Jack it's Billy Jack Haynes. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, Billy Jack. So first he had the OWF and then he had the OPWF. The yeah. Oregon Wrestling Federation, and then the Oregon Pro Wrestling Federation. Yeah. But did this but one also they... uh work with the WWF by having Pro Res- excuse me, Wrestling Federation at its time? No, we're with uh Giant Baba. But uh, cause they got oh, the, the Oregon there. Pacific Wrestling Federation. Yes, yeah. But um, but yeah. Um, so I guess Billy Jack Haynes and Sandy Barr didn't have any issues or something. So I guess they could work together, sharing talent. I mean, nobody's running a full schedule. Um, oh no, Billy Jack Haynes has quit the OPWF because I pulled up the April Ring around the Northwest. So it was that Barber guy, man. I saw Ron Barber. Mm. Yeah, Ron Barber is the owner. It says Billy Jack Haynes, 1994, Ron Barber, 94 to 95. Okay. Oh, we have a backstory here. Okay. This is easily the most complex subject I have ever covered, writes Mike Rogers. To understand it, you may have to read this piece several times. I've tried to understand what has made it so complex, and I think I figured that part out, but that doesn't help follow the total situation. Uh, two distinct stories have blended together. Okay. Bruce Anderson and the commission and their beef with Sandy Barr. Sandy's been forced to go to Washington and that uh, may have worked out the be- for the best for everyone involved. Anderson has to be happy to- that he's rid the state of Barr. Barr can actually charge admission fees again and has the opportunity to make money. Barr has run his last two weeks in Oregon without changing charging admission or parking. Uh, and then Billy Jack quit the OPWF over multiple reasons. This is where the stories start to blend together. Haynes started working for Barr, despite receiving threatening phone calls from someone in Barr's camp, and despite Barr 
can, thinking, and despite it says ranking Barr continuously on recent radio shows. This partnership only lasted several weeks before the inevitable happened, and they went their own way. Haynes also has had an allegiance with Bruce Anderson and worked closely with Anderson in preparation for the OPWF. As things fell apart for Haynes with the OPWF, he has thrown much of the blame to Anderson. Uh, and then he talks to Billy Jack, and, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but uh, Oregon. I mean, think about it this way. What other region had so much drama to mine for a monthly newsletter in this era after you don't really have territories anymore? Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, whatever we've read from Ring Around the Northwest on this show, there's always something, you know? <clears throat> the thing is, and when I, you know, you got Sandy Barr running shows for free just because he wanted to run in Oregon. What kind of mark promoter shit is that? Yeah, why aren't you running in Vancouver, Washington, which is right there, and charging? Good lord. So only because you want to fuck with Bruce Anderson? Because he was fucking yeah. with you? That's a mark promoter shit right there. Yeah, I'm going to cut my nose off to spite my face. I'm not going to charge any money. Well, he did charge for parking. Well. Most of the time. It's only the last couple of weeks of shows that he wasn't charging for parking. Yeah. Jesus. Wrestling workouts, Chris. Uh-huh. Like in the 60s. Yeah. 50s. Exhibitions. Right. Exhibitions. Not a competition. Please no wager. These are uh, these matches are under uh, are of exhibition nature. Yes, and the winners have been selected by the promoter. Well, no, you got to give the uh, the Vince McMahon spiel from uh, the old TV shows about that. Well, the California thing was the matches the winners have been selected by the promoters, but yeah, yeah, Vince wasn't doing that shit. No. These are of an exhibition nature. So there you go. All right, now let's close with everyone's favorite world championship wrestling, and we start with the Pro Wrestling Torch. <clears throat> Not since Great American Bash 91, when Ric Flair was fired from WCW before his scheduled pay-per-view title defense against Lex Luger, has a major event been played with so many pre-event problems? Mm-hmm. He's talking about Slamboree. As of deadline, it appeared Barry Wyndham did finally get medical clearance to wrestle Ric Flair on Sunday, but given Wyndham's history, nothing is for sure until it happens. And even then, and honestly, he probably shouldn't have gotten clearance. Uh, yeah. Early last week, Rick Root injured his neck and aggravated his back, causing the miss his scheduled appearances. That's an understatement. This, sa- this Saturday, according to a report out the Orlando Worldwide TV tapings, Root handed over the WCW International title belt and quit wrestling due to his health and with, frustration with WCW. Root is believed to have an insurance policy in case of injury, much like fellow Minnesotans, Kurt Henning, Nikita Koloff, and Royal Animal, who have collected it on policies in recent years. It is something, before I continue a route, it is something that the most famous people with Lloyd's of London's packages were all people from Minnesota. And Brett. Well, but still. Uh, if Rude and D cannot or will not participate in any future matches, at least WCW went out an international champion about a main event opponent for Vader on Sunday at Slamboree. With most WW, WCW officials in Orlando, through Monday, we could not get confirmation on the status of Slamboree's two world title main events for deadline. This disarray could be blamed on Ric Flair and his booking assistants. But it's only fair to point out all that major feuds through San Marie were booked by Dusty Rhodes before his departure from the head booking position, including booking Wyndham for a main event before he received medical clearance. WCW deserves credit from learning from this experience. 
as they have found them to be true, what many predicted, booking three months ahead is too stressful and risky given the volatile nature of the wrestling industry. At this week's tapings in Orlando, and like the past two go-arounds, they did not commit themselves to any major angles. <clears throat> Excuse me, which is good for their sanity, but not necessarily for the content of the worldwide syndicated shows. That does not take away from the awful position WCW's in leading up to this pay-per-view. Fans will not know until match time that Ric Flair's wrestling in Slamboree. They did not know until Saturday whether Flair Ricky Steamboat would be in the main event. WCW can get away with this type of booking if their product was over with his fans. The problem is WCW has a lot of rebuilding to do, both in terms of convincing the fans that feuds will have satisfying inclusive finishes. Dusty during his years as Booker conditioned fans to believe there really would be payoffs to major feuds. And earn the fans' trust that a match will take place as advertised. Yeah. <laughs> Let's continue with that. Last weekend, WCW considered an oversight, quote-unquote, when the changes in his two-man event schedule from Miami House show went, on, went without explanation. If WCW considers the changes in main events not worthy of an explanation, then why should fans consider worthy the, ori- the original schedule matches in the first place? A message sent to fans when advertised matches are changed, especially when it happens often without consistent and credible explanations. <clears throat> WCW needs more than improved announcing position, announcing production values to rebuild goodwill with viewers through consistency and compelling booking. So far, Air Bishop, Riff Flair, and company have earned a D in this area at best. <clears throat> the Flair Steamboat scenario was confusing and relying upon nostalgia to get over. It featured number one babyface playing a subtle heel because of the confusing nature of the feud. There was little the announcers could do to help explain it to viewers. What's worse, Flair and Steamboat was the center of attention on television leading up to the pay-per-view. It has nothing to do with the pay-per-view's lineup. Meanwhile, Rude and Vader was not explained well. Bay and Rude had disagreement, but there was any type of sophisticated build-up analyzing the novelty of these two wrestlers facing each other. Instead, the match was fed into the auto-hype machine WCW has, which includes canned interviews from a video board, a scripted plug by Gene Oakland, and a few mentions by announcers during squash matches, a system that tends to blend together and be overwhelmingly antiseptic. It looks good on television, but doesn't sell tickets. Fortunately for WCW, it looks like Slam would draw well in Philadelphia, with Kevin Sullivan, Terry Font, Tully Blanche, and Ric Flair and Cactus Jack, all Philly favorites, on the show. It is strong local interest, but nationally it could be a major flop. After Slamboree, Ric Flair gets a clean slate. With Kevin Sullivan being hired as an assistant to Flair, new ideas should flood the booking meetings. With Terry Funk being brought in for television and next pay-per-view, the talent level moves up a notch. Now they can only get through this Sunday with their sanity and without losing too much more credibility. Well, just you wait, Wade. Hulk Hogan's on the way. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, WCW had a lot of problems. In this era, we're booking a lot of problems. Yeah. So, and where do we want to start with all this <clears> stuff? <throat> we'll um, just start from the start from the top. What, what catches your eye here? I mean, Wyndham, I think we already pretty much said our piece. I don't think there's that much to add on that one. Rude. Okay, I'm trying to remember because I feel like we tried to figure this out on a previous show based on when it would have aired on TV and then hit America. Has anyone seen the rude injury yet? I mean, do people even know it's from the Tokyo Dome? Ma- I mean, excuse me, the Fukuoka Dome match yet? Uh, I don't know if it's aired yet or not. I mean, well, actually, well, no, the the it aired on TV in some form like a week before, so people would have at least seen the finish. But the in- I don't think the injury spot aired on TV in the U.S. So it would have been 
depends on when it aired in Japan and then got over here. But, you know, we've talked about it a million times. Like, you see that spot, you totally understand how his back got completely fucked up by it. Well, yeah. You know, for those who aren't aware, the ring was on a platform at the Fukuoka Dome. Sting did a <laughs> big dive onto Rude. Probably should have done it by the ramp. But Rude ended up catching Sting and landing as he took the bump half on the platform, half off the platform, and it just crushed some of his vertebrae. Yeah, it was not good. Yeah. You know, like, and he already had the neck issues that had been plaguing him for over a year and a half. So, yeah, this is this is one guy who I think we can agree was not taking advantage of Lloyd's of London. No. Not in the slightest. Not at all. And, yeah, the booking was weird for that Vader thing, because they didn't really do any angles or anything coming out of Spring Stampede. It was just like, here's what happened. Vader and Harley accidentally cost Rude the title. Well, yeah, Rude Rude attacks Vader with a chair. But, I mean, they really cool it off. I mean, it really cools off because they don't really follow up that much. It's just, okay, this match is happening. Yeah. So. And I think part of that's got to do with the whole change in bookers as well. I don't know. I mean, when you go through a booking change like this and the pay-per-views on the horizon, you got like a lame duck period in ways. And Flair's obviously pushing him in Steamboat because it's Flair. That's his program. So that's the thing. And we've seen this in wrestling before, too. When we talked about in the show where you have these programs taking place on television that have more meaning or get more hype than the darn pay-per-view matches is. Yeah. In this case, you can see exactly what happened. Dusty mapped out everything for the Orlando tapings that were filling out through Slamboree. Flair's like, okay, I'm stuck with Dusty's pay-per-views through May. So, in the meantime, which I guess means that did they do anything on Worldwide promoting Flair Steamboat for Spring Stampede? For Spring Stampede? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, but it's still, you gotta get the idea, so it's like, okay, this Wyndham thing is weird. Okay, I'll continue my program with Steamboat on TV in the interim. Yeah, on Saturday night, where we're taping the new TV. Like, certainly seems like that's what happened. Um... You get what Bischoff was trying to do with Disney. I believe him when he said it says it helps helped with sponsors and stuff. But the taping so many months at a time just was never gonna work. Well Especially if you were creative the shows up. And, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean if you're just taping matches to have matches, that's one thing. Right. Yes, as the shows would turn into eventually. But at this point, they're still being treated as A-level syndicated shows. And so you have to book out the programs, and then shit happens because you're booking so many months ahead, and we know the history of everything with the Disney tapings. Um, is this the furthest out any WCW booker has had to like wait for the previous booker's like, pay-per-views and stuff to clear out. You know, because, you know, Dusty was the booker the whole way through in 92. But 
you know, Watts was a pay-per-view or two behind to implement his changes. But it wasn't anything like this, where Flair took over the book in, like, January, February, and now we're well into May by the time the show happens, and you're still clearing out what Dusty's booked. Like, that's a long lag time. And honestly, it's a credit to Flair that the shows were as good as they were at the time. Well, when Flair, I mean, Flair's replaced the book, he's replaced by Kevin Sullivan, who was helping him book. But Sullivan only just started at this point. I'm saying, uh, when Flair is gone... He's replaced by Kevin Sullivan, who was helping him book. Yes. yes. So you, you got the uh, assistant taking over the booker. Right, position. and I'm sure, like before, Sullivan was the one actually writing the TVs. And you got the same thing happens with when Sullivan with Terry Taylor. Terry Taylor was his, you know, assistant, and Terry Taylor takes over. Yeah. So this is the first one. This is like the I think the last time up until Russo, where you have a totally different person coming in that wasn't involved in the booking process before. Hmm. That Flair was? Flair wasn't involved in the booking process with Dusty. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you think that's the first since when? It's the last. Oh, the, the last, last. last. Before Russo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sounds right. Because, o- well, Oli didn't have no booking power, as far as I know, before uh, he took over. Uh, on the 93 he wasn't on any co- well no there was no committee at that time that's why yeah, it was Watts yeah. Watts it was, and Dusty. Dusty yeah well no Oli wasn't even in the company well no Oli was not Oli was brought back by Watts and then but he didn't really have much Oli was the, the referee yeah until... yeah but I don't know if, I, I think he was done, hadn't been doing that for a while before he took over as the uh, boss I think he was still on staff but <clears> I don't know what he was doing yeah he's probably getting paid well, it's WCW, of course he was. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you look at, um, you know, Dusty, when he comes back, of course, he was in WWF. He had, he went in there, so. But Flair's the last one that that would happen with, so. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of shit going on behind the scenes, and. You know, waste some of the consistency, compelling booking, all this other stuff. I mean, you, you're going to get Hogan coming in, <clears throat> and everything's going to be circled around him. Yeah. So I guess there's there's some consistency there. I guess. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and WWE's lucky to slammers in Philadelphia in a way because of uh, you know, that crowd being what they were, taking to DCW guys and. You know, being hot for the for some for some more than others. Well, also just doing Chicago and Philly back to back helped, I think. Yeah, and doing hardcore hardcore wrestling on the show as well, and stuff like that. And it did have Hogan, so that helped out as well. All right, May fourteenth on WCW Saturday Night, Rick Flair and Ricky Steamboat had a had a big match, drew a two point four rating. Which is only slightly above the average for a show with a preview quality main event for the held up supposedly most important title in the group. There are no simple answers to WCW's problems, but dropping every belt except for one single, one tag team will at least hopefully make the one title left have some meaning and hopefully will mean enough to draw a rating. As it is now, all the belts are totally useless because fans don't care about them as anything special. Therefore, they sell no tickets and barely make a blitz worth of difference 
when put on television for free when it comes to ratings. Even more embarrassing is WF two days later, Yokozuna Earthquake and a sumo match to a 3.5 rating on Raw. Clarence Demo Super Match, four and a quarter stars in Dave's estimation. First four matches better than their Chicago match, although Chicago had better last few minutes. <clears throat> the finish for Flair delivered a shoulder block that was supposed to be a low blow as Steamboat attempted the leapfrog after more than 35 minutes came off as weak, partially because it looked weak, and also because the announcers didn't sell it well as the low blow it was supposed to be. In addition, Chad stated earlier, now that we've seen the fireworks and confetti ending the show when titles change hands, that's the current state of the art. To have title changes without the big explosive post-match celebration is to make those title changes seem both uneventful and unimportant. In the case of Flair Steamboat, they had a tremendous match that was built as a title change that had no post-match celebration that five minutes after it was over came off as having no importance or impact. <clears throat> Which goes against the very idea of working 35-minute great matches. In comparison to Black Cat versus Moscato Sagrado on the same weekend of that match had actually slightly better psychology. A lot more heat came off afterwards having tons more impact. You know, without question, Flair and Steamboat are far superior wrestlers and eventually put on much more impressive performances. Okay. Before you know, we get to what Wade has about the show itself and the match itself. Um, so the ratings thing is actually worse than Dave lets on here. So I pulled up Matt Watch. The April average for Saturday night had been a 2.2. So this is above that by uh, two ticks. The March average had been 2.5. So Flair yeah. Steamboat for 35 minutes that you just had main event a pay-per-view for the held-up world title did a tick less than the March average. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's not It's not good, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, and I guess to see what the momentum Raw has at this point, yeah, they did right above the April average with the Sumo show, because April was <coughs> 24. Picked up big from March, which was averaging a 2.9. So, positive ratings momentum for the World Wrestling Federation. With their flagship show, not so much for WCW. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, Flair and Steamboat was what it was. It was two baby faces against each other, coming off a review. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Now, relative to the surrounding weeks, it did well, because the week before, it did a 2-0. So then they went up to a 2-4. And then they went back down on May 23rd to a 1-9. Well, at least there's that. At least uh, at least they look good in that, in that comparison. Yeah, and then May 30th was a 2-3. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about the whole show here from The Torch. Focus to the two-hour program was split between Hype and Slamboree and the Flair Steamboat feud and match. Show went a preview of the main event and then the public promo, but then the rest of the show went through the usual routine of Hyping matches with squashes and interviews. Rude wanted to squash and screamed to the microphone. During Rude's squash, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan did some comedy, but there were lulls in the match where they had nothing to say. <clears throat> the match wasn't that long, and if they ran out of elements of the Rude Vader feud to talk about that quickly, it says something about the depth of the angle between those two for a pay-per-view main event. Yeah, I mean, that's not good. The commentary is not focusing on that feud and the angle. Which, you know, doesn't no matter in the end anyway, since Rude didn't work. But still, you know. Yeah. Nasty Boys want to squash. Sad to devastating looking knee drop on Brad Anderson. They did a horrible top rope elbow for the finisher. Dustin Rose want to squash. Gave an interview. Best interview from the show came from Larry Zabisco. His confidence and inflection projected behind the mic is rivaled by few in the industry. 
He did a Bayface interview, but portrayed himself as evil in the process. Well, see, that was the best thing about Larry Zbyska. When he was a babyface, he was Larry Zbyska. Yes. A same guy. He just has different motivations. Is this promo on YouTube at all? Because I see we don't have it in the clips. No. No, the show's not on YouTube. So, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this is the Regal feud. Yeah. So, it's just a different motivations. But it's still Larry's greatness. It being who he was. Sherry continued to hear about signing a wrestler while flirting with Gene Oakland. Since you were Sherry. <clears throat> Tech Slash and Shanghai Pierce got beaten up by a partnerless Kevin Sullivan. The injured Dave Sullivan was a scheduled partner. Nasty Boys ran out and attacked Kevin, but Cactus Jack made the save. So let's go to that, shall we? Let's see what happens here with Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. From Boston. Blinken, you'll miss it. The first reference to him losing his ear on WCW television, presumably. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like for something that Mick talked so much about in his first book, and that was talked about a lot at the time, it does get lost to history just how insane it is that they did not try to turn that into business at all. Yeah. And make a bigger baby face out of it, yeah. yeah you're right. Especially since he's already so over with the fans that are watching at the time. Like you I think part bigger. of it is, I think part of it is, is that even at this point in time, Hogan's coming in. They know that. And their eggs are in the Hogan basket. And they know. Well, they knew back in March when he lost his ear that something might be happening, right? Yeah, so they know the deal. Start that one out up there in a the ring. There were bodies flying everywhere. Kevin Sullivan off. Kevin Sullivan, Cactus Jack. Let's see if we can get you in here, gentlemen. What in the world is going on? Tex and uh, what's happening is uh, the nasty boys got my brother Dave in the dressing room and injured his leg severely. They try to put they don't want Sullivan's. They try to put this Sullivan up because they don't want to meet me in Philadelphia. And Mr. Oakland, I told you a long time ago I was here for two reasons. You did. The nasty boys and you. 
You left my brother stranded. I sent him here to WCW, and you didn't take care of him. Kevin, don't well, do that. Let's get something straight right now, Kevin. You may have pushed your brother around like that. You may have pushed me around like that five years ago, but I'm telling you, put that hand back where it belongs before one of us gets hurt. Well, what are you saying, that you didn't misuse my brother? I'm saying that I'm not a babysitter, and you should have known his limitations. But as much as I hate your guts, and as much as I wish I'd slapped your fat face five years ago, Kevin, I can't help thinking that in a city like Philadelphia, we belong together like two peas in a pod, like two nuts in a shell. Bang, bang! You know, Cactus Jack, one thing that you are, you are low, you are devious, and you're no good, but you're not a so let's make one thing clear. Hardcore it is in Philadelphia. One time only. Slamboree. Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. And let me tell you something. Philadelphia, Mr. Oakland, you know what the nasty boys, Cactus Jack and John Crook, are going to have in common. What's that, sir? They're all going to be missing a part of their anatomy. Oh, please hear me up. Molly. WCW TV tapings uh, at Disney MGM continue through this Tuesday. How about okay. that? Plugging for t- for Disney. Uh, did you get that line about uh, John Crook? Yes. John Crook uh, played for Philadelphia Phillies, and in '94, he they found that he had testicular cancer, and he had to remove that testicle. Yes. So we got them talking about Katniss in his ear again. John Crook and his testicle, and uh, talk about the nasty boys losing a body part as well. So, <clears throat> I do love how they they are definitely booking this match in particular, especially for the ECW fans. Yes, you just tell that they're feeding that. It makes sense. It's the perfect thing to do. Mm-hmm. And just the Philly style fan in general. Yeah. So. So yeah. All right, so then we get Rick Flair and Ricky Steamboat. After Steamboat leapfrog Flair, uh, and Flair ran head first into the groin, Flair pinned him. After the match, we get a horrible angle. But let's talk, let's, let's play the finish to the match first, shall we? So let's go to the finish here, and let's see what happens with uh, Flair and Steamboat and how this happened. This is tremendous. Runs him into the ropes. Rolls him up. Two. Flair's got to be careful pushing up. You leave your shoulders down sometimes. Can you believe they can still stand and chop? No, I can't. Into the ropes. Oh, what a classic. Over the top, Flair goes. The foot right to the jaw. It's going to be a fluke. One of them is going to win it on a fluke. Her hand's got to be tired by now. Flair just leaning on Steamboat. Now leaning on the mat. He's got the legs. One, two, only a two. Flair clinching. Flair to the ropes. Oh, boy, the head. All right, pause. The head. 
It didn't even look like a groin shot. It did. It didn't. I mean, it looked like Flair. Instead of ducking under Steamboat, he got his shoulder up. It yeah, looks like a shoulder uh, to the bread basket. But Steamboat's in the air, so it's supposed to come off as a shot to the groin. But right. it's supposed to come off as Doc when the, um, you know, uh, that whole thing. Yeah, so let's see how the announcers play this up. finish well yeah i mean doubly so because yeah he's gonna be turning back heel in a month or two but at this point he's about to turn back from subtle heel to straight babyface again in a minute so huh yes yeah it is it, it's intricate i guess is the word maybe to use for it i don't know but let's go yeah let's go to uh gene who's with uh rick flat at the post match and colonel parker shows up wanting uh Flair to join his side. Oh, that it's going to be the nature boy, Rick Flair, a week from tomorrow night in Philadelphia at Slamboree, defending against Colonel Robert Parker's well-stable stud. We now know that it's going to be Flair. Now I want to know, who is your stable stud? Before I do, let, let me tell you, this here suitcase has become the most popular suitcase in all of the world. I talked about it holding the gold. It's not actually gold that it holds. It's the cash here. I want Mr. Flair now. He's going to be the man to meet my Mr. Man at Slamboree. Colonel, who is this mystery man? I'll tell you more about that later. You know, Flair, I gotta say it. Here you are, a styler and a profiler. That's for sure. But your ignorance has no boundaries to sell out million dollars worth of gold for a hundred thousand dollars in a war-out suitcase. I want him to come on out here and take hold of it. This here belongs to him now. Uh, uh, I'm gonna that... leave myself with a handcuff here. All right, first of all, congratulations, Nature Boy Ric Flair, and once again, being the WCW <coughs> heavyweight title holder. What about this mystery man of Colonel Parker? Gene, I have always tried to deal in this sport with issues at hand in the last month i've had to deal with one of the greatest of all time 
Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat. Great one. Now, now I'm dealing with a man who I am more than happy to take. We're going to see that one time. Let's show the world what we got right here. I've been waiting for this a long time. Open up one time. Open up. Why don't you hold it like this? Temporarily. That's the real thing, sir. <laughs> Gene, to the nature, boy style and profile with that. Could he? You kidding me? You mean right now, it's mine for signing on a dotted line, right? If you take a walk. Oh, well, you know what? This is used in hand now. Just one more. You don't mind, do you? Not at all. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> we just decked him. I forget why was he giving him money? <laughs> he wanted him to walk away from the match or something. It's or very convoluted. To get him to take the match? It's convoluted, yes. Whatever. I know. It's, it's I mean it's it's it's, it's what Way's talking about. It's confusing ass shit that's going on at the time. And how about that uh six six three hundred pound blonde farmer world champion who has Personal animosity for Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're bringing in Hulk Hogan anyway. Why are you doing this? I know it's so stupid. Are they, are they even only? Are, also, are they only bringing in Barry Windham because of this whole stupid thing? Uh, yeah, I think so. Why? WCW, everybody. That's why. <laughs> we haven't said it yet, but it, it needs to have. It needs to say that. WCW, everybody. I guess so. All right. Wade uh, gave a scorecard here. Match quality, 19 out of 20. A G purpose, 8 out of 20. Angles, 3 out of 10. <laughs> Interviews, 8 out of 10. Announcing, 7 out of 10. Oh, sorry. Production values, 8 out of 10. Pacing continuity, 7 out of 10. And send the tune in next week, 6 out of 10. Giving it a score, 66 out of 100. For a show with that match? Yeah. I feel like you're getting a little too granular of a show, of a two-hour show with that match taking up a third of it. Or it was probably more, because there were multiple breaks. So yeah, that, should, that matching up more than a third of a show, I think it should be getting more than a 66. Well, it got 19 out of 20 on match quality, Bix. I know, but still, I think you're getting a little too granular. That just tells you what the rest of the show that just tells you what the rest of the show was. It does, but it also tells you that maybe there's a good reason why Wade gets rid of this system within the next couple of weeks. I guess. Because I subscribed to the Torch within a few weeks of this, and it's gone. No. All right, this did 2.4 rating. Main event did a 1.7. Pro did a 1.7 as well. Now, worldwide, we have a rare I Quit match on television with Rick Rude and Stink. What a finish this is. <laughs> Watch this. Let's talk about this I Quit finish here. And this was a sweeps thing. I forget what they were calling it. But it was something where they had a name versus name gimmick main event each week. Yeah. Into the gut. Rude wearing his plain black tights. That's another thing. Yeah, Rick Rude wearing plain black tights. No airbrush. Firing back on Rude. Right hand in succession.
dancing Rick Rude hurting. All he's got to do is say, I quit and it's all over. This is a real punishment type match. Nobody home for that one, Stinger. See ya as he hit the mat. Left-handed clothesline by Rude. And Rude's heading. What's he doing? He's grabbing the... He's, he's, he's got, got that glove. He's got that coal miner's glove. Okay. Yes. How that long how was he even out of the ring, ended. though? Not even five seconds. Okay, let's this count. This is how... Yeah, all right. Okay, well, I won't put the sound on, but okay. Rude is going to hit the floor when? Let's see. Okay, 11.43. Now, 11.43. Okay. Okay, let's turn the sound back on. He's walking away! He's You're walking away! He calls for the bell six seconds, seconds later. No, it was still eleven. It was still eleven forty nine when he called for the bell. <laughs> so less than seven seconds later. And this is how an I quit match ended. And then it goes right to break. To the break. What the hell? What in the hell? Also, you know, they clearly had no. They're lucky that Rue. No, but wait a second. They must have booked this thinking Sting was the champion at this time. So, like, was this announced as non-title? Was this announced as a title match? It was not ti- no title on the line. It was explicitly non-title? I mean, there was no title on the line, so... Well, let's see what the intros look like. Wait, did they switch the belt back in Japan because he they had the TV with him as champion? Probably. But was that the original plan, or did they just forget and then switch it back? It's WCW, so who knows? Rather, she cut the music. Open your oh, eyes, okay. button your lips, and take a good look at the man who's going to make Sting say, I quit. Hit the music. Those rules seem pretty cool. Did he make him quit in Japan? And ladies and gentlemen, his opponent in no. the I Quit Dream match from Venice Beach, California, weighing 251 pounds, this is Sting! So they never actually say it's a title match, so it's not a title match. It's not a title match. Okay. 
He has the yeah, belt. The he's the champion. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was taped in February. Of course it was. And this was Rick Rue's last television match. To end. Yes. Yes. It's insane. Also, yeah. after they had been doing the outdoor tapings for a cycle or part of the cycle, it's a downgrade to go back on the soundstage. Yeah. Those tapings on the New York Street set, I feel like, looked a lot more Major League overall than the tapings at the soundstage did. It looked cool. Although, I'll say this, the soundstage here looks a lot nicer than it would later. Yes. All right, let's continue as we have the Disney tapings for our week, May 12th through the 17th. We're packed as individual shows, but instead simply simply had 11 matches taped each night, almost all of which were squashes. Uh, Bix, the shows were taped outdoors with a newer backdrop set, which is said to look great. So that hasn't happened yet. I thought... Okay. Well, no, 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 no. Here's how... I think this might be Dave not paying attention to Worldwide. Because one of the matches I distinctly remember being outside was Max Payne, Ron Simmons, and both of them are injured and basically gone forever at this point. May 21st, 94. That's the air date. That was taped here on this tapings. Oh, wait a minute, no. It's outdoors. Yeah, Max Payne's hurt. So that's on the the, the new tapings. No, but Max Payne's injured, isn't he? It aired May 21st, 94. Okay, and what's the taping date? Um, it, uh, no, well, that, those are hard to find. It's February. Okay, so this is from February then. Okay, so they were taping outdoors in February. Yeah. Okay, they were I doing right. both on that set. Okay. Okay, but so I was right though. Yeah. You were right, but wrong. <laughs> in what way? Because you made it seem like it was like 93 and shit. No, that's, I didn't it say was that. The ta- it was the taping right before this taping we're at now. So it was earlier in the same cycle of tapings. It was later. It was the last set. You know, uh, whatever. So were they going uh, back and look, forth? I mean, was... I mean if, you, if you looked at history of WWE, here's what's funny about that. It has this this show and the show with Rude and Sting t- uh, taking place on the same day. Yeah, that's clearly not true. So The Disney tapings are weird, Bix. Very weird. But also, when did Max Payne get hurt? Uh... Was it a Spring Stampede? Okay. Max Payne has wrestles at Spring Stampede. He wrestles Vader at the Saturday Night Tapings on April 20th. And the only other match for him listed after that is Ron Simmons. Oh! Uh, here's what Hitcher WWE says. The Ron Simmons-Max Payne street fight was taped on May the 12th. I Dave's see right. that it says that. Outdoor taping. And is this the only Marcus of Queensberry match that's outdoors? Uh, well, this is the final match. That's what I'm saying. Is this the only one that's outdoors? I guess. It, it, <clears throat> it wouldn't make sense to have tape outdoors in the winter anyway, so. Well, it's Florida. I know it's Florida, though. but still. Yeah, so but does still, Max Payne cool. get injured versus Simmons? Max Payne's injured anyway. I don't know. I, I don't think he'd be off all the shows and then suddenly come back on the 12th, is what I'm saying. It's weird. Because it's weird. I don't know. I, we're okay. getting in. I mean, it, it makes no sense to even try to argue this because we don't fucking know. <laughs> I mean, also, it's uh, fruitless. Well, I mean, it's fruitless because we're also not getting full results from the Orlando tapings anyway. 
Yeah, it could be, and it could be a mixed match of shit. So. No, I mean, but I mean, we again, we know there's stuff that just never aired, like title changes and stuff. So, yes. So anyway, yeah, they had a seat seating set for 300, and there's total wrestling audience as the shows were taped at night when the part was closed, and they used the same audience for the three and a half hours of largely squashes instead of changing audiences each hour to keep the fans fresh. This resulted in a lot of dead spots, so expect heavy dubbing in of crowd noise on these shows. Well, that's a drawback there. So you had a wrestling well, they, crowd, but you wore them out so much that they weren't reacting after a little while. And see, that's the thing you can you can say about the Disney tapings is yeah, they were what they were, but the crowd was always into shit. You know, not always organically, but it doesn't matter. They, reacted, they were, in, yeah. they were. I mean, they react. I mean, they were cheering the faces and booing the heels, and they were doing what they're supposed to do. Let's and go. So and so, sometimes you'd see the cheerleader on camera directing them to cheer. And well, that, hey, whatever you gotta do. Well, don't right, you Tom, notes that, <laughs> what's WCW? Tom notes out the Disney tapings. There were fewer competitive matches than all the previous tapings, with main events being bounced like Bad Attitude, Steve Kern and Bobby Eaton versus Stars and Stripes. From a wrestler standpoint, the tape went smooth, and it was the easiest week of Disney tapings thus far. Ice Train, Jungle Jim Steele did Joshua Regal. They were building a few with Austin, who was no longer Robert Parker against Ricky Steamboat of the U.S. title. There's Bisco were several matches. Ming, M-I-N-G, King Haku was in his partner's bodyguard. Sherry Martell continued to scout Brian Pillman <clears throat> during all his squash matches. Brad and Brian Armstrong continued as a half-and-half half tag team, winning squashes but losing against stars. And two matches from the new tape already aired this weekend on Worldwide. Okay. There you go. <laughs> so does that there mean they go. mixed Indoor and outdoor stuff? They mixed them in. They mixed them in. Okay, yeah. so that explains the confusion to a degree, at least. Yes, they were mixing and matching, which is stupid. Why do that? But anyway. All right. Back to the torch. In a flare interview, he talked about Hogan no showing a card. Vader taking his place and him be beating Vader. This is on the tapings. Then he talked about facing Mr. Perfect at the Clash. No idea what any of this means, if anything. And this keeps going on and off for several weeks at a few tapings. I guess we talked this about This is them maybe thinking that there's a chance that the Hogan Duke will fall apart. And that they're getting Kurt Henning, who doesn't actually come in. Yep. But who was on the back burner? Very weird. I wish I had that universe instead of the universe I did get. <laughs> well, also, why does Kurt Henning keep going to all these people, even though he knows contractually he can't go anywhere? WCW, Herb Abrams, and none of it goes anywhere. Because I guess he thought he could get. I guess he thought he could get out of it. I guess. I mean, Mister Perfect was signed WWF, not Kurt Henning. Oh, stop! The contract didn't. The contract says McMahon, but it says Shade McMahon. <laughs> Don't be surprised to see Jimmy Hart involved in that process as well. Hart's currently recording new interviews for the wrestlers. Oh. Frank Anderson from Sweden was said to be impressive throughout the tapings. And he was impressive. This is all day stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sherry Martell was continuing to and Brian Pillman. Apparently made references to looking for the perfect man. Which leads me to believe that Ron Simmons' idea has already been cast aside for Mr. Perfect. That's total conjecture at this point. And, of course... Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And we know plans changed because... I mean, plans changed quickly because... Shows where she's scouting Pillman still air after she's with Flair. Yeah. But again, it makes you wonder, well, I mean, the universe, if Hulk Hogan's not involved, 
heel Brian Pillman, align with Kurt Henning and Sherry, possibly. I mean, yeah. Who fucking knows? Thunder and Lightning are gone after their contracts weren't renewed. No big loss there. Well, one of them comes back. Gene Oakland missed several tapings and may need a kidney transplant. Best wishes on a full recovery there. Well, he won't make a full recovery for like a decade. I know, but Gene just had all them health problems for so long, man. Good lord. And then, you know, like, after all that, his wife gets tested. She's a match. Donates her kidney. That's the one that sticks. Yeah. Yeah, he had rejected right, two great- different donor kidneys. Yeah. The Great American Bash, or Bash at the Beach, as WCB may call it, has been moved from the Miami Beach Convention Center to Orlando Arena, home of the Magic. The 17,000-seat building will be tough to fill. If this turns out to be the first Flair Hogan match. Orlando area is not necessarily a hot wrestling town. Even with Hogan filming Thunder in Paradise in Orlando, the Orlando media does not have a history of giving favorable publicity to wrestling, so filling the building, no matter what the main event, could turn out to be a challenge. <clears throat> well, you're nursing Flair and Hogan, Wade. Yeah, that showed through fairly well, didn't it? Yeah, very well. I mean, I don't know if Shaq, maybe, uh, you know, his involvement had to, it did, it drew, you know, over 9,000 paid. Yeah. In the building, so. Better than what WCW been doing, for God's sakes. All right, to close up the show. The newspaper in Richmond, Virginia had an article on a female police officer who was nicknamed Ric Flair because of her hair. Although she really looks more like Austin Idol in drag. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Uh, okay, so I would think this is the Richmond Times dispatch, right? I guess. I'm not finding anything at least using search on newspapers.com. I don't know. What a thing to write! What a thing for a major paper to store, write a story about, though. That's random. Yeah, which may, which couldn't be that it may not be the Richmond Times Dispatch. It did it. Could be something else. I don't know. Could be a suburb or something with their own little paper. I don't know. Yeah, we get newspaper IDs wrong fairly often in the newsletter, so there is that. Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for this week. Next week on Between the Sheets, we have a Patreon requested show by Michael Otts, who wants us to go back to the year 2000, where we'll have uh, quite the show. Of course, it's 2000 and World Championship Wrestling. We'll have uh, news on Ric Flair and his medical issues and being clear the return to action after collapsing on a thunder taping. Yes, from a uh, recurrence of his inner ear issues. Yeah, so we'll have that. We'll have uh, news on the, the morale of the company. You can guess how that's going to go. <laughs> Bret Hart talking about returning to the ring in August. Wow. Well, we know how that turns out. Yeah, in an interview with Alex Marvez, no less. Uh, of course, we'll have Thunder, Nitro, all the insanity going on in those shows. So expect clips aplenty, I'm sure, off of that. And we got uh, all kinds of other WCW Everybody moments, including... Uh, all your favorites at the time, Vince Russo, Van Hammer, DDP, Hoobie, Buff Bagwell, Suspension, and, all, and Diana Myers, Bix. So uh, quite the WCW section next week. Japan, we got news on the uh, uh, Entrepreneur Split Up, which is going to happen. 
on the current tour. We got the funeral for Jumbo Sharuda to talk about. Plus uh, other stuff in New Japan, all Japan. New Japan, Shinya Shimoda resigned. So we'll talk about that. Rika Choshu's coming out of retirement. And the best of Super Juniors are starting up. We got uh, all kinds of indie scum stuff, including uh, the Nisei Onita retirement show. Oh, we'll talk about boy. that. We got uh, interesting shows in Canada to talk about, including the one-year anniversary of the death of Owen Hart and Martha Hart issuing a statement to the Calgary Sun about uh, about that and other things. <clears throat> we got all kinds of stuff in the Lucha world to talk about. We got legal issues in Puerto Rico involving one Savio Vega, who has now become a big name again, thanks to WWE. ECW. TV taping uh, in my neck of the woods, Duluth, Georgia, during our week. But we also have news on Raven getting his uh, release. And, of course, we have, we're warning his unconditional release. And, of course, we have Paul Heyman quotes galore in this section. And uh, all kinds of other stuff going on ECW. We got all kinds of other stuff going on in the indie scene to talk about. And in the World Wrestling Federation, we got, of course, Raw and SmackDown. But we also have... Judgment Day 2000, and yes, it is the 60-minute Iron Match between Hunter Helmsley and The Rock. So, uh, quite the show next week on Between the Sheets. And uh, a show of this size, no guest next week, because we just got a lot going on. So, uh, hopefully we'll have a guest on the show after that. So, there is that. All right. Bix, thanks as always to the rock of the show. And uh, yeah, I made it, th- made it through. Barely, but I made it through. Well, with some editing script- magic, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So for Bix, this is Chris, and so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
everyone, and welcome to the Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 79. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. We're back in 1998 again, but in the other big promotion. Yes, as we look back at the uh, legal and backstage and everything else uh, battle between Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair. Yeah, so we go from Mike Tyson to this. <laughs> and, you know, as much as shit is these days in wrestling behind the scenes, you know, just just think, you know, this is the era before social media. Oh, God, if this happened during social media. Well, oh, just we, everything. Well, the Tyson stuff. Well, yeah, but, well, look, at least nobody involved in any of the current drama ever tried to take anyone to court or bankrupt. Oh, never mind. I mean, just think, just imagine how wrestling fans would have reacted to Mike Tyson in 1998. And just think about how people would react to all this stuff. You know, I mean, it's just insanity. So let's get started. 25 years ago. My God. All right. The week of June the 15th, towards June 20th, observer June 22nd. Charlotte Observer ran a story in June the 12th regarding Ric Flair's lawsuit and attempt to get released in WCW deal. Basically, arguments over whether Flair can be held to the letter he signed in 1997 in November, agreeing to stay for three years before the actual contract was signed. Flair's lawyer, Bill Deal of Charlotte, said the deal isn't a, the letter isn't a contract and called it nothing more than an outline of proposed economic terms that haven't been agreed to. According to the lawsuit, WCW has failed to recognize Flair's status as an internationally known wrestling champion. And so WCW reneged on his promise to treat Flair during the terms of the deal as the Babe roof of wrestling. WCW made attempts to settle with Flair this past week to get a return from the Georgia Dome show, but from all accounts, sides are no closer. After the ratings defeats, it's believed WCW once again attempted to settle with Flair even more favorable terms. Bringing back Flair, which should, while what should help the ratings a little, probably a lot when he first comes back, is still like bringing in Jim Helwig, putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound in regards to having far bigger problems that needs to be addressed in regards to shaking up the pecking order. Yeah, you got that right. All right, Torch has us on this. Uh, Rick Flair filed a lawsuit against WCW on June 11th, seeking to be relieved of any contractual obligations so he would be free to negotiate with WF. The lawsuit filed in Mecklenburg County in North Carolina said the letter agreement that Flair signed in November last year is void since WCW failed to follow up in good faith as specified in the written agreement. In response to the apparent end of any chance of Flair returning to WCW, WCW new book, and new booker Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, huh? that was interesting. Made plans to reform the Four Horsemen about it. The plans for the Four Horsemen to be led by spokesperson Arn Anderson include Kristen Wall, Mongo, Dean Malenko, and Fit Finley. Meanwhile, Flair and his representatives have made it clear that they want to join WF and that WCW's two million dollars lawsuit as Flair for breach of contract is to turn to WF for negotiating a deal with Ric Flair. We hope to extricate Mr. Flair from any further dealings with this company, said Bill Beal. Bill Deal, not Bill Beal. Flair's attorney explained to the Charlotte. Is he any relation to Fred? I guess guess WCW last week. On February 15, 1998, Flair's five-year contract at WCW expired. Three months earlier, WCW proposed a three-year extension, letter of agreement, a short-form contract for Flair to sign, outlining the basic terms of an eventual long-form contract. Flair did not sign the initial letter of agreement dated November 5th, but did sign a letter dated November 11th. That letter of agreement called for a three-year term paying Flair for $725,000, $725,000, and $500,000 respectively each year, with potential for more in the third year if he was asked to make more than 130 appearances. 
The last paragraph of the letter agreement said a more detailed contract would be prepared by WCW and signed by the parties. But until then, the letter of agreement would be fully enforceable and legally binding between the parties. Flair and WCW Vice President Nick Lambros, or as Gene Oakland called him, Matt Lambros, signed the agreement. Before signing, though, Flair insisted on a qualification, a handwritten note in the margin that said he agreed only if subject to review the mutual acceptance, and Flair's representatives contend WCW violated that note, thus voiding the letter of agreement. Flair's lawsuit says Flair's informed WCW during negotiations late last year that he sought a three-year agreement providing him substantial income, a working environment, and relationship with WCW, a fair treatment, reasonable involvement in storylines, support professional wrestling, and legitimate consideration of his 25 years of experience and his status as one of the most popular wrestlers in the world. The lawsuit states that WCW assured Flair would, would be provided all the above and would be treated as the Babe Ruth for professional wrestling. The lawsuit claims WCW assured Flair the letter agreement was nothing more than an outline of basic economic terms, and the two comprehensive documents were to describe the actual contractual relationship between the parties. The lawsuit points out that Flair insisted that the more comprehensive documents would be subject to review and mutual acceptance. All right, real quick before we keep continuing. You know, I keep seeing this Babe Ruth professional wrestling. I mean, Ric Flair basically was the Babe Ruth professional wrestling because when when Babe Ruth left baseball, he was told basically that he would become a manager uh, for a team. And then when he retired, nobody called nobody called him. And he told, was told that by the Boston Braves when they signed him, when he ended his career, that they were going to make him the manager, uh, you know, after he retired. Didn't happen. And then he sat, and then he's one of these guys that most of his life, the rest of his life, he sat by the phone hoping that a team would call him to become a manager. So Flair was being treated more like Babe, Babe Ruth than he knew <laughs> at that time. On January 18th, WCW sent two draft agreements to Flair's agents in Los Angeles, but they were deemed unacceptable because they failed to acknowledge Flair's experience and status, failed to specify Flair's influence over storylines, failed to include the requirements that WCW and its representatives deal with Flair in a civil and respected manner, contained new agreements never agreed to by the parties, Failed to specify a reasonable vacation time. Specifying the amount not agreed to what was less than his full contract salary should Flair suffer an injury. Contained an illegal non-compete clause for any reason, including a breach by WCW. Allowed WCW to license Flair's name without his consent. And didn't allow for Flair to examine WCW's books to determine sums due to Flair under any licensing agreements. And failed to eliminate provisions, which allowed WCW to eliminate Flair as a wrestler for three years, as long as they paid him, nearly destroying his career. Wow. After Flair refused to sign the proposed long-form contract, negotiations continued, but according to the lawsuit, Flair's relationship with WCW deteriorated drastically. Explained the lawsuit, WCW reduced the number of Flair's appearances at his promotions. Flair's appearances on WCW's weekly television programs were de-emphasized and for over a month completely eliminated. Upon information and belief, Flair's role was downplayed, in particular by Eric Bischoff, in order to satisfy demands made by and commitments to other wrestlers, including Terry Hollywood Hogan. Bischoff is reportedly vice president of WCW, in charge of wrestling, and simultaneously the self-styled public spokesman and TV personality manager for one or more WCW wrestlers, including the New World Order and Hollywood Hogan. Throughout the time period, Bischoff has treated Flair off-camera in an increasingly hostile, rude, threatening, and degrading manner. Bischoff asserts himself as a czar and seems to believe he has dictatorial, dictatorial authority over Flair. His language is crude, rude, and socially unacceptable, even in the world of professional wrestling. Oh, this is tremendous. He has threatened to bankrupt Flair and put Flair out of work, banish him to some foreign country, and referred to him as garbage. He did all that when Flair was not there. So, 
there's that. The lawsuit asks for a declaratory judgment stating that given all the subsequent circumstances, the letter of agreement does not bind the parties together, and therefore Flair did not breach any contract, and the lawsuit WCW filed against him several weeks ago for $2 million, thus being invalid. The lawsuit says WCW is aware that Flair had discussions with WF after it became clear that Flair and WCW would not finalize an agreement, and that WCW is filing a lawsuit against him is groundless, and is intended to chill any further discussion between Flair and WF. It says Flair believes that WF is not willing to enter an agreement with him until the WCW lawsuit is settled. The lawsuit says Flair suffered damage as a result expected to exceed $2 million. And finally, the lawsuit asks that the Dunner agreement isn't rescinded. The agreement would be reformed to reflect the true agreement of the two parties. The lawsuit says the letter of the agreement was fraudulently induced because Flair signed the letter based on assurances by WCW that the final agreement would contain certain provisions executed at a later date. Upon information and belief, these representations were false when made, and WCW has no intentions of fulfilling its promises. The lawsuit could be tied, could tie Flair from legal system for a long time to come, but Flair ideally would like to see a rapid judgment that would void his WCW agreement and free him to negotiate a return to WWF. Flair, 49 years old, would like to quickly move into a respectful final phase of his career. Bix, your thoughts? Assuming that the parts that are factual statements are true... This seems pretty fair, you know? Yeah. You know, that he sounds like he's being pretty reasonable here. Um, Ric Flair uh, taking issue with someone being rude and degrading, huh? And the thing is, is what, I mean, what we know is the, the stuff that Bischoff said was when Flair's not even there. Yeah. No. It's just so That's weird. That's the thing about it. They make, they make it sound like that he was saying all this stuff in front of Ric Flair's face. True. But for all we know, he never did such a thing. That's what sticks out to me in all this. But yeah, I mean, I get well. We haven't we haven't seen the actual wording about that part in the lawsuit, though. It's possible that. Um, Deal told the Charlotte Observer, "We hope to put WCW in a suplex. That's a wrestling hold." That was what he said. Oh boy. <laughs> Lord, Lord, Lord. See, when you, when, if I was Flair, I would have fired him for saying that comment. <laughs> yeah. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a newspaper story about pro wrestling, Chris. But that's his lawyer saying that, though. I know. He's trying, he's trying to butter up the newspaper. I guess. I, I, well, here, well, here's the thing, too. You know what's going on that same week? And in fact, it was uh, five days after Flair. Bobby Walker filed his lawsuit against WCW. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, completely separate lawyers, but... I know, but still. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Um, so that not only they got Flair, they got the Bobby Walker lawsuit. Well, yes. The original, or... Is this the first time or the second time? Well, I mean, it's the I guess the first time. Okay, because you know later he's back with Sonny Ono and everyone else, so I don't know. Um, but that is interesting, though. <laughs> you know the timing of that. I don't think it's by but design I... or anything, though, right? I don't think they're working together in any way. No, but uh. I mean, anything else? I mean, of all that stuff I just read, anything else stick out to you? Oh. Oh, wait. We have a friend here. 
Well, Chris, here's the thing about me not saying those things about Ric Flair being garbage and bankrupting him to his face. I am a fucking coward. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that when you blocked me. <laughs> you know, I never did anything to get blocked. I mean, he, I didn't. I don't know why he blocked me the first time either. I mean, now, well, I can understand me. you. But that, yeah, he unblocked me, so I don't know. But yeah. uh, just fed Bischoff on TMZ into that, and boom. <laughs> Is there oh, anything right. you want uh, Eric to say? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're we're fine right now. All right, so um, Torch said that we should have been negotiating to get Flair back in time for the July 6th Georgia Dome show. Obviously, negotiations t- broke down. With Nitro losing the ratings again this week, there are late rumors that WCW may make a last-ditch big offer to Flair to get him to drop the lawsuit and get him back soon to actually be part of the new Four Horsemen. Flair, though, was dead sick against from WCW, given how disrespectful he was treated the last year by management on air and behind the scenes. Sure. All right, let's advance to the week of June 22nd. And we start the Observer. Uh, Torch, June 27th or June 29th. Representatives of Ric Flair claim their key point in the lawsuit against WCW to get out the three-year agreement, which is part of the signed agreement with both parties. Claim oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Eric's message me again. Wait, what's this about? Hey, Chris, it's Eric. Why the fuck are you reading any of the shit written about me by fucking Meltzer? You have everything <laughs> that Wade wrote from his home in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota. So why would you use anything spewed by that <laughs> schmuck in California? <laughs> Oh my goodness! I don't know, Eric. I guess it's both sides of the story. And this one's working out very well, though. <laughs> to hear this entire show, support between the sheets on Patreon for just five dollars per month. Go to patreon.com/slash/between-the-sheets.